Hello again, friends, and you are my friends, and welcome back to another edition of the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership, the best wrestling podcast on the planet, the only wrestling podcast that matters. Call somebody. I'm your host, the great Brian Last. It's me! The hardest working man in wrestling podcasts. Yeah! Baby, baby. What are you trying to prove? Let's spend the night together. And I am very happy to have back on the show to start off this big episode of the Super Podcast with me. One of the most popular guests in Super Podcast history. One of the great contributors to this show. Howard Baum. Howard, welcome back to the program. Hey, hey, hey. How's everybody out there during these Rona times? You know, my thoughts are with you. Well, you're in South Florida. My thoughts are with you. (laughs) Tell me about it. What's it like down there? Well, it was a Petri dish to begin with. I mean, imagine now. (laughs) That's true. You throw in the end of the world. What more do you want? Come on down, everybody. The serve's fine. On that topic, on the topic of South Florida, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you today here on the show is on social media, on Facebook, the other day, all of a sudden I see pictures from... Somewhere in South Florida, what appears to be a bar, outdoors, it is you and Pat Patterson hanging out, attempting to cut promos. I see a face mask on you, no face mask anywhere near Pat Patterson. We'll get to that in a second. But what's going on? How did you run into Pat Patterson? Where did you run into Pat Patterson? Well, this story is so cray, so off the chain, as the kids say, in 2009. (laughs) Uh, This is just incredible. It's like, you know, sometimes I'm one of those guys, if you're ever out with your friends, you're like, hey, look, it's Eddie Gilbert, or hey, look, it's Barry Windham, because the guy might look like him. So I'm always doing that. And once I said that, then I'm like, hey, it's Robert Gibson, and it really was Robert Gibson. So, you know, anyway, I have the gift is what I'm trying to say. So (laughs) I live in in, Hollywood. All this stuff that you surveilled on the Internet took place in Hollywood, Florida, where I live which is between Miami and uh, Fort Lauderdale. And um, so it's it's such a Byzantine, Rube Goldberg-esque story of perfect timing. A switch watchmaker, a writer of modern farce could not put together such a congruence of events to make this happen when it was my lunch with Pat Patterson. Except it wasn't a lot of booze. It wasn't a lunch with a lot of booze. My liquid, a, my liquid lunch. My liquid lunch. It's a two-part story, and it's a story that, by all rights, should not have happened. So, I was all the way across town, forty-five minutes away, hanging out with a girl slash friend of mine. No relations, strictly platonic, but she pissed me the hell off. <laughs> well, hold on, raining. hold on. Let me stop you. <laughs> a girl slash friend. She was a friend right. and a girl. But not your I, girlfriend. Exactly, because I don't, I don't like to proclaim that I have a girlfriend, and she's not by any stretch of the imagination. Like a sister to me. This girl's like a sister. Okay. I go there to visit the dog primarily more than anything. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and that's the truth. That's how I am with all of my friends. If you don't have a dog, you're not friends with me. You ever notice that? Anyway, so I'm all the way across town, but she pisses me the hell off. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck this. I get in my car. So I shouldn't have even been near my house. And I live on this thing called the Hollywood Circle. It's one little roundabout, and then Hollywood Boulevard, the big drag, bisects it, goes right into it. And it's like three or four blocks of clubs, restaurants, bars, etc. So 
Now, some people may not be familiar with Hollywood, Florida. They hear Hollywood, they think Hollywood, California, <laughs> right. Los Angeles. What's ho- is Hollywood, Florida, a glamorous place like Hollywood and oh, California? Oh, extremely. It's true. We have uh, the hypodermic garden, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have the hepatitis M through Z show every Tuesday at the park. That's popular <laughs> with the kids. No, it's disgusting. It's hot, and you know, but, but people love the beach. We have a Jimmy Buffett, and it's all the stuff that normal people love. So stay away, everyone. Anywho, it's a. I mean, listen, normal people would love it. It's so the street, the main drag is a bunch of touristy. You got your Killwinds. You got your horrendous Mediterranean restaurants blasting this music from God knows where. It sounds like the Star Wars bar sung by Yanni's brother. The cantina. So, yeah, except, except like, By Yanni's you know. brother. <laughs> <laughs> it's also horrendous. They have those outdoor things, you know, where it's not karaoke, but you're like, what the fuck, where the whole band plays, and it's like, and then you pass the next place, and it's like some horrendous Latin music. It's like, leave my poor ears alone. Can't someone just, like, walk down the street? Well, the they, food must I mean, be good. It, the food must be good, though. Oh, <laughs> right. Right. We have all these, you know, indeterminate Mediterranean and Greek and <laughs> Mexican places. I don't know. There's only two places I go. Red Thai, which just mysteriously burned down in a fire. Pretty suspicious timing, in my opinion. And Moro's Pizza, which is known for their giant slices and bigger prices. <laughs> so anyway, you told me you wanted to keep this show brief, so I'm trying to cut out all the extraneous details. You're asking me everything about what color is the sidewalk? Well, cobblestones were put in in 1928. No, I don't want to cast any aspersions. Hollywood is kind of nice. I really enjoy it. I live like off the main drag, and I can go for pizza, Thai, whatever, a drink, anytime I damn well want. And, you know, it's, it's right in between Miami and Fort Lauderdale. It's right by the beach. I'm a mile from the beach. And it's nice. It's just, you know, everyone here is a savage from a third world country, and you take your life in your hands every time you leave the house. And it's a billion degrees on the coolest of days. So Sounds lovely. That's my, that's my plug for the tourism department. <laughs> but anyway, there's a lot of meat on this bone, so I want to get to, to it for you guys. So, Pat Patterson, I had to get a part for business. Not important. What kind of part it was, I'm not purposely leaving it out, other than the fact that it might be something you people are going to be hearing about in the future, and no point discussing it at this point in time. So I go to this one particular store on Hollywood Boulevard, five minutes away from my house, and it was just a matter of, all right, so now the girl pisses me off, I come back home, I shouldn't have been home at this time, so now it's like 1.30 on a Saturday afternoon, and I'm like, all right, well now what do I do with myself? Well, you need that part for business, go get it put my shoes on, go back out, even though it's raining and blowing. And I'm like, goodbye hair day, but fuck it. And I go and I get my little part, takes two seconds. I come out and I see a figure approaching me and he's not that big and he's not that impressive looking, but he looks vaguely familiar. And through my wrestling DNA file, I'm like, Oh my God, Pat Patterson. So I'm like, even as he got even closer I said, it's not him, but I blurted out, hey, what are you doing here? And at that point, it could have either been a hookup with a random 80-year-old man, or it could have been (laughs) an all-day drinking session with Fat Patterson. Turned out to be the latter. But it was not that easy for your boy, because this is what happened. I'm not a closer. 
It's the same with women <laughs> and celebrities. It's like that crucial moment where you got to be like, hey, are we going to do it? They're like, no, I, uh, I'll see you later. So <laughs> I, I whipped out my phone. I had to get my thoughts together. I'm like, okay, you just met Pat Patterson. You have access to Pat Patterson. What are you going to do? Well, first things first, you don't know how long this is going to last. So I dip into my phone, into my pocket, whip out my phone. That's a crucial plot point. Might not sound like one, but listen up, folks. This is a crucial plot point. If this is a Hitchcock movie, there would be some music right there. Whip out my phone. I'm like, Pat, we got to cut some promos and we got to take some selfies. Um, are you familiar with podcasts? No idea. May as well be speaking Swahili and doing a dance around him at that point. <laughs> He's like, what? <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, what is in my phone that I can show him that I'm not some like maniac mark off the street? And I'm like, everything that was easily accessible. I'm like, this is my photography. This is my promotion of Cyclone Negro. We used to run the Bahamas. This is a podcast that I do. And I pull up the cartoon it's whatever came up first. It's like, please, something cool come up, you know? So it's the, it's the cartoon from the Star Wars baseball episode, and it's the one of all of us in the dugout, and I'm thinking, I'm, going, I'm in my head, I'm like, I want to show him it's me, and I'm like, who else is famous there? And I'm like, that's John Arezzi, you know him? He goes, yeah. I'm like, oh, good. And I go, okay, you're not going to know that guy, McAdam. You're not going to know that guy, but that's the host, Brian. That's me, and you're not going to know these two guys. And I got off that, and I went... He didn't know. I told him like a billion things at one time. So I'm like, hey, and this is where, you know, this is an insight into my love life as well. I'm like, this is where I'm Mr. Cool. I go, hey, so if you ever want to go for a drink or something, uh, you know, you want to exchange number. I don't know how I said it. It wasn't that bad. It wasn't, tra it wasn't taxi driver bad, but it wasn't good and it didn't work. He's like, nah, I'm good. I'm like, of course. Of course that's how this ends. I'm like, okay. And he's walking down the street, and I go, I saw you. <laughs> this is so bad. This is Chris Farley. I go, and he's like a block away now. And I'm like, I saw you in 77 against Morales. He didn't even turn around or nothing. <laughs> I'm like, of course. That's how it should have ended, and that's how it would have ended, right? Any other time. That's how it is with the hottest girls I ever met. That's how it is with any good opportunity. Is that what you say to the okay. hottest girls? I saw you at Morales in 77. <laughs> right. <laughs> it worked on Joey Heatherton. But anyway, um, so this is crazy. Now it's a bad day, and it's like I get home, but I really need this part for my business. So I dip into my – and it's gone because when I took my phone out, everything plopped out of my pockets. And I remember my money f flying out and everything, and that little part that I needed must have flopped out. So I'm like, okay, great. Now it's really raining and really getting windy. I'm like, fuck it again. Get dressed again. Go out. I'm like, it's probably on the floor where you saw Pat Patterson, but it's not there. So I have to go buy another one. Well, I buy it. It's the third time in two days I saw this girl. And um, I'm like, all right, I'm not going to see you again today. And I leave there. And I remember that I told Pat Patterson that there was this gay bar up the street called The Octopus. Because <laughs> uh, I didn't know if he was from around here or whatever. And I didn't say gay. I said LG. I didn't know how to fucking phrase you it. You okay? just volunteered that information? Him. He didn't ask you if there was a You just said, by the way. Okay, here's the deal. Here's <laughs> the deal. I was giving him the lay of the land because... 
I, I'm like, listen, if you need any advice, I go, you want to go for a drink or something? However, I like proposed the drink thing and it fell flat, but I'm like, well, Hey, just, just for your knowledge, there's like a LGBT friendly place up the road. It's called the Octum. It's like a really dark and dingy old school gay bar, you know? And it's not big. And it's like, you always see like five or six guys hanging out like vultures waiting for the meat to walk in. Well, this is also germane to the story because after I bought my part for the second time on my way home, this is where it gets good wrestling fans. And you're going to pop for this, Brian, I'm walking home and I go, Howard, you suck because not only you should have said, let's go for a drink right now, let's go to that place right now, right now, I'll buy you a drink which is what any normal guy would do with a girl or anybody. But I'm slow on the uptake, and I'm like, that's where you blew it. But then I also thought, and this is where it gets really good, I was just gifted a copy of the extremely rare, from the Ark itself, copy of the Rocky Johnson Soul Man book from my friend TJ Grundy. Thank you very much, TJ. <laughs> and whenever I get a wrestling book, I just got it two days previous. And whenever I get a wrestling book, I, I fast forward right to the Florida part because that's like the juiciest to know what's going on of stuff that I witnessed. And I saw a story in there. You might be familiar with this. I don't know if you have the Rocky Johnson book or not. I do, in fact. I'm right. one of the rare okay. people that have one because it's off the market. Scott Teal wrote the thing. And, of course, Rocky screwed Scott Teal. ECW Press pulled the book from the market. So whoever has one, you're lucky because they're never going to be reproduced ever again. I just didn't know if your connections were as good as mine, so I wanted to double check. I don't but, have a connection uh, with TJ Grundy or whoever it is, but <laughs> I, 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 got, I got it directly from CW Press. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm Ruben. I knew you had it. I knew you had it. Even if I didn't know, I knew. Anyway, <laughs> so I read the part about Florida, and um, it, it talked about what an asshole Johnny Valentine was and that Pat Patterson was brought in by Eddie Graham to be his de facto assistant but in reality, Booker, because Valentine was just not cutting it and the boys didn't respect him and he wasn't doing a good job. So they brought Patterson in and then Valentine would speak through Pat Patterson. So during this time, he brings Rocky Johnson in. And Pat was, uh, Rocky Johnson was complimentary to Pat in the book. He goes, but one night he gave me a finish and it turns out he gave my opponent a different finish. So when I went over, and I shouldn't have, according to the other finish, Pat Patterson's like, what the hell? You just messed everything up. You might remember the story better than I, but it, that's basically the gist of it. So this is what kicks the second part of the saga into gear. I leave the place where I got my part. I know it's a, I know it's a lot, folks, but there's a, there's, and I haven't even started the conversation with him yet. So, Brian, I'll give you an easy out. If you want to eliminate all the filler, we could start it like this. Hey, guess what, gang? I hung out with Pat Patterson. <laughs> okay, so that's an out. I mean, you can use that at any time and forget all that. But it was just so crazy how this happened. Okay, so now the second part's going to happen. And I'm like, you know what? I bet he just might have gone to that gay bar that I told him about. So I go to the gay bar, and it's like an it's like an open air place. It's like you can you can rest your elbow on the outside and see in. You can sit at the bar inside and see out, and it's like suitably dingy and everything. And there's like six or seven elderly gay lords hanging out there, and I'm like, well, that's perfectly you know, of course he's going to be here. And I I look in the door. I've been there before on uh, research research mission. <laughs> yeah, what are you? <laughs> No, I was I was there when it was a rock club, okay? 
But anyway. The octopus, you said. Uh, <laughs> so I knew the layout. And it's not a big place anyway. It's just one room. And I, and, and I see Pat Patterson's lower body sitting there. I'm like, okay, it's on. It was the same pants, the same legs, the same <laughs> shoes that he was wearing. I walk into the into the bar, and it is a completely different guy. And I, I nod to the other guys, and I'm like, okay, see ya. I'm walking home now, and I'm like, okay, end of that. Go home, end of day, that's it. Go relax. And who do I see at my favorite bar, um, Mickey McGuire's or something like that, pub, on uh, Mickey Burns on Hollywood Boulevard. Um, and who do I see but Pat Patterson out there talking to two people? Well, now I'm still residually pissed off from the argument I had with the girl across town, and I'm still seething with rage inside about having to leave the house twice. For the... So I pass Pat. I, I'm like, I'm getting a drink no matter what. But I'm definitely asking him that Johnny Valentine story, too. So this is my redemption, you know? So I'm walking across the street, and he sees me, and I see him. I'm like, here we go. And, you know, I don't want to be like the stalker guy. I don't want to be like the guy in the Austin 316 shirt standing outside the bar at the Marriott, (laughs) you know, like uh, waiting for Steve Lombardi to recognize me. I'm not going to be that guy. So I had a plan, and I just paused for a minute, and Pat was with this young couple outside, really hot day, and they had a big dog with them. And um, I made it look like I was gone. Oh, but I had a plan. And I said to Pat, hey, just to reiterate, anytime you see me around town, drinks on me, okay? All right, my friend. But I knew. I had a plan. Well, let me I had stop a multi-step plan. Does he live huh? Let me stop you. Does he live there? Because I know he lives in He lives Florida. in Hallandale. Where's he that? He lives in Hallandale, which is really close. It's okay. just uh, five miles south, closer to North Miami. It goes Miami, North Miami, Hallandale, Hollywood, Davie, Fort Lauderdale. So it's just, it's really close. It's for all intents and purposes the same town. I guess I figured he lived in the Tampa area because that's where everyone in the wrestling business lives, but he lives in no, South Florida. No, and he's been, he's been down here a long time, apparently. I spoke to some of my friends, the great Lou Spector. Uh, he informed me that he's been down here a long time. So um, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to go. I, I see him outside the bar and I'm like, hey, you know, I'm not going to bug you. Just anytime you see me, drinks are on me, blah, blah, blah. I didn't know if he was with these people, family, relatives, if they were local workers, what. But my, but I had a plan in place. This wasn't going to end there. So I go inside, I finally get served, and I'm like, let me start a tab, Jack and Coke, keep them coming, and whatever that guy wants out there. And then I stood outside, like, for for all intents and purposes, De Niro in, in Taxi Driver, but I, you can't do that for too long unless you make a move quickly. So I'm standing there looking like a cross between Herbert Lom and modern-day David Lee Roth, like, unobtrusively sipping my Jack and Coke, like he doesn't see me there, the guy from five seconds ago. And I said, fuck this. But the dog was also my in because it had a big scar. And I went over. And I'm like, oh, what happened to the dog? Genuinely concerned, because as everyone knows, I care about dogs as opposed to people. And I looked up and I go, Pat, I forgot to ask you one thing, and then I'm going to leave you alone. And I recounted the Rocky Johnson uh, rib or whatever it was about the ending. And he goes, yeah, I don't know. And that was it. I never found out. (laughs) So I go... 
I mean, what a great story to have an answer to. You're like, what are the odds that I would even know that story? And then for him not to know. And that was the one problem in talking to him. Not a huge problem because a lot of people heard that he was maybe going senile and he acted out along with Vince McMahon at uh, Rocky Johnson's funeral a few months ago in Tampa, stuff like that. Other people have reported that he has slowed down mentally. Well, on a scale of mental alacrity, I would put, if you're talking about zero is a Hannibal and 10 is a Roddy (laughs) Piper on a 1982 Saturday morning, I'd give him a seven. And at 80 years of age, that's not too bad. It was, if you ask him something specific, odds are you're not going to get much of an answer, but he had like a free-flowing association that just yielded so much information. And I tried to steer him in directions that I was interested in, which ended up being pretty fruitless. However, there were plenty of gems. So if you met Pat Patterson, what do you think like the first couple of things you would say to him? Like, what are you really curious about from him? I would probably ask about working for Tony Santos in Massachusetts. I would ask him about Roy Shire. Those would probably be the first two areas. There'd be different topics based off of that. But right. I would ask him about those. Well, I dig this. He, um, like most guys, he said Roy Shire was a great promoter, but a humongous asshole, like the worst person. And one night there was, um, it was in some small town and there was a bomb threat. And he's like, well, Roy Shire didn't care. Um, he sent us all out there, and Fuji was there, and a whole bunch of other, who's another little uh, Japanese guy? And I'm like, Saito maybe, Moto? He's like, anyway, you know, we're there, we're working for Shire, and he didn't care. And it's Fuji and everyone, and uh, they call him the bomb scare, and it could easily be a bomb scare. And uh, we're working our match, you know, it's a six-man match, and I hear a pop! And all, everybody in the ring goes flying. They take a big bump over the top rope and run into the dressing room. It was a kid stomping a bag at ringside. All right. So, so well, <laughs> hey, I'm just a channel. I'm like Abraham. You just, you know. You, <laughs> Is that you what you're like? Me, you, you're like you Abraham. You know that psychic's like a lady from New Jersey, and she's like, Abraham speaks through me. I don't know who, what her name is, but she's like, oh, ask me anything. It's the Miss uh, Cleo of the Super Podcast, Howard. <laughs> right, something like that. But <laughs> um, let's see. So it's like, you know, the thing is, you think of Ray Stevens, and you want to automatically – you think of Pat Patterson. The first thing I wanted to hear was like a good Ray Stevens story. So I go, so, and he didn't give me one, except he kind of did in a way. I go, yeah, man, he lived, he lived like he didn't care, right? Him and Harley Race. He's like, yeah, yeah, no story, no forthcoming. I had nothing to add. I'm like, okay. But, um, let's see. There's a good. Did he say anything about Johnny Valentine? I mean, that was the whole basis of that original story was. Yeah, well, he was, he, he was an asshole too. Yeah. He had no redeeming qualities according to Pat Patterson. He goes, no, he was a miserable human being. I'm like, there's nothing good you can say about him. He's like, no, no. <laughs> and, then, and then I was trying to think of like different um, people that I cared about or that I thought would be interesting. And then he, he, he half muttered to himself, Billy Graham. And I go, and watch, I catch myself. But I go, oh, superstar Graham, forget it. 
completely forgetting all the heat that they have and how Superstar cost him his job and a major yeah. scandal and everything. I stand up and I, I put Superstar over like the Oh no I wanted to just sit No 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 <laughs> but I just wanted to sit and listen but I got so excited because I wanted to tell him what Superstar was like through a fan's eyes. And I'm like, let me just tell you something. Superstar Graham, when I was 10 years old, he came out, and then halfway through it, I caught myself. And I put my hand on his shoulder. I go, Pat, I am so sorry. I forgot you guys had all that heat. I completely forgot about that. I was just trying to talk about what it was like seeing him as a fan. And he goes, you know what? He wasn't the first time. I got him a job at San Francisco. He was bugging me. Pat, can you get me into San Francisco? Because he was working L.A. And um, he's like, yeah, come on up. After he was like a big prima donna, had an attitude the whole time, and he quit the business. He quit the territory and everything. And uh, I'm like, yeah. I like your Pat Patterson voice. I know, I know. It gets good. You know what what I found out during the week in preparation for this appearance is that – I can't really do a Pat, but there's even though it's the same thing, I could do a Butcher Vachon because Butcher Vachon plays into this. Because early in his career, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking to myself, who can I, who the fuck can I bring up that he, that's going to bring him out? So he's like, oh, Butcher Vachon. See, I can't do him. It sounds like Don Morocco. I don't know, but he's and like, you have Vachon a connection goes, because you're friend, you were friends with Luna Vachon. Right, but we ended up talking about Mad Dog because he seems to be the more exciting of the Vashans in any event, you know. So, um, he so I'm like, oh, he knows Mad Dog Vashan. Let me ask him about that. I'm like, what about Mad Dog Vashan? Because I figure any of the French Canadian guys, you can't go wrong. I told him that I knew Bertrand Hibert because it's always a pleasure. To, I just wanted to say, I just like to say his name. Hey, Bertrand, <laughs> I know you. I know you're on this episode. I just love the Pat Laprade, but he doesn't have a, a tilde on his name. Is that what it's called? The the thing over the E? Yeah, I don't know what it's called. I know what you're talking about. I don't know the actual Yeah. Name. I always wanted to I always wanted to like our dumb. Anyway, <laughs> Brian Lock. <laughs> you need a certain amount of syllables, but Bertrand has the perfect anyway, hey Bertrand. We met once briefly at the CAC, but I hope to see you guys, you know. Whatever. <laughs> anyway, so I put over those guys. He's like, Oh, I'm like, I know your biographers. I know this guy. I know the guy who shined your shoes. I'm like, what about Butcher Vachon, because I knew the Vachons. I knew Luna and her dad. So, and I met Mad Dog. So I'm like, and I know Mad Dog has all these crazy stories. So um, I'm like, what about Mad Dog? And he goes, oh, you know, he called, I'm not going to try the voice. He goes, he called me up and I was living. I just came in here and I had no money. And he's like, you've got to come up to um, Portland. And I did the research. And that was in 1962, the same year that he started. And he's yeah. like, I don't have a, I don't have a penny. I don't have any money. How am I going to get to Portland? He's like, I barely understood English. It might have been, on, it might as well have been on another planet. So they went to Portland, and he goes, and then Mad Dog's like, so where's this faggot boyfriend of yours? And he goes, because Vashon hated the gays, and he's like, I want to find this this fucking queer boyfriend of yours. And Pat Patterson's like, oh, holy crap. And the boyfriend leaves and goes to some location or something. And this is the language of the time, people. I'm just relaying a story, of course. God, I don't want to see anything on Twitter. So Pat was actually using this language and telling you the story. Yes, yes, of course. You know me. I'm like a truth machine. I just 
tells it like it is. I wouldn't say that stuff. Abraham. You think I'm, you think I'm, uh, you think I'm unknown Henson, man? I ain't stupid. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> check this out. So he's like, yeah, I'm going to find your faggot boyfriend. Where's your guy? And he's like, and Patterson's like, and, and, um, and Mad Dog hates queers. And I'm like, oh my God. And then Louis, his longtime uh, boyfriend, Louis Dondero, who, because this was such an early story, and I had heard Louis's name, I said to Pat, oh my God, I didn't realize you guys were together like from the very, very beginning. Yeah, I had met no him idea. in Boston working for Tony Santos yeah. when he first came to the country. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, wow. And, you know, he brought him up a lot. It was very bittersweet because you could tell that, you know, he still missed him and all that. And uh, that's like the one sad aspect of any of, the, of it that I could say, because he like brought him up a lot in stories. And so the thing is, and so his boyfriend, Louie, like hightails it out of there. He's like, forget it. But then Mad Dog sees him on the street in the car that he, he's like, you're going to take me to him. And he makes him drive him around town to find his boyfriend finds the boyfriend on the street and everyone's like, holy shit. Mad Dog's like, get in. The guy gets in the back of the car, Louie, and Pat Patterson goes, within five minutes, they were like this. Like he does the universal fingers together like they were friends for life. And he goes, after that, it was Louie and Mad Dog. You couldn't <laughs> see one without the other. So I'm like, that's beautiful. And I said, I can't believe that it was such a stigma and all the shit that you had to go through just for being gay. And I'm like, now that's absolutely nothing. That's like conservative now. That's like run of the mill. He's like, yeah. And you know something, what's interesting about, I, I thought about it and like, what's really interesting. What do you want to know about when you meet a wrestler? Like what's really interesting to you? What's interesting to me is what kind of person they are, what drives them, what's really in their head. Are they vacuous? Are they just there for the moment? Do they put thought and reflection into what they do? So Pat numerous times told me, he goes, you know, if I wasn't gay and we didn't have 15 kids and my dad didn't kick me out because I was gay and the wrestlers raised me and made me a man and I never would have been anything without the wrestlers. And it was just like Roddy Piper, like he had to leave at an early age and the wrestlers were his family. And that was like the theme that, you know, that I detected through the entire thing. So I brought up earlier the face masks. I saw you had one around your neck. Did he not have a face mask? <laughs> not at all. He didn't have one. In, he didn't have the courtesy fake one around the neck. He was just like, and me, I took it off for the selfie and I was like, fuck it. I'm like, if I'm going to get or give the Rona, let it be, you know, for a story. Let it be, let it be in a famous incident. Wrestling nobody kills Pat Patterson. What was he drinking? Just Bud Light, very pedestrian, real shame. No vodka. And, oh, so wow. here's how it, well, here's how I moved in. It's like usually, you know, this is another situation where I could have easily been cock-blocked out of the entire situation. The couple could have sat there forever. But right then, because it's a million and ten degrees in Florida, they're like, oh, we're going to move the dog into the shade, like right when I went over there. So then I thought, like, of one more thing to ask him. And I sat down on the stool that they just left. And now I'm in the sun. And I cross my legs and I go... What about blah, blah, blah. And I don't remember what I said. And he was still, and then the waitress came and I go, you ready for another? He's like, yeah. Then I knew he was on the hook. Then I knew it was on. Once they agree to the first drink, you're in business. That's what everybody knows, whether it comes to love or the celebrity 
thing. It's like you get him to say okay to the first drink, and then you're in. Second drink, then you know it's really on, and that also transpired. So it was glorious, and the whole time my mental Rolodex is going like, all right, what do the people want to know about Pat Patterson? Like, what, what do I want to know? Because he was never one of my guys, even though I know that he is a humongous historical figure in wrestling. But I always saw him briefly over the years. His promo skills were not all that. He was never on my list. But if you watch any of his matches, impeccable worker. Like, you know, I mean, you take it for granted what a good worker he is. And uh, always had respect for him and had different tiny little dealings with him over the years, but he was never on my radar like a guy. I don't know, but but it worked to my advantage because if you meet somebody that you hold in too much esteem, you can't even think straight. Like when I'm around Steve Kern, who's not the biggest star in the world, I can't even, because I know he has an attitude. I know he's a natural heel and I'm like, uh, he doesn't even care about us people. And like, you know, I don't want to bug him, but anyway, I digress. <laughs> so how did you leave there? I mean, how long were you with Pat? Well, let me just say this. It was, it was, a, it, it went, it went on and on. And I have certain, um, memories that I'm trying to evoke now. If you were me, what would you try to ask Pat Patterson after that? If I was you, not if I was after me. the early days. I mean, if you were you, if I, I'm Pat, you know, who's your accountant? <laughs> <laughs> What about the video? Well, I saw some attempt that you made to shoot a promo with him. Uh, it didn't seem like he had any idea what you were doing, but he at least gave it a an effort. Yeah, sorts. I mean, yeah. I don't think he got the concept, and uh, that's, a, that's a better left unsaid. But let me say this. Let me give the wrestling fans some good shit now. So I'm trying to bring up workers I like and everything, and he's like, so many guys left money on the table. And he talked about Superstar Graham, and I I did get him to agree with me. This is all going to segue into something really cool. And I go, I go, let me tell you something, man. I don't care. And I know I'm talking to Mr. I go, if they would have turned Superstar Graham in 78 instead of bringing Bob Backlund in, and even he popped, who hated He goes, that's right, motherfucker. Oh, by the way, like the parts that I'm forgetting are the classic parts of where he's like, you got me drinking, motherfucker. That's when I knew I had him, you know? <laughs> I'm like, all right, he's really on the hook now. So... Um, he's like, you better believe it. And I'm like, yeah, man, if they would have turned superstar in 78, I mean, come on. He goes, I go, you know, and I, 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 I don't know if I would include him, but as I said it, I did believe it. I go, you know, the only good backland matches I ever saw, cause I had to include him, but it's not untrue. I go, you Valentine Morocco Adonis. And he goes, you're exactly right. And he goes, you want to know something else? Backlund couldn't work. And wow. I'm like, wow, that's that satisfies a lot of arguments out there because I couldn't believe it. He I made it really? four times at the Garden. Four, the only guy who had four times against Bob Backlund at the Garden. Mm-hmm. I said, really? He, go, he goes, stay down, sell, you stupid ass. Like, he had no idea. <laughs> and, I, and I said, you know, as a fan, as a kid, I'm like, he's kind of klutzy. Like, he really doesn't move like a wrestler. He's like, yeah. So he goes, you know who could have been so much more? You talk about guys who left money on the table, Don Morocco. 
I'm like, yeah, he could have been a champion anywhere. He's like, yeah, but he didn't want it. He'd rather have fun. I'm like, oh, very cool. So then, um, I don't know how it came up. I, I was privy. I wanted some good shit by now. I mean, we're both on our third drink or whatever. And I'm like, I wanted some good shit by now. So I said, oh, how does this even come up? Jeez. He probably told some kind of blowjob story or something. Or maybe it was when I asked him a Ray Stevens story. And I go, um, you know, well, let's just pretend I asked him a Ray Stevens story. And he goes, one time we're in the room and I'm being a team player. And uh, so we're going to we're all going to fuck this one fat girl. That's a different story. And that's really as far as that story goes. I don't even know why I started down that road. But he's like, <laughs> and I'm getting he goes, one day I'm leaned up against the wall, getting a blowjob in the room. And Ray Steven goes, um, and by the way, when he said Ray Steven to me in person, I'm like, oh my God, it's fucking Pat Patterson, the partner of heart of uh, Ray Stevens. It wasn't real until he said Ray Steven in front of me. He goes, he goes, so I'm getting a blowjob leaned up against the wall, and Ray Steven goes, how's she doing? And he goes, I could give her some lessons. And everyone cracks up. And like, I was privy to a sex story that I can't release, but the aftermath of it was a friend of mine asked Harley race about it just as an incidental laugh. And I told Pat the story. He was aware of the original sex story, which is kind of a rare story in wrestling, but he was aware of it. And then after it, my friend called to ask Harley race about it, who knew about it and may or may not have participated in it, but I'm sure did not want to discuss it, especially with a virtual stranger. And he goes, Harley, uh, did you hear my question about so-and-so event? And after a pause, he goes, <laughs> Harley race goes, I heard your fucking question. <laughs> so I told that to Patterson and he cracked up <laughs> because he knew the story. He knew Harley race. So I got him going with that. And that's how he started telling me a couple of good sex stories. But what else would you, and I, and okay. What would you guess was his favorite match? His favorite match, uh, the slaughter match. Right. And I thought that would have been too obvious and I didn't even say it. And I said, what was your favorite match? And he goes, oh, you know, there were so many that no one even saw. He goes, but the slaughter, the boot camp match. I'm like, well, that's what I would have said, but I wanted it. I didn't even want to taint you with my opinion. I wanted to see what you would really say. But yeah. So we're all correct. So how long were you with him? How did it end? Okay, by now I'm drunk. It's like I'm five Jack and Cokes in. The sun's beating down on me all day. Before we get to the finish, let me just quickly go through my notes and make sure nothing tremendous is left out because, uh, oh, he used to, you know, in the early days when the gay thing was a whole big stigma, he uh, kind of made a name for himself by sticking sticking up for himself, like sticking to his guns and like, he's like, I'm gay. What are you going to do about it? And he's like, in the early day, I would go into the bathroom and I would have my soap and my towel and everything. And all these big guys are in there and they're like, Oh, you know, this guy's queer and all this stuff. But once they work with me, I get their respect. He goes in the early days, a guy's like O'Connor says would test you and stretch you and torture you. He goes, I let them. I go like, you had a choice. And he knows all that, but he's like, I let them, but then I got their respect. And by the way, when the waitress came by, I'm going to get to the original point. Don't worry. I haven't forgotten. When the waitress came by, I go, and keep them coming because I wanted to keep things moving, make sure there's no gaps. And I'm like, keep them coming. It's a special occasion. And he goes, for him. 
<laughs> Meaning me. He's right. <laughs> Meaning me. And um, okay, so in the sh- he goes, I'd go into the shower and all these big guys, you know, and I would purposely drop my soap and back my ass up into all these guys like, oh, excuse me, you know. But nobody had any prejudice once they worked for him. I mean, with him. Yeah, you don't hear too much about that. Most people accepted him. That's actually the name of his book, yeah. Accepted. I know that's a good that's a good name for a book. I I was I asked him out of concern because everyone always says like Andre was so depressed in his later years, in his declining years, and he certainly looked like he was pretty fahagged. But I said, how was Andre in his later years? He goes, he was fine. He was enjoying himself. I said, oh good. Oh, this is amazing. How did I forget this shit? I'm thinking, let's ask him something modern for all you guys. And um, I said, what about? I said, let me ask you something. Settle a long-standing bet. I talk about this guy on the air, among other people, Jericho. What is your opinion on Jericho? And I go, could he have hung with a Briscoe funk? Is he truly an all-time great? Because I gave him the whole synopsis. I'm like, because, you know, a lot of fans today put him in this top-tier category of all-time worker. And I'm saying to you, Pat Patterson, does this list include Ric Flair, Ray Stevens, Luthez, Buddy Rogers, Chris Jericho? And he didn't particularly answer that question, but he's like, yeah, absolutely. Chris Jericho would have fit in anywhere, anytime. I go, he could have hung with Jack Briscoe, Terry Funk. He goes, well, he was too young then. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> then it became me and my Aunt Carolyn having lunch at the Cheesecake Factory. I'm like, no, no, no. Jericho is the same age. It's the 70s or the 80s. I'm just talking about everything being equal. Um, And he's like, yeah, absolutely. He could have made it in any era. I'm like, okay. Well, I appreciate that. And he's like, you know what? I was there the night that I taught Chris Jericho how to be a heel. He had just gotten there, and he was in some small town. He was working some, some jabroni. And the jabroni was going over. And Chris Jericho... Um, was a heel and he was just brought in and he's like, I'm not doing the job for this guy. What's the matter with you? And he did the job for the guy and Pat Patterson said, Jericho's like, I can't believe you made me job to that guy. And Pat Patterson said, you're a heel. Did you hear that reaction when he beat you? And he goes, that's the night that it clicked for Chris Jericho how to be a heel. Interesting. Right. That was a good nugget. That's a, that's actually a pretty uh, insightful little tale there. I even know it's a tiny I, little tale. That's I, interesting. I told you there was some meat on this bone. I mean, Jesus, and I'm for me to even remember this is like you know a work of nature to begin with. Well, how did <laughs> how did the night wrap up? Again, I've asked you this several times. How long were you guys together on this day? How did it wrap okay. up? Did it wrap up with okay. this? Let's spend the night together. Or what happened? How did you guys wrap things up? <laughs> no. No, but like any other old-time worker, there was a wall up in the beginning, and you got to penetrate that wall. And I dropped so many names in such a quick succession that I brought him down like a panzer strike. Uh, he, he was he was powerless against all my name droppings and associations. But um, once you get him going, he's a very nice, jovial guy, and he goes, "You know, my attitude is, you're not here for a long time. I just want to enjoy myself." That's a good and attitude to have. Yeah, so that was his uh, major vibe, you know? And I I wanted to end it on a Costanza high note. I didn't want it to be like, okay. uh, uh, So 
when I was 93% done with him, probably 97% done, I'm like, I can't think of one more thing to ask. And I got up, paid the bill, gave him my phone number, and said, if you ever need me, and I, I wrote down Howard Baum, phone number, and wrestling guy, and he stared at it like it was hieroglyphics. So that phone call is never going to come, but that's my tale. All right. How long, once again, how long were you guys together? Good three, four hours, I guess. Wow, it's pretty good. Three ish. Yeah, it was good. It was an old school drinking, and he was lamenting how the young guys don't even party anymore. You got to find an old timer who'll even drink with you. Oh, and by the way, when we first sat down, he's like, you know, it just came up organically, and he's like, I don't watch any of that modern stuff. All these little guys jumping around, all this nonsense, and there's big guys out there. They can be using them. And the one guy that I didn't ask him about because I kind of sensed his reverence for him was Vince. Cause I didn't want to hear any pro Vince bullshit. Cause I asked him as a fan and for myself and for you guys, I'm like, how did you feel about the end of K Fabe? How did I forgot to tell you this? I almost ended this segment without even telling you this. I go, you're such an old timer. It was ingrained in you. And I was just a fan and I was offended when they turned George Steele from a killer into a cuddly bear selling toys and ice cream. He's like, I loved it. I thought it was great. I go, you didn't care about the end of kayfabe? He's like, no, I didn't care about any of that. I'm like, when they took Don Morocco, one of the world's greatest wrestlers, and made him do comedy with Fuji, he's like, that was great. I'm like, okay. So I didn't even ask him about Vince. The only thing he said about Vince, he volunteered himself early in the conversation. Um. Like he was telling me his credentials. He's like, the Royal Rumble. And I go, you invented that. He's like, damn straight I invented that. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it. So that was it. That's that's every kernel of knowledge that I can give you guys. That's what went down. Well, there it is, your liquid lunch with Pat Patterson. <laughs> Glad you shared that story here, Howard. <laughs> As we wrap things up and move on with the show, let the listeners know how they can stay in touch with you on Twitter, on Facebook, anything they need to know before we move on. Okay. Uh, Howard M., as in man, Baum, at uh, Howard M. Baum, just my name with an M in the middle. I can't remember. <laughs> on Twitter, whatever. And then Facebook, you can look me up, Howard Baum, B-A-U-M. Of course, look for the glorious Hardway Art, big, big things brewing. Uh, Hardway Art, no dash. And that's about the size of it. Well, there it is, another great segment with Howard. But moving on with the show, before we get to our next segment, we have a special word that was sent in by our friends, the Ruin Brothers. Of course, the Ruin Brothers, a great group on Ramsor Records. Go to ramsorrecords.com for more information about the many great acts that Dolph Ramsor and Ramsor Records works with. But first, this word from the Ruin Brothers. Hey. We're the Ruin Brothers, and you're listening to one of our favorite pods, the 605 Pod. We just wanted to let you know that we recently released three new songs from the award-winning Netflix original movie, The Heart of It. Go check out Break the Rules, Break the Rules End Credits, and Lonesome now on all streaming platforms. Most importantly, keep digging, keep loving the 605 Pod. Peace and love, Ruin Brothers. Well, there it is, the Ruin Brothers, once again, back on the 605 Super Podcast. As they mentioned, check out their latest songs heard in the original Netflix movie, The Half of It, available wherever you find your favorite music, but also actually available at tinyurl.com slash superpod. 
Amazon. That's our Amazon referral link. Same price as anything you would normally buy on Amazon, but we get a little bit of love and support from Jeff Bezos and company. And of course, once again, the Ruin Brothers on Ramsore Records. Go to ramsorerecords.com to support the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling of the music industry. But with that, let's move on to some classic audio. This was a big hit the last time we did it. Let's get some more classic audio from March 1969 in Hawaii, 50th State Big Time Wrestling. Once again, thanks to Bill Atkinson of 50EstateBigTimeWrestling.com for sending in this audio. A few things of note here. It skips around a little bit at the beginning, but I think it's important to play that so you can kind of hear what's happening. There's a lot of different voices. It's going to start with handsome Johnny Beren, that very deep voice of his. You're going to hear people like Professor Toru Tanaka, Tex McKenzie, and many others. And in fact, Lord Bleers is going to be explaining to Professor Tanaka and Tex McKenzie that the winner of the Texas death match between the two of them will face Gene Kaniski later in March for the North American title. Professor Tanaka gets upset, screams at Lord Bleers. We also hear from Ed Francis about facing Friday Allman in a boxing match. Wahoo McDaniel's on here talking about title shots and golf. Rocky Montero talks about his abdominal stretch, how it's better than Nick Bockwinkle's. He also insults Lord Bleers' dog and talks about his upcoming match with Bleers. Ripper Collins, who was very popular the last time we played some classic audio, about his $150 haircut and the upcoming match between Friday and Francis. You hear from Nick Bockwinkle, or Nicky Bockwinkle, as he was still known here, about his upcoming match with Curtis Ayukea, and lots more. Let's go to 50th State Big Time Wrestling, March 1st, 1969. Still out in the locker room, so we'll continue on with... You realize what's happened here? I've been disgraced. Absolutely disgraced. I'm sick of it all. From now on, belts mean nothing except the United States belts. I had to talk to my psychiatrist, and he told me that I'm suffering. That I've been too nice of a fellow. That I'm suffering because someone hasn't been injured. This proves it tonight. This vicious attack will not go unpunished. I guarantee you that Wednesday night at the Civic Auditorium, these Samoans, these two Samoans will pay for this. Eokita, this was his fault too. What am I going to do with Pauletti? Somebody's going to pay for this. I'm warning you, I'll tell you too, that we better finish off these Samoans or I'll attack him Wednesday at the Civic. Pauletti's been injured and attacked upon me in my own dressing room. This will not go unpunished, I can tell you. I'll have a conference with Curtis Alkaya, and I can tell you that discretion will be drawn to the wind. If the referee gets in my way, I'll knock him out. Anybody comes near me, I'll knock him out. Do you hear me? We'll drag these two men out on the King Street into the side of the building out there, and all the people can come out on the King Street and see it. Something's going to happen. A disgrace attacked in my own dressing room. This cannot be. This will not be. The Filipinos don't like this. I hope he's able to wrestle next Wednesday. I don't know just how he is now. Bye-bye. Well, you heard handsome Johnny Baran. We don't know how my via is. But we'll find out, I hope, before the end of the program. Well, sports fans, let's get... Where is it, Al-Qaeda? 
Kid Johnny, I... Who's going to pay for Valenti? I don't know. Where's the LK? I want to see him. Oh, he's somewhere around. He was in... This is his fault. A few minutes ago, he was in that room. He wrecked Valenti. Where's he at? to do that. Champion Gene Kanisky, in view of the fact that there was a no-return clause in the match between Tanaka and Kanisky in Honolulu last month, the championship committee suggests winner of the Texas death match meet the North American champion Gene Kanisky in Honolulu during the latter part of March. Please notify us your decision as soon as possible. Signed Jim Crockett, Vice President, National Wrestling Convention. Oh, Got it. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that's something else. Thanks. This is... There'll be no death match with me! The whole entire American match is with Kanichi! You understand? Because this is my match! I don't care! Because with me, I want to watch Kanichi! I want my return, we'll get my dad back! This man here is for a death match, I don't care! I don't want no death match with this man here! I want to get my stake back! That's my title! He's supposed to come here! He better get to me! You just stay away from me, you won't. You keep this man away from me. Before I make a death match for sure. But this man... Here at Block Arena on Sunday, April the 7th. You're not willing to go through with this? I don't know that death match until I get... ...auditorium in Maui between Wailuku and... I'm gonna match out of my hands. You know what I'm saying? You won't settle everything in there. Talk to me and Kanishi, that's all. This man, I'm all that's all. I'd like to talk to Ed Francis because it's addressed to Ed. He asked me to read it, and I'm sure he'll have something to say about it, Ed. Thanks. <laughs> don't, don't look so sad. Smula, of course, you well know. And at the same time, three of them had him. So thank you very much, Nick. Situations are reversed. Please feel free to help either, either of you gentlemen. You know, this seems to be this fellow's type of uh, tactics. This uh, was, a, was a second week in a row where... Uh, he says he accidentally fouled him in. Uh, maybe I'm wrong in thinking, but uh, well, I you know, this, it last night like again, like uh, Nick said, this man you know is an athlete, and he knows when he's gonna what he's doing as far as putting his arms and head and legs. Maybe he, uh, a sportsman like Nick, such a thing coming up would have probably grabbed my leg or grabbed an arm, but I think he raised his head deliberately for a foul. Well, yes, I do. Robert and I have been talking about that. We'll bring more later. Oh, I see. Okay. I just, to me, it went, when I described it on TV, which I saw again replayed last night, uh, it looked as if it was a jump over, and uh, but we're splitting hairs. Touche, right. What we were talking about today, Bobby and I were talking just before the show, and um, Jim Lathrop mentioned it to us, and that is seemingly sometimes when a man is taken over. Two rounds! I was denied at the Civic for its special Texas death match between Tanaka and McKenzie. Tanaka doesn't want any part of it. Well, that's up to Hassan's headache. They try and get that match. And they suggest the winner should meet Gene Kaniski, the North American heavyweight wrestling champion. Sometime in March in Hawaii. So there's a big, big, big 
Feather in the cap of gets the man outside the ring with the Prince Charming hairdo. We'll meet Tex McKenzie, the big six foot nine cowboy. Courtesy Alkea will meet Professor Tanaka. And that will be a Bobby Dazzler. Luke Graham, Rocky Montero, Mick Buckling, the Bobby Shane, Wahoo McDaniel, Ward Blears, all wrestling on Sunday. That's tomorrow night, begins at 7.30. Pearl Harbor, the public is invited. Sportsman Civic Auditorium next Wednesday night. I told you on, on the uh, outside in the other studio a few moments ago about this tremendous doubleheader. Let's get right to it now. Hawaiian Championship match, Curtis Ialkea, the champion, will defend his title against the former champion, Nicky Bockwinkle. This is a rematch. Curtis going in as the champion, Nicky Bockwinkle, the challenger. And the second half of the big double main event, here it is, a Pier 9 brawl with gloves, six two-minute rounds, Friday will meet Ed Francis, yes, they'll lace on the gloves, and they will meet at the Civic Auditorium on Wednesday night, six two-minute rounds, a Pier 9 brawl, anything goes, Friday will meet gentleman Ed Francis. Professor Tanaka takes on Bobby Shane, a big tag team thriller. Collins and Graham against McKenzie and McDaniel. Rocky Montero, Lord Blair's box office civic. 5381002. That's the number to call. Special operators are standing by this afternoon. The civic for your calls because this is a big one. Friday, lacing on the gloves. Anything goes against Ed Francis, and of course, Curtis and Nicky Buckland. Ed's uh, over here for a moment. I'd like him to step out here if he would. And Ed, what a mysterious day today. I don't think he could explain anything. Uh, Lord, I, I really don't care to be interviewed too much today. You know, I've been on the mainland for a while and uh, a few days. And uh, I have a very special reason for going in the ring with uh, Allman. A special reason? Yeah, I think uh, Collins knows what it is, but... Uh, uh, maybe I'll, I think the people will know what it is when they, when they get down to the Civic Auditorium this coming Wednesday. I, I really don't want to say any more today. Uh, I can't ask you about that, uh, Tanaka thing? Uh, <clears throat> well, I'd rather not right now. Okay, fine. Well, okay, Ed. Uh, right now, let's talk to, uh, Wahoo McDaniel. He's around. Wahoo, you your hands full today, right? Lord, if you wrestle one of these guys, you always have your hands full because you have to watch in front of you and back of you. Like the match the other night, I'm not crying. Uh, I think we had a chance to win the belts, but as the time went along, they kept running out and running out and getting away. Our chances narrowed some, but I'd like to have another chance, believe me. Well, that's the one-hour time limit. We didn't lose anyway. It was a draw, right? Well, a draw is like... Our one minute. Well, a draw to me is like... It's not wrestling, believe me. I, well, uh, you can't fight that clock unless it's the two-hour well, time limit you're either going for. Then it's more like it, right? Well, we had a hard match, and as you saw, Luke Graham was bleeding. We beat him and beat him, but we couldn't pin him. So uh, I'm not making any uh, uh, excuses. It's hard to pin guys sometimes when they're out of the ring, and I think they spend a lot of time out of the ring, but that's our fault for not keeping him in there. But like I said again, I got Tex McKenzie as my partner. The people here, he's a favorite here. He's a good wrestler. Maybe we can keep him in the ring this Wednesday night, and we can beat him. And that's what we're going out for, to beat Wahoo him. McDaniel. Not just to pin him, but physically beat him. That's why I'm here. I want to physically beat these guys. Just pinning them is nothing to me. I just want to beat them physically. And when I walk out in the ring, I want them to leave them laying there. This will give me self-satisfaction. 
because I was really cute high for that match last week and we didn't beat him, it hurt me because I deep down thought that Billy and I could take the belt, which we didn't lose, but we didn't win. And this is an Indian winning is winning and a draw is like losing to me. Well, I'll tell you one thing, Wahoo. Uh, you know, I know we've said this before on television and to the fans that, you know, champions, when you become a champion, and I know you have been a champion in many sports, uh, the champions, they don't have to win, they just don't have to lose. They can be on the defensive, so it's twice as hard for the challenger to win a title than it is for the the, uh, the champion to lose because you, you don't have to open up. You can just defend, block, defend, block, so it's a little well, hard. That's the same way it is in college. When I was in Oklahoma, you had to uh, challenge a guy you're going to wrestle every week, and if you wrestle him to a draw, he wrestled on the team, and you had to beat him to win. I, I agree with this, but sometimes I think... Uh, the stipulations are a little severe to the guys that are challenging, and you have to get the kind of match you want. And I think the only way to get a match with them is have two referees and maybe have some guys around the ring that you know that can keep them in, and then I think you have a fair chance to win the championship. Well, fine. Well, who you, you've been playing golf these days. Uh, where are you? You're in a big tournament right now. I've been playing out the Jack Ross at the Macaulay Inn. Uh, it's a big tournament. There's a lot of people there, and uh, I won't say how I shot, but... Uh, like I say, right now I'm not concentrating on golf. I'm concentrating on River Collins and Luke Graham because that's who I want. Well, I'd still like to congratulate you on doing well in that tournament, the Pro-Am. And uh, he's a great sportsman, football player, golfer, great wrestler. And another request, the kids would like to see the complete Indian outfit that you had the other night. Could you put it down and have it in color and yes, put it on and do a dance for us or something? I don't know about dancing today. Oh, you can Sorry. dance. He dances terrific. Okay, Wahoo, don't get these guys get you okay, excited, and you. Uh, congratulations on your match today. Wahoo McDaniel is going to bring this the greatest uh, display of uh, Indian regalia that I've ever seen. It's beautiful in color. It will look twice as nice, so we'll have it next week on Channel 9. Rocky Montero has a few words to say. Hope I can understand you tonight, uh, this afternoon, uh, Rocky. Well, I can't help it. You can't uh, see where Ed's on R&R. He's got a nice... Nice little bot coming up with a fearless man Friday. And I can see that I have none other than Lord Tally Hoagliers. Well, first, let me tell you, I saw you walking that skinny, old and decrepit dog of yours down the alleyway. I counted 14 ribs on him. He must be hungry. So, that means that you better hope you win, my boy. Because let me tell you, you you've been uh, building up this this ski-nosed buckwinkle about that little old abdominal stretch in my spumonian and all that good old minestrone soup with it. I'm going to bring it all out on you, pal, because I might just apply that big abdominal stretch on you and see that you retire Donnie Alloway walking that shabby old ski-nosed dog of yours. How you like that? You may have to put the stretch on my daughter because if you like that dog's a very treasured uh, family dog. And well, daughter... let me tell you, he's ready for the pound, same as you are to retire. I think I've said just enough. I think you uh, have. The people's choice is ready to go again. Oh, okay. Okay. And uh, I think if Buckman was listening, he can have my vote for that match with the uh, abdominal stretch. We'll get to you in a moment, Nick. Ripper Collins has been snickering in the background with Friday. And so... Uh, you know, it's a nice afternoon. There's no need 
for all this animosity and screaming and hollering and insulting people. How you like that hair? Isn't that fantastic? Those looks gush on this. Uh, don't worry about Cool Hand. Cool Hand will be around a long time. Just like the Indians said, they threw everything they had at us. <laughs> we still got the belt, right? Correct. $150. Well, let's talk about the What's mysterious... What's that? $150 what? My hairdo. That's a $150 haircut in style, if you don't mind. What do you call this? Well, uh, this is uh, Prince Charming, of course. You know, from Prince Valiant days. I'm very... Great. I want to talk about the mysterious Mr. Ed Francis, Mad Dog, Yellow Coward, Scar-Faced, Snake in the Grass. Out here, very mysterious. The sunglasses. I'm supposed to know why he wants to fight Friday. Nobody else does. I know why he wants to fight Friday. And I'll tell you why. Because he's afraid to pick up one of my contracts and put a boxing clause in it or a pier nine bra. Because he knows I black both his eyes and I brick his face all up. Every bone in his face I'd smash. That's what it happened. I mean, he'd really have to retire. You know, there's a lot of mystery about why he wants to wrestle so much lately. A lot of mystery. There's talk all over these islands in the mainland, Japan, Australia, and even Europe. I get letters. <laughs> a lot of mystery behind Ed Francis, Mad Dog, Scarface, Yellow Coward. Have you worried? They don't have me worried, no. They just a lot of mystery and a lot of secrecy behind all this. But he better make up his mind pretty soon whether he wants to wrestle or promote. <laughs> because, you know, Friday, he definitely has more guts than he does brains, you know. Friday had him down three times for the eight count at Block Arena. He had him down exactly about 15 times. He went down, 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 and he picks up Friday's contract and puts his signature for another one. What round do you say it was, too? <laughs> Friday had 42 fights in the Army, you know. 42 fights, he says the second round. Mad Dog is going down, he ain't going to get up. So what do you think about that? We predict round two, knockout for Fearless Friday, number 43. And I want to say this, Sunday, tomorrow night, Block Arena, right? The big cowboy, you know why? Because I won the Battle Royal there a couple of weeks ago, right? <laughs> Tex McKenzie was not in the Battle Royal, so you didn't beat him. Yeah, he wasn't there. He didn't show up. Oh, don't give me those excuses. Luke's got a hole in his head, but he was here today. The big Texan just knew that he better not monkey around with a fat man. So I want to tell you, big Tex, cowboy boots, vest, long legs and arms and all, boy. Tomorrow night, 300 plus, going to be waiting on you. You better be ready. Wednesday night is the Civic, a big tag team. <laughs> thing Friday's gonna knock that Ed Francis. He's gonna knock his block off. I'd like, let's see, which eye was it? I'd like this one over here. No, it was this one over here. One here. The one here. Oh, come on, Ripper. That's history now. The right one. Really puff that booger up. Black. Open him up good. The second round is going out, right? Second round. <laughs> you know, 
This in here is six months, and I'm scared of this one myself. <laughs> I like she wahoo with all them feathers doing the dance. The only place he dances is Don Holes when he gets tight. <laughs> I guess out in Iaia, Keith Bell, Barbara Mew, Cynthia Lehman. It's uh, 108 names. They think that my abdominal stretch is better than Rocky Montero's, and I hope that doesn't really bother him. It'd be nice if they all came down and we ever get that match going. And uh, Nick, I'm on your side today, 100%. After he talks about Carol Lee's dog. Your dog. Like that. Uh, you know, it kind of gets to you. I don't know. Anyway. We'll talk about dogs right now, unless we are. I haven't heard anything more. I, like I said, uh, love to have that match. Let's get this thing again, Nick. Would you tell the fans again? Well, basically, my, uh, as, far as, as far as I'm concerned, I would love to have a match for him where the only way the match could be won would be with an abdominal stretch, either his or mine. And that's the stipulations that's like, in the first match. falls wouldn't count. Uh, other submissions wouldn't count. They'd all be meaningless. The only way you could, the match would be won by having to give up from the abdominal stretch. Regardless of who had who's stretch on whom. You can start training on me right now. <laughs> I see. I'd like to talk, if I could, just for a second about the match I have coming up this Wednesday night with Curtis. Uh, I listened to the interviews last night, and I have to thank Curtis again. He was very, very good. Uh, what did he do? But he, in essence, got down on his knees and begged you to believe that he did not hit me with a foul blow. To me, if a man is guilty, then he'll want to make excuses and all sorts of things. But if he's not guilty, he will just take, and I mean, he doesn't have to make an excuse. The world is his witness. Curtis, I thank you, because you proved your point again. The second thing is, last night also, the fans that watched saw how Bobby Shane got hurt. Accidentally. You called the shot. It was an accident. But Curtis is an experienced football player. He came off the ropes for a tackle, and that puts him about so high. I've seen him run over quite a few people with a tackle. And Bobby Shane was plenty high. I wonder if Curtis could have just accidentally raised his head. It was an accident. The thing that really got me is that after Bobby was hurt, he wanted to go to the top rope and jump off, and I ask you for what? I threw the towel in, and I hope that the situation is ever reversed, as we said earlier that Bobby will do it for me or anybody else will do it for me. He was about to drop 300 pounds on the Bobby who was laying there. No way could defend himself and could do nothing more than cripple the man. That's true. All right, now he's showing his colors as far as I'm concerned. And I've never seen Curtis kind of get bugged on an interview. The guy's got a lot of cool. He really got that, that articulate savoir-faire. But last night I sensed on his interviews he was just a little irritated at the things I had said. And I don't think it's so much of what I said as what he knows. He is in the best shape of his life. I have never felt better than I feel now. And I've had people say, gee, Nick, you look good. Because I've been working out, I've been training, and I enjoy being in shape. And I've got the guy psyched out. Now, every professional athlete, any athlete, he wants to build himself up. He wants to believe, I'm ready for this. I'm going to do it. And you should do it. If you don't, you're kidding yourself. And, and you will become to believe it. But I know it. I feel it. And Curtis, he knows it. He knows that Wednesday night he's in trouble. And he knows, as I said last night, if I have to play the game his way to beat him, if I have to come down to his level to cheat, to hurt people, 
which I don't like to do. I like to beat them. I might like to beat them from pillar to post, but I don't like to really injure them. I will do it if that's the way he wants to play the game. Okay, Nick. Well, it's sort of ironic. You break the microphone here. I talk to you. All right, talk. You say uh, you wish uh, Tanaka come down now, eh? Look. You don't know how mad he's like Tanaka here. Right now, I am not trouble on this. That a bitch is that a beast. If I like that come on you, I feel the same way too. But I feel so mad he's like Tanaka better come down a little bit and not lose head. Can I read it again for you? Maybe oh, yeah, I understand. Possibly didn't understand. Maybe the fans did. Maybe they just... Didn't. I don't know, but this boy understands. So they call this a telegram. Okay, beginning it says that, Dear Ed, your request granted for a special Texas death match between Professor Tanaka and Tex McKenzie. Now, this has been asked for and it's been granted the permission because it's a particular type of... Match. You know something? These Alliance have caused much great happiness to Tanaka. I Concerning the new North American champion, Gene Kaniski. This is the man you want, right? In view of the fact that there was a no-return clause in the match between Tanaka and Kaniski in Honolulu last month, the championship committee suggests that the winner of the Texas death match meets Gene what? Kaniski. What? The Texas death match you talk about? The winner of the Texas death match, you yes, say? right. No, no. I'm supposed to be, have a return match with Kaniski. Forget the Texas death match. I don't want Texas death match. What is this man, this taxi man, he tried to interfere with my match with, uh, to make a taxi dead match? Why? Why did I say I must bring a taxi dead match inside the birds? You know, Kaniski, if he, like, he read my, my belt, if he, if he think that he win the North American championship belt, this man must be very proud of himself, because I know, Kanaka would never think I accept a winning like that, because he know, that's how he lose the match in Tampa, Florida. Professor, I'd like to talk to Tex McKenzie and I, by the you would stand over there. Just stand right here. All right, the boys, how do you speak, Tampa? Don't talk to me. Do you understand this? I understand it perfectly. He does not want to wrestle you, so he throws everything up in limbo. That might be in limbo. Wait a minute, Professor. He won't stay, Tex. You're wasting your time. I've explained it to him twice. But uh, it's up to Ed Francis, who's, maybe that's the reason he's wandering around the studio now. I'm not uh, particularly interested in Kaninsky. I have a little, he slapped me in the face or something, but the man that I oh, want to get is Kaninsky. I tell you what, when I tell you, when I decide when a second match comes, I decide to give him a chance, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I can tell you one thing. There's a very strong, very integrity. It's just loaded full of integrity, isn't he? 
I am very happy to welcome to the Super Podcast a man who in the last couple of years has put out two historical books covering important people, important events in the Pacific Northwest, and that is Steve Verrier. Steve, welcome to the Super Podcast. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. I want to talk to you about the most recent book you just put out, which of course is Gene Kaniski, Canadian Wrestling Legend. But before we get there, and before we even talk about the other book that you recently published, Professional Wrestling in the Pacific Northwest, give us a little bit of your background, and of course, your background with wrestling research. Well, I grew up in Ontario, in, in central Canada, and you know, I, w- I was a great fan as a kid. And that really hasn't left me since then. I, I grew up watching Kaniski wrestling from Vancouver every week. So my connection with the wrestling business is primarily as a fan. I got to know some wrestlers over the years. And, uh, you know, I got into writing in other areas first. And it wasn't until a few years ago, actually, when I moved to the Northwest, that I figured, you know, somebody really should write a history of the uh, wrestling industry here. It hadn't been done. You know, I got into that. I met a lot more people as I researched that book. I came to realize Gene Kaniski was a lot more than I'd realized when I was growing up. So just a a lot of interest came together, the wrestling, the writing, you know, the history. You know, this is uh, work I've really enjoyed over the last few years. I've loved working on these two books. Well, let's talk about your first book a little bit, Professional Wrestling in the Pacific Northwest. How did you begin the process of researching that book? Obviously, it's a very long and storied history up there, but a lot of the history isn't widely known. And of course, the older history is harder to come by. How did you begin the process of researching for professional wrestling in the Pacific Northwest? Well, I I had a general sense, you know, going back decades uh, to when I was a kid. I mean, I I grew up watching Vancouver wrestling. I read what I could in those days. I I knew about the Portland Territory. So, you know, I had a a general fan's sense of, of what the history was. But, you know, when I got into the Northwest, I just seemed to see signs from talking to wrestlers, going to independent shows, whatever it might be. You know, I saw signs that there was really a, a rich history that had to be recorded. So I started contacting people like Vance Nevada and uh, Matt Farmer, Mike Rogers and others. And just, you know, little by little, I just started reading everything I could, talking to people I could talk to who knew more than I did. And little by little, I accumulated a lot of notes, started getting a sense of how this story ought to be told from the very first card in Portland in 1883 to the present, you know, that being the late uh, part of 2017 when the book came out. So it was just a matter of building on the little bits that I knew, filling in the gaps, talking to people who were so well-versed and and really focusing on trying to tell the story of that great history. Uh, It just had to be done, and uh, I wanted to be the person to do it at that time. Let's go back a step to your childhood. Vancouver, what was your first memory of wrestling, and who were some of the wrestlers that you became a fan of early on? Yeah, um, well, you know, every Saturday night I watched All-Star Wrestling on a TV station from Kitchener, Ontario. It was several weeks late as, you know, TV broadcasts out of the area tended to be at that time. But certainly, we're talking late 60s. And in fact, just, I would say, around the end of Kaniski's NWA title run. So I loved watching him when he was in Vancouver. I mean, he was the mainstay there for for so many years. But, you know, I, I also saw a lot of other special wrestlers who really hit it big in that region. I mean, Dutch Savage was just a very memorable big man who worked so well. Uh, I remember John Tolis, 
You know, there were others of that era. There was uh, Stephen Little Bear, who was played by um, Vince Bryant. Um, you know, it, it's around that time that I, I took those native Canadian, Native American wrestlers for what they were supposed to be. I mean, before learning, so many of them were Italian or something else, but I thought he played <laughs> his right. role very well. Um, loved watching John Quinn, uh, another big guy who, you know, I think could have hit it big anywhere, but, you know, chose to base most of his activity in the Pacific Northwest. There are just so many guys. Uh, Ivan Koloff was in Vancouver for a time. Uh, his first wife, I believe, was, was from British Columbia, so he spent time there. Just a, a lot of guys. I mean, I missed out on some of the older wrestlers like Whipper Billy Watson. I never saw him except in later years, you know, on YouTube or, or what have you. But, you know, the show so often seemed to center on Gene Kaniski. I loved watching him when I was growing up. I had no idea that he was so much more than what I saw. I mean, that vision came a lot later, but really, he seemed to be the centerpiece of the promotion, even you know, back to my childhood, and I, and I really loved to watch him, probably more than anybody else there. When you were working on the first book, when you were working on researching it and putting it together, did you already have in mind the idea of doing something on Gene Kaniski, or did it come up while researching that book? No, I didn't plan to do it. I mean, I, I didn't consider myself a wrestling writer foremost. I write. I was working on a wrestling book. I wanted to tell that story. But no, I, it, it just, you know, came up piece by piece. You know, I had no idea that he was a co-owner of that Vancouver promotion. I had no idea he was as big in St. Louis or Japan as he was in, you know, in Western Canada. Uh, just, you know, little bits. Uh, I had no idea certainly what an effect he had on so many people. But as, as I talked to people about him, you know, this whole picture came together. So it was, I would say, completely through working on that first book that I came to realize I, I wanted to do a biography on Gene Kaniski. I'm curious, considering his stature in Canada, even though you did not get to see Whipper Billy Watson, was that a name in the air when you were growing up watching wrestling? Yes. But, um, you know, though I lived in Ontario, uh, we didn't get wrestling from Toronto on television. You know, we were not that far away. It was about a three-hour drive. But we got Vancouver wrestling, uh, Detroit. We got Calgary. We got wrestling from a number of centers. But I did not grow up watching Toronto wrestling. I read the Toronto newspapers sometimes. I would see those advertisements in the paper, you know, touting the upcoming wrestling cards. And I knew that Whipper Billy Watson was a headliner there. But it came a little later, I think, that I realized just, you know, what a presence he was in Toronto over so many years. I mean, uh, he was the guy. I didn't know that uh, he had a rivalry with Kaniski because at that time I didn't know Kaniski had also been a, a main eventer in Toronto. So, yeah, Watson was a name I knew, but, you know, that name didn't mean a lot to me until until later years. For those who have not seen Vancouver Wrestling Television, I'm going to guess that's the majority of people out there, but just because we're talking about a time where tapes weren't really kept and there isn't very much footage. Describe the wrestling television show that you grew up watching. Describe the commentator and what was the format of the show? What was the show like? It was probably the most sedate wrestling show on the planet, if not one of them. <laughs> you know, it, it was held in a little studio in Burnaby, British Columbia. Visually, it looked a little bit like the Memphis studio. I mean, it was about the same size, about the same number of seats. But what went on in the ring uh, was completely different. You know, I, I've talked to wrestlers who worked Vancouver and 
places like Portland, San Francisco. I mean, Portland and San Francisco were angle-driven. Um, you know, there was a, a more violent style in the ring. In Vancouver, how should I put it? Uh, it, it was a nice, quiet show to watch. Uh, you did not see blood. You, you saw, you know, a, a thumb in the throat was a, a dirty move. I mean, you, you did not see some of the over-the-top kind of action you saw in other promotions. So, you know, it was a very quiet studio show, and there didn't seem to be a lot driving one program toward the next, to the next, to the next. I mean, obviously, they were building up the following Monday night's matches in Vancouver, but, you know, from that point... It was as though, okay, that's done. Let's introduce something else for the next week. So, you know, it did not have this same week-to-week dynamic that a lot of shows tended to have, at least a lot of the successful ones. So it was just a studio show with three matches every week. They were usually squash-type matches or not all that competitive since the idea was to get people to the arena on Mondays. And then at the end, as they did in Portland, they, they would have a duration match, meaning if the two earlier matches went long, there might be a two-minute time limit or a three-minute time limit for that last match. So that was just about uh, you know the format every single week I watched Vancouver Wrestling. Once in a while, they would have a, a more competitive match on TV, even maybe once a year. You know, they might have a two-out-of-three-fall match, but for the most part, it was three... Mm, not very competitive matches, some fairly quiet interviews talking about Monday's uh, upcoming matches, that duration match. Once in a while, something would happen to drive interest, to startle the fans a bit. But for the most part, it was a very, very sedate show. You know, I, I don't know how kids in this day and age would take to that. But when I was a kid, you know, I, I loved watching it on Saturday nights. And, uh, you know, it, it did the job for me. Uh, the announcer, by the way, was named Ron Morier, and um, some of the wrestlers are a little bit critical in that he maybe didn't sell things as he could have, or maybe he was not a wrestling genius, but people watching Vancouver Wrestling really took to him. I mean, sometimes you've got a commentator who's not going to do the job anywhere else, but for that particular audience, he's just right. I think we can think of maybe Lance Russell in Memphis, for example, somebody who's just a perfect fit for that TV show. Well, Ron Moria was like that. He had a great rapport with Gene Kaniski, and people loved to watch him, and he's really one of the memorable characters of that uh, era of Vancouver wrestling as well. Uh, he just, he was a perfect fit for the show. To go to Gene Kaniski, so many people are familiar with him as a wrestler, but let's talk a little bit about him as a person. Let's talk a little bit about him before he got into wrestling. One of the things that you do so well in the book, Gene Kaniski, Canadian wrestling legend, is talk about his family life and talk about His mother and his father, and his father, although a rather slight man, was also a relatively tough man. Talk to us a little bit about Gene Kaniski's home life growing up. Man, what a family. I knew nothing of his family. People in Alberta were aware of certain members of his family. His brother and his mother were public figures. But, you know, coming from Ontario, I I knew nothing. So as I researched the book, I mean, the the first thing I did when I, uh, you know, after deciding to write a book on Kaniski was call the village office of the town in which he grew up. And, you know, from that point, I would be directed to this person, that person. I made a visit there. I went to Gene's childhood home. I got to talk to people who knew him when he was, you know, still wetting his pants. 
And uh, <laughs> just from those conversations, I, I came to realize, you know, what an amazing family he came from. His parents immigrated separately to what became Alberta, Canada in the early 1900s. I mean, they made the trip at about that time from Poland. Uh, it was a very difficult journey. Gene's father was a very young man at that time. He came with his brother. He lost track of his brother. Uh, they didn't meet again. Um, he was a rough and tumble, smaller fella, tough as nails. Uh, but, you know, he had a, a goal of adapting to that difficult life in a new province in Canada. You know, he worked his tail off. Uh, just an amazing fellow. Jean's mother was a little younger when she came to Alberta. She came with her family. She had very little chance to be educated in Alberta. She studied on her own. You know, while raising a family, she got into politics and she eventually became a counselor in Edmonton. It just, you know, their, their parents, uh, Jean's parents were driven. Uh, they had six children. Jean was the youngest. But every one of those children, by all accounts, was uh, just, a, you know, a very distinct personality, driven to do what, you know, each one of them did. Gene uh, had a brother who was into politics, who was a TV weatherman. You know, the family would fight, the family would yell, the family, you know, some of the kids would steal to help the family survive. You know, it's just an amazing story, and I think a great reflection of what it was like to grow up in Alberta, Canada, in a small town. During the Depression, the family moved to Edmonton after that. You know, Gene got into sports and started to become, uh, I think, the Gene Kaniski we have in mind. But the family had a very, very difficult time. And I think all of those challenges played a great, great part in uh, helping Gene Kaniski become what he would be. And his parents, I think, were a major factor as well in, you know, producing that amazing fellow. One of the interesting things is, besides his amateur wrestling background, his football background, and it's a fascinating picture to see in the book, and you got some really amazing photos from the Kaniski family in the book, but there's a photo of him playing football with Joe Blanchard and Wilbur Snyder in the same photo, and it's amazing to think how many people, that isn't the only example, but how many guys who became major stars and territory owners in professional wrestling we're playing football either with each other or against each other at this period of time. Yeah, you know, I, I knew nothing about, well, I knew Wilbur Snyder from watching Indianapolis wrestling when I was very young. But, uh, you know, I didn't know he was Gene's friend. Uh, in fact, I didn't even know that Wilbur was an owner uh, in Indianapolis. Yeah. Blanchard, of course, in Texas. Yeah, it, it is pretty amazing. Um, you know, it's as though they made their connections, made their plans, almost carved out certain territories. Who knows? But yeah, I love that era. I love those stories. And I did not know that Blanchard had played for the Eskimos. Um, you know, Fritz von Erich had spent time in uh, Alberta. There's some question of whether he tried out for the Eskimos. But uh, you know, a lot of these guys came together at that time, you know, the 1950s in Alberta, and as you say, became uh, owners of wrestling companies. Amazing. So many of us are used to seeing pictures of Gene Kaniski wearing his jacket that says Canada right across the front. Of course, he was Canada's greatest athlete. That's why it's a little weird when you see a photo all of a sudden in the book of him wearing Arizona across the front on his jacket. Talk a little bit about Gene in Arizona, because that does play a big part in his career. And also, what about Gene's relationship with promoter Rod Fenton? Yeah, again, that was something that was new to me as I started researching Gene Kaniski's life. Yeah. I knew nothing about his university years. I would have figured had he gone, it would have been in Alberta, but no, he she played a season for the Edmonton Eskimos in 1949. 
following that, he was offered a scholarship to attend the University of Arizona with a good friend of his who became a parliamentarian in Canada. Well, they went down there. Gene played football at the university for two years. He did very, very well. But on the side, he was an usher and a bit of a bouncer at the wrestling matches in Tucson. And amazingly enough, the promoter there was a man named Rod Fenton, as you mentioned. And, and Fenton was an Alberta native as well. He knew the Kaniski family in Alberta. So Gene, you know, befriended Rod Fenton, or you could say the other way around. And Fenton was one of the guys who really played a major role in getting Gene Kaniski into wrestling. The Tucson promotion was part of that West Texas loop. You know, they traveled through New Mexico into Arizona in the 50s. And, you know, Kaniski got a chance to work out with a lot of great wrestlers, uh, especially Dory Funk Sr. There were some others, but Dory Funk uh, was just a pivotal guy also in preparing Gene Kaniski to be a pro wrestler. But yeah, Kaniski's um, real interest in professional wrestling, I think we can say, did not happen in Alberta when he was a young fellow, but it happened when he was a university student in Arizona, amazingly, with that promoter from Alberta. But uh, Gene ended up making his debut in Arizona. He did come back to play for the Edmonton Eskimos for a couple of more seasons, but he really started to make his mark as a wrestler in Tucson, Arizona. Well, he was training while he was attending university, and then when he dropped out during his sophomore year, he began wrestling and did very, very well. And uh, I was very surprised to learn about how those years in Tucson really helped shape his career. And as you say, for quite a while afterward, he would wear an Arizona Wildcat jacket, you know, which uh, I don't think is still in the family, but just an amazing part of his uh, his life's journey. He was used relatively well from the beginning of his career on, and only a few years after he got going, he really started to take off. Where do you think Gene really started to take off? Would you say Southern California? Would you say Buffalo? Well, um, he was near the top of the card in Southern California you know, in the mid-1950s. I, I think he got a lot of confidence as a wrestler working with Lord Blairs there. You know, he did challenge for the world title. So I think he really started making a major mark there. From there, you know, he went to Texas um, for a time before he went to Buffalo and Toronto. Uh, he was a main eventer in Texas back in 56. You know, he was he was still rising. I, I, I think we could say it was probably around the time he arrived in Buffalo and Toronto in late 56, early 57, that anybody would have had to consider him one of the top wrestlers in the world. From there, he started traveling to other territories, including uh, Western Canada. So I would say probably, as you suggest, yeah, late 56, early 57. By the time he settled in Buffalo, I mean, the family lived there for, for a few years. And around Ontario, that probably is when he became a major figure, especially given the fact that he was wrestling at times on the CBC. He became a celebrity around Canada, especially in the Toronto area. But definitely by 56, 57, he was a top guy everywhere. Longtime fans in Dallas, Texas will certainly remember Gene Kaniski and Fritz von Erich. It was something that was a big deal. It was something that was a Texas stadium. It was a big match when Gene would come into town to defend the NWA title against Fritz von Erich. But what I learned in this book, and I think a lot of people will be interested to learn, is how far back their relationship went, but also how strong the relationship was. Talk a little bit about the relationship between the Kaniskis and the von Erichs, and specifically 
how it got so strong in Buffalo? Yeah, it, it's not absolutely clear whether they met in Alberta before the Buffalo years. It's very likely. I mean, when Gene was playing for the Eskimos, Fritz von Erich seemed to be in and out of Calgary, not so much to wrestle professionally, but for whatever it might have been, he might have been trying out for pro football there. It's, it's very likely they met in Alberta in any case in about 1952-53 prior to their coming together in Buffalo in 56-57. But by the time they were both wrestling in Buffalo and Toronto, I mean, they were just best of friends. Uh, Fritz sadly lost uh, a young son and he you know, was very thankful to Gene Kaniski for the support he gave at that time. I mean, clearly they were best of friends, but amazingly, they, they never really lost that friendship. I mean, they were ring rivals for sure, uh, but best of friends all the while transcended wrestling. I mean, the, the families were friends, you know, Doris Von Erich, Marion Kaniski, Gene's wife, they were just very tight-knit. Um, Kelly Kaniski also, you know, says good things about the Von Erich family. Gene and Fritz kept in close touch over the years, and Gene didn't do that with a lot of friends from the wrestling business after he retired. But they stayed tight, absolutely. They had a great respect for each other. And um, when Fritz was uh, nearing the end in the 1990s, Gene made one last trip to Texas to spend some time with his friend, Clearly, uh, Fritz von Erich was uh, one of Gene Kaniski's closest friends, and that went back probably to Alberta, but at the very latest, back to those uh, Buffalo-Toronto years. Just friends for life, you could say. Something that you feature in the book is a letter that Gene and Marion got from Fritz and Doris after the passing of Jackie, thanking them so profusely for being there for them. And I want to ask you about that and the various photos that you have in this book that have never really been seen before outside of the family. How did you get access to the Kaniski family archive of photos and documents? And what was that process like? Yeah, I, I was in touch with, you know, Kelly and Nick throughout the project, but they were not the ones in possession of those photos. In fact, a good friend of Gene's uh, living in Vancouver, a businessman named uh, Maury Keith, who has a car dealership in Vancouver, had Gene's old scrapbooks, uh, his photos, you know, just a, a whole lot of uh, Gene Kaniski memorabilia. And I was not aware of that until I called Maury. I mean, I knew that he was a friend of Gene's and I was calling everybody I could. And when I got to him, he said, by the way, you know, I've got uh, a lot of Gene's correspondence clippings and so on. So, well, you know, I definitely had to make the trip there. I went through the scrapbooks. I went through everything. Maury and um, somebody on his staff named Jody Cobden were very helpful in providing me electronic copies of what they could. But I, I, I'm not sure whether Nick and Kelly were completely aware of what Maury had, um, but once I got in touch with Maury, I, I certainly had access to some great stuff. I just went up there and I took a look at everything. I looked at the back. I tried to figure out, you know, what this name refers to or, you know, tried to get the date straight, whatever. But, but it was from the time I got in touch with Gene's friend Maury that I had access to most of what I chose to put in the book. The 1960s, everything's leading up to his NWA title run. He has an AWA title run, becomes a big star in Minnesota with Vern Gagne. He goes to the Worldwide Wrestling Federation early on and becomes a big star there. 
He's in St. Louis. He becomes a big star there. All roads lead to him being the final man to defeat Luthez for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. The life of a champion isn't easy. Lots of travel, matches every single night. What was it like for Gene? Did he enjoy being the NWA champion? Well, I, I think he did at first. I mean, that's every wrestler's goal, every serious wrestler's goal. He, you know, he was a good friend of Sam Muchnick's. He did not want to let him down. He wanted to represent the National Wrestling Alliance as well as he could. He took the role of champion very seriously. I think he enjoyed the media work. Uh, you know, he said in later years that he didn't like the travel, but who does? I'm sure he enjoyed himself once he got where he was going. So, you know, I think he was driven to be the next in the line of great champions, people like Fez, Pat O'Connor, and, and so on. He, he was serious about that, and I think, he, I think he enjoyed the challenge. But, you know, those champions did tend to get worn out a little bit. Uh, he didn't get home a lot. Gene was living in St. Louis area for the first couple of years of his title reign. Kelly says he would see his dad just, you know, a few times a year briefly. So... You know, I, I think after a time has happened with other champions before Gene Kaniski, you know, you get a little tired of it. And in Gene's case, he certainly was attentive, I think, to the needs of his sons. Uh, Kelly and Nick were, were still young when Gene was the champion, but Gene, I think, was ready to settle down. And when the opportunity to buy into the Vancouver promotion came up when Gene was still NWA champion, I think, really, he, he wanted to put down roots. He loved living around St. Louis. I mean, he was uh, really a celebrity there and had every opportunity. But, you know, I, I think he was driven back to Western Canada. He had that opportunity in Vancouver during the last year of his NWA title reign. He was actually partly running the promotion in Vancouver. So certainly after a couple of years as NWA champion and when he started, you know, having those responsibilities in Vancouver, you know, he, he was ready to get out. Uh, he'd been champion two years at that point. He spent another year as champion. So uh, he loved the challenge at first, but like a lot of guys, it got old. And I think after a couple of years, he was more than willing to, to step aside. And he certainly let the promoters know that and uh, gave him time to look for the next guy. One of the things you do so well in the book is go into detail about Gene's family life while weighing that against his actual professional career. And obviously, and you go into detail and you lay it out in the book, Marion Kaniski was the love of his life. And unfortunately, she met a tragic end. She took her own life. It's a story that I guess a lot of wrestling fans probably don't know. How much did that weigh on Gene? How much did that change Gene? And what was the impact of his wife's suicide on the Kaniski family? As you say, Gene loved his wife dearly. But um, we, we can say at some level, at least, he, he loved women in general. And uh, he was not alone as a wrestler from that era in, in that regard. So. You know, when he was away on the road, um, you know, he w was not always the most faithful husband, shall we say. Loved his wife, but uh, mm, <laughs> we'll just say he was active. He came to regret that, I think, in later years based on what people told me. I mean, he realized that, well, he did make things difficult on his wife who was home raising the boys. So... You know, when he lost Marion, well, and in fact, they divorced first. They divorced in, in 1973. She took her life uh, in 1976. Uh, so 
Eugene was definitely regretful. He loved her. I don't know whether he thought there was any chance they would get together again. I, I have no idea about that. But certainly he, you know, he, he was very, very regretful. But to his credit, uh, he took the job of raising his sons very seriously. You know, Marion left the family. Jean and Marion got divorced, and Jean was absolutely devoted to taking care of Nick and Kelly. I mean, he cooked for them, he cleaned, he he did what he had to do. He was a very devoted parent. Uh, he put his sons first, but you know, I, I think until the end of his days, he never fully recovered from the loss of Marion, and then maybe feelings that he could have behaved differently, and and maybe things would have turned out well. But as it was. He always spoke well of Marion Kaniski. You know, he never married again. I don't think he was ever serious about anybody again. But um, clearly, she was the love of his life, and uh, I, I don't think he ever fully recovered. There was, you know, always a bit of a pall, I think, on the rest of his life. He, he was still the sociable guy that people knew and loved. But yeah, again, I don't think he ever got over the loss of his wife. And as far as Nick and Kelly are concerned... You know, it, it, it's it's just a sad story. I mean, they both turned out very, very well. They are gentlemen, and you can't say that about some wrestlers who leave the business. Uh, they've adapted very well to life afterward. But again, they lost their mother at an early age. Kelly was just a freshman at West Texas when he got the news that his mother had passed away. And, you know, we we haven't talked in great detail about how difficult that was, but it is clear that, I mean, there was a big hole in the family from that time going forward. And Nick and Kelly still speak very fondly of their mother. It just is a huge loss. And, uh, you know, something I didn't really enjoy asking people about when I was uh, writing the book, but I would say Marion Kaniski too impacted a lot of other people. I mean, the other wrestlers seemed to love her. And, and when she passed away, it really was gut-wrenching for a lot of people. But, of course, nobody more than Jean. You mentioned West Texas, and earlier you mentioned Dory Funk Sr. Of course, Dory Funk Sr. would play a big role in Gene Kaniski's career. He would be there for him. And years later, Terry and Dory would be there for his kids. And, of course, Kelly was in West Texas State. I didn't realize until I read your book that Kelly's roommates, he had two roommates in college. One was Tully Blanchard. And then after Tully Blanchard, it was Barry Windham, which is uh -huh. a very interesting little tidbit there. But talk about the relationship between the Funk family and the Kaniski family, because obviously it spans a couple of generations. Absolutely. Yeah. As far as Kelly goes, you know, he was studying at West Texas uh, in the Amarillo area. The Funks lived nearby. As you say, there was that family history. But Kelly says from the time he arrived in West Texas, I mean, the Funks were there for him in every way possible. Kelly hung around the Funk home. He was uh, just a friend of the family. Terry Funk has spoken very well of Kelly. And, and that goes back to Gene's relationship with Dory Sr. You know, certainly Gene felt uh, very grateful for what Dory had done for him in, in helping him get up to such a good start in wrestling. And, and then later on, Gene, you know, tried to help Dory along as he could. Dory was based in Vancouver for a time. They had a good relationship, of course. There was the title switch in Florida in 1969 from Gene to Dory. 
just you know the, the the families had had a long history, all of it good, and that carried over to the time when Kelly arrived in Texas. I mean, he was like an honorary member of the Funk family, I think. And and on the podcast that I listened to today with Kelly Kaniski, you know, he really played that up. I mean, he appreciated all the Funks did for him in Texas, and you know, it, it, it was just a very good relationship in wrestling and beyond that. I mean, Kelly was thankful that the Funks were great supporters of his and just speak so well of that family and Terry in particular. They even got him in-state tuition instead of out-of-state tuition. Yeah, that's the story Kelly told me. Yeah, Kelly was expecting a full-ride scholarship when he went down to the Amarillo area. That fell through, but the Funks came and they helped arrange for Kelly to get in-state tuition to, to make things a little easier for him. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about Gene, the promoter. You mentioned that he bought into the Vancouver Territory. Of course, the partners he would have at the beginning were certainly not the partners he would have at the very end. Let's talk about that. Who were his partners in Vancouver? And talk about Gene, the promoter. Well, um, you know, when he bought into the promotion in 68, his partners were Sandor Kovacs, and Don Owen, uh, who was running Portland at the time. You know, Owen was not up in Vancouver all that much, but, uh, you know, Gene valued his insights, his experience. You know, I, that's the era in which I started watching All-Star Wrestling. Gene was on the road a lot, but, you know, I've talked to wrestlers who mentioned the role he had in laying out their matches, at least making suggestions to them. You know, as a promoter, he liked to get in the ring and test a lot of the younger guys who came into the territory. I don't think he had visions of running the biggest promotion in the world or even in Canada, but, you know, he, he did very well. He brought in a lot of big names, and, you know, it was a fun promotion to watch if you were not looking for blood and gore and, and all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, I, I think he had a, a good business sense. He did not overextend himself, and the promotion did well when he was one of the owners. Uh, it was syndicated, you know, All-Star Wrestling was syndicated across much of Canada. Kaniski was one of the showpieces. It was doing very well. I, I don't know how well it would have done if Kaniski had simply promoted and not wrestled, but, you know, he came as the full package, and, you know, I, I think he was one of the, the really good promoters in Canada, certainly, during that era. Ten years later, nine years later, Sandor Kovacs decided it was time to step aside, and he sold his share of the promotion to Al Tomko from Winnipeg. Tomko had been uh, an AWA promoter there for a number of years, and you know, from the time Tomko arrived in Vancouver, he and Kaniski just did not get along that well. Kaniski had wrestled in Vancouver over a lot of years. He'd worked for Tomko there, but you know, when they actually became business partners, it was not a good situation. They had very different visions. Kaniski had that old school mentality, you know, the rough, tough matches, not too much glitz. And, and Tomko, I think, was a little more experimental. Uh, so, you know, it was just a, a matter of a few years before Owen and uh, Kaniski left the promotion. Tomko was on his own. So, you know, quite a radical change, I think you could say there was for Kaniski from the late 60s to the late 70s and early 80s. But 
back in the early days with uh, Koufax and Don Owen. I, I think he was very happy to be running the promotion in Vancouver. He was on the road a lot, but he loved to be home, I think, more than anything. And he was a, just a steady presence in Vancouver. And he influenced, I think, a lot of the wrestlers who came by. I talked to a lot of them who enjoyed working out with Gene Kaniski, who respected him. And, and in many cases, came to Vancouver simply because he was there. And you know, I, I haven't heard many bad things said about him as a promoter, so I think he was viewed to have done a, a pretty good job overall. Do you think Gene stayed in the ring too long? Well, <laughs> I've talked to a number of wrestlers who thought he did. Um, he was, you know, still holding the championship at times in Vancouver until he was near 50. Um, you know, he's certainly not the only owner of a wrestling company to have done that. Uh, he was a guy who looked all of his years for sure, maybe more. So, you know, still the people in Vancouver loved him, but maybe he was a little bit slow to move aside and, and to make room for some of the younger guys, guys like Jake Roberts. So, you know, I, I think Kaniski probably earned the right to stay in the ring as long as he did, but you know, some of the younger wrestlers, I think, thought that he did not really give them a chance to show what they could do. In the last time Kaniski got in the ring, actually, he was he was in his 60s. I think he was 63. He did a few matches in Winnipeg for Tony Candelo. By that time, he was, you know, not a serious wrestler in terms of, you know, contending for championships. People were glad to see him one last time. But uh, as far as Vancouver, St. Louis are concerned... Yeah, he was wrestling semi-regularly into his 50s. But, he, you know, he was still pleasing fans, drawing decent crowds. Just some of the wrestlers who wanted their turn in the spotlight thought maybe he stuck around too long. So I, I guess I'm on the fence there. But I, I still enjoyed watching him even when he was over 50 years old. And there's even an anecdote in the book where Jake Roberts held that against, I believe it was Kelly Kaniski, later on where he wouldn't shake his hand in the locker room. Yeah, um, certainly Jake had strong feelings. Jake was one of those wrestlers I tried and tried and tried to get hold of uh, and could not. You know, I, I don't know what he would say about that uh, situation now. But yeah, when Kelly was wrestling in the Carolinas uh, at the same time Jake was, Kelly, who you know, liked to introduce himself to everybody and to shake hands, apparently got a bad reaction from Jake. And I think we can assume it was because of uh, Jake's displeasure over how he was treated in Vancouver, you know, with Gene beating him two straight falls after Jake had been built up to the main events there. Well, considering it's Jake, maybe Kelly should be happy he didn't get to shake his hand. He probably would have needed a tetanus shot right afterwards. But, Steve, what was retirement like for Gene Kaniski? What did he do with his time, and how much involvement did he have with wrestling after he retired? He was not all that involved. I mean, yeah, we, we could probably say he retired at various times because he did occasionally get in the ring during his later years. During the 1980s, he would do shots in St. Louis. Um, you know, he did some Legends-type events. He would get in the ring on occasion. But I think for serious purposes, we could say he retired not too far into the 80s, you know, maybe 82, 83. After that, it was just at most a few matches per year. So from that time, you know, he loved being home in Blaine, Washington more than anything. And Amazing. Canada's greatest athlete spent half his year living on the U.S. side of the border. He was not <laughs> living in British Columbia. 
but in this pretty little border town called Blaine, just you know across uh, across the border from Vancouver. So he he loved it, uh, and people in town loved him. Um, he was one of the social darlings, I think we could say, in Blaine, Washington. He would help out at friends' bars. His son, Nick, ended up buying a bar in Point Roberts, Washington, in the same county, but uh, about 45 minutes away. Gene would spend time there. You know, he liked to help his friends. He would go out for coffee in the morning. He would play pool. He'd go swimming. He did work out very seriously until very close to the end of his life. He would get out to the casinos, and every once in a while, he would do an interview or or make a trip for wrestling purposes or to make a wrestling-related appearance. But more than anything, he loved to stay in Blaine, Washington. Uh, He loved to go hunting. You know, he'd had enough of the spotlight, but, you know, when he chose to get back in the spotlight, well... He enjoyed that, but he would put a stop to that pretty quickly. He loved being with his friends, his sons, probably more than anything. He had a couple of sisters living in British Columbia, not far from Blaine. He had friends from the wrestling business who would stop by, people like Don Leo Jonathan, who lived not far away. So he he liked that quiet life more than anything and uh, liked to hang out with his friends. He would help his friends as he could. But more than being you know, back on a stage, he enjoyed being home. Definitely. Want to remind everyone the books by Steve Verrier, Professional Wrestling in the Pacific Northwest, A History 1883 to the Present, and of course the present was 2017 when the book was published, and the book we are focusing on today, Gene Kaniski, Canadian Wrestling Legend. There are forwards in the book by Nick and Kelly Kaniski. want to encourage everyone to check this out. Steve, I want to thank you for appearing on the Super Podcast today, and as we wrap things up, you just wrote the book on Gene Kaniski. What is the legacy he leaves behind in Canada, and what is the legacy he leaves behind on professional wrestling? Yeah, I, I, I think we can take a lot of approaches to that. As far as wrestling goes, you know, he's one of those big-time, rugged champions that I think we can remember fondly. Again, we put people like Fez, the Funks, Jack Briscoe, Pat O'Connor, and others in that category. But he is, you know, really, I think, one of the last of those great world champions. Uh, As far as Canada is concerned, you know, people are still eager to talk about Kaniski. I mean, when I contact media in Canada, there's usually somebody eager to, uh, you know, have a discussion about Gene Kaniski. He's remembered not only by the older people, but they've told their kids. So there's still a great awareness of Gene Kinnis. He's still one of those national treasures, I think, in Canada. And if you mention Canada's greatest athlete, well, Kinniski's name will still come to mind. You know, on a smaller scale, you know, people in his town of Blaine really have great things to say about him. I've spent quite a bit of time there. I've talked to a lot of people there. And there are still a lot of Gene Kaniski stories, a lot of people who appreciate that he advised them to stay in school or he lent them money when they needed it, whatever it might be. So certainly he left a legacy of note in Blaine. And, uh, you know, as as far as Gene is concerned, he probably would be proudest of his sons who left wrestling early, you know, have done very well since then and are just, you know, good down-to-earth guys. So... I, I think we could answer that question in a variety of ways, but maybe to illustrate, I would just say of all the people I talked to in researching the book, and I, I don't know what the number is. I talked to people who knew him going back to the Depression, you know, to his final days, and the only ones 
who seemed to have anything negative to say about Gene Kaniski were some of the younger wrestlers who were eager to get in the spotlight. I mean, Gene's fellow veterans, people who knew him outside the ring, people in entertainment, whatever it might be, almost universally spoke very, very favorably of Gene Kaniski. So, you know, there still is this uh, feeling that he was somebody who made a big difference, who entertained a lot of people. And I think really left a mark on wrestling, on his community, and and on Canadians coast to coast. There it is. Steve Verrier, all about Gene Kaniski. want to thank Steve for appearing on the show. Remind everyone to check out his book. We'll have more information about that later in the show. Hey, 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 Lasto. Oh, no. It's me, Hot Dog. Yeah, I figured as much. Hey, Hot Dog. You're hard to get on the horn. Long time no see, Kimosabi. It's it's been a while. The 605 has been in production for an extended period of time lately. I guess so. Yeah, I just got back from Sturgis, South Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> no, you didn't. First of all, oh, you yeah. obviously you're obviously not in the studio. It sounds like you're on a bad phone. I'm on the road. <laughs> you're on the road. Yeah, I'm on my way back. Oh, Sturgis, man, that's that's my joint. I never miss it. A lot of fine, juicy motorcycle mamas out there, my brother. <laughs> Just right for the picking. And when I say that, I mean that in the most respectful sense, of course. Of course, of course. I hope you uh, yeah. were safe while in Sturgis. Hope you wore a face mask and stayed away from any... A what? A face mask. Oh, hey, man. Don't don't infringe on my freedom, homeboy. You okay. know? <laughs> uh, I'll tell you. Cruising along, hot dog <laughs> on a hot hog, they call it. <laughs> You know, with one of those motorcycle mamas with the wind in her hair and the bugs in your teeth, man. Motorcycle mama, we'll see the world from my Honda. (laughs) Remember Sailcat? Well, I I don't know what you're talking about, Hot Dog, but we're getting ready to move on with the show. There's a plane going over. There's a plane going over. (laughs) Hey, I got some red hot scoops for you while I was out there. (laughs) What What scoops did you get from me out in Sturgis, Hot Dog? Oh, yeah. Well, let me tell you, you know, I was looking out for you out there, Chili B. I don't just show up here like a cabbage, all head and no legs. I come correct. Yeah, like I was saying, scoops. You know, you're a big professional wrestling fan, aren't you? I sense that about you. (laughs) Yeah, we we, uh, obviously talk professional wrestling here on the 605 Super Podcast, yes. Well, anyway, I was was hanging backstage at Sturgis, some of the big outdoor concerts with some of my buddies from Enough's Enough and zebra and i forget who, who all was out there enough's enough big... <laughs> Good yeah Good you like them too you know i forget who all was out there but i heard some big news about chris jericho you know from fozzy I'm yeah a... moon goose i call him yeah. the ayatollah of rock and roll i'm aware of who chris jericho is from the band fozzy yes well I, I'm, I'm sure you know or, or did you that he moonlights as a big time professional wrestler well, I think it's actually well, heard, the other way around, Hot Dog. That could very well be. <laughs> uh, but if I heard some big news from the Fozzie camp, that Chris has two great big events coming up in the fall. Big events on the books, you know? Huge events, in fact. Oh. He's got an AEW title opportunity scheduled for September and a colonoscopy scheduled for October. <laughs> oh, come on, Hot Dog. That's I not, ain't lying. That's not even Well, Asto, <laughs> the reason I'm here today... Not funny. <laughs> Why are you here today, hot dog? Let's go back to what you just said. 
I'm here to clear the air, as it were, about the, the main hot-button topic uh, in wrestling podcasting today, uh, insofar as, well, vis-a-vis uh, -vis my involvement. Uh, <laughs> first, I want to I thank the members of the wrestling press who are here today. We have Matt Brock from Inside Wrestling, uh, Robert DeBoard from Victory Magazine, Dan <laughs> Leonard from... Uh, Dan Leonard from What Would Gorilla Monsoon Do? And uh, uh, we have representatives from Wrestling Lariat. Brandon Baxter is here from Team Beat. <laughs> and uh, anyway, and Dominic Valenti's hotline and all the rest. I want to thank you all for being here. What? Let me begin by asking you all a question. Why aren't we talking more about this? Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I got my pages mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> what, you, uh, what is this? I don't understand what you're doing. You having a press conference? I got to come clean and tell my side of the story about the whole Arcadian five thing. What? What, the, what is the Arcadian five thing? Well, as you know, there were five of us who tried to break off from the Arcadian Vanguard nest, as it were, and set up our own, well, competing thing. Well, not competing thing necessarily, but we were going to run opposition podcasts to the Arcadian Vanguard uh, network. It's a stupid idea. It's stupid. I realize that now. But um, as you know, we came to be known. We were going to run opposition with you. And I'm just confessing here. We came to be known as the Arcadian Five. And it was, uh, well, it was Howard Baum, uh, McAdam, <laughs> myself, and Scott Bowden. The late Scott Bowden. I didn't know he was involved in yeah. this scheme. Well, it was mostly... It, well, no, let's not go there. It was mostly Scott Bowden's idea, if I'm being honest. Oh, come on. Well, that's only four That's only four people, Hot Dog. I think it was the Arcadian oh. Vanguard Five. Who's the fifth? Right, yeah, there was a fifth person. He was the key person, too. Well, who's the fifth member? Bob Roop. Bob Roop? <laughs> come on. Come on, that's Hot Dog. Well, anyway, we all know it was... Uh, we're admitting now, at least I'm admitting now, this was a bad idea, and... uh once we knew with it, you knew all about our plans, you know, well, the jig was up and then it all kind of fell apart. And we all went our separate ways. I should have known that you'd find out all about it. You clever Trevor, you what with all your inside contacts in the wrestling business. I'll tell you, that's the last time I confide in a certain Ave Day Elser May. <laughs> I'm speaking in code right now. I don't know what you're talking about, but I accept your apology <laughs> or whatever this is. Hot dog. Well, you use the word apology, and I, I want to put it this way. I do just want to say, uh, Brian, I don't want to bring the show down, but uh, I just want to apologize for the Arcadian 5 mutiny incident. It was silly and stupid. It'll never happen again, and uh, please don't make a mockery of this. Uh, thanks. That's all. <laughs> all right. I certainly won't make a mockery of this. As you said, the jig is up. Anywho, I'm here to throw myself at the mercy of your flip-flop feet. If I have to go to wrestling podcaster's court, then so be it. I'd like to avoid that just between you and me. What if I just sent over a nice glass of coffee and a plain cheese pizza? I think A that, large pizza. A large. I, that would be very nice, Hot Dog. I appreciate your sentiment there. Well, your I'm glad we accepted. got that all sorted out. I, I guess I so. I can't stay mad at you. Oh, God. <laughs> hey, Lasto. Yeah? I was just checking my Twitter while you were talking just now, and I, oh my, oh no, this is awful. It looks like I've been blocked by Chris Jericho from Fozzie. Why? <laughs> well, he likes to do that, apparently. Well, my 
lying on the source tells me that uh, that <laughs> he he may have blocked me just because I gave some red hot scoops to your show a few minutes ago. This is horrible. But you know what? If he's going to go ahead and block me for something like that, guess what? I'm going to quit Twitter. I'm going to shut this shit right down. In fact, <laughs> let me go take care of that right now. Hey, Lasto. Yeah, hot dog. I got to go. <laughs> and that's what happens, ladies and gentlemen, using a horn on a bad phone. But let's go to our next segment, and we'll be back on the other side with information, details, and whatever else we need to do to recover from whatever this segment just was. Let's go now to my conversation with Brad Baluchian, author of The Wax Pack, as well as the man who attempted to author The Biography of the Iron Sheik. Let's go to this right now. I am very happy to welcome today to the Super Podcast, Brad Baluchian, and we are going to talk about his brand new book, The Wax Pack, On the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. But we're also going to talk, obviously, about professional wrestling and why, while reading this book, I said I have to get Brad on the show to talk wrestling. Brad, thanks for being here today. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. Before we get going with anything else, before we talk wrestling, before we talk about your new book, give a little bit of your background so the listeners have an idea who you are. Sure. Uh, I am a 39-year-old who lives out in Oakland, California. I teach uh, biology and direct uh, a natural history program at Merritt College in Oakland. And I am also a freelance writer and grew up in Rhode Island, actually, on the East Coast. And you're a lifelong wrestling fan? Lifelong wrestling fan. Yeah, for sure. It's one of uh, baseball, wrestling, Star Wars, three things that I, I liked when I was six and I still like now. And I think a lot of the listeners can relate to that. I know I can. But before we get to wrestling, let's talk a little bit about this book, The Wax Pack, On the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. This is a book that I was reading something. I don't even remember what it was, but I saw a picture of the cover of the book. And right away, I knew I need this book. And we'll talk about what the cover is in a second. We'll also talk about the content of the book. But I didn't know what to expect. I thought the concept that you went with was interesting. And I have not finished it. I am 140 pages into it as we record here today. And I have loved it so far. I think as someone who reads a lot of baseball books, it is so unique, such a unique take on baseball. But it's more than baseball. It's really like in a lot of ways about life, about humanity. You even mix a lot of personal stuff in there and it doesn't I think a lot of people could do that, and it may be like, oh, this is getting a little self-indulgent. It doesn't happen here. It flows with the book. It makes the stories even better. But let's talk a little bit about the Wax Pack, how you came up with the concept, and what exactly it is. Yeah, no, thanks. It's a good sign when it's, you know, if, if you're reading and it's rolling along, that's a, that's a good sign. Um, so, yeah, I uh, grew up loving collecting baseball cards in the 80s, loving baseball, but I was always uh, a, a little unusual in that my favorite players were not the superstars. And just like in wrestling, my favorite wrestler was the Iron Sheik, which I know we'll talk more about, you know, who nobody liked uh, back in 1986. Um, and 86 is the year of the pack of baseball cards. So that was the first year that I collected cards as a kid. And so I had this idea of why not get a pack that had never been opened and whatever random 15 guys are in that pack, those would be the guys that I would set out to track down and kind of have the the goal of finding out, you know, the ultimate, where are they now? You know, just like my favorite section in the old after magazines was the, where are they now section <laughs> guys. That was the original idea with this book is the, these were the guys that I were literally my heroes as a kid. 
and now 30 years later kind of telling what what happens after they're done they're done playing and it started out that way and as as you're discovering from reading the book it became something a lot bigger because i was really amazed at how open these guys were and willing to be vulnerable and talk a lot about stuff in their personal lives that really not to do with baseball but things that we can all relate to i think one of the the take homes from the book is that you realize that we all have a lot more in common with baseball players than we realize. And it's kind of a comforting thing to know that that there isn't that much different between them and us. So as you said, it's not really a baseball book, but it's sort of bigger themes. But certainly anyone that grew up with baseball from that era will will really enjoy it. And I mentioned the cover of the book really got to me. And the cover of the book is, I guess, a mock-up of a 1986 pack of Topps baseball cards. And it just it looks great. Yeah, they did a great job with it. I mean, the designers at the at the publisher, they you know they gave it that weathered feel, so it even looks like a like a beat up old wax pack. Um, so I, I I'm really happy with how how it turned out visually. You know, one of the cool things too about the book and the project is that it wasn't okay. I got this pack of cards. I am going to find a way to talk to every one of these guys over the next five years. It was kind of you set a limit for how long it would take you to go across country in your car and your Honda, and get these interviews. And, you know, that's kind of one of the fun things, too, is the fact that you are constantly on the move in this book. Yeah, it's a, it's really, it's a road trip book, too. You know, it's as much a road trip book as it is a baseball book or a memoir. Um, and I liked, you know, I think when you can build in constraints to a narrative, it, it creates certain limitations that actually help the narrative. So, for me, you know, knowing that the trip was going to only be a certain length, knowing that some guys might not talk to me. So for those guys, I was still going to write a chapter about them, uh, knowing that I was going to have to go with whatever 15 guys were in the pack. You know, to me, that that made it more interesting to to be kind of limited by by those things. Once again, the book. The Wax Pack, and of course you can get information, waxpackbook.com or on Twitter, at waxpackbook, get it wherever you find your favorite books. Go to Amazon, of course you can use the show link and get this book, but I was reading this book and I ran across this passage which made me get in touch with you about coming on the show. Let me read this here. Hopefully you saw the footnote too, right? I, I did see the footnote too. <laughs> okay. In early 2005, I left my job at Islands taking a leap of faith to write the biography of my favorite professional wrestler, the Iron Sheik, a failed experiment that ended with a drug-addled Sheik threatening to kill me in his living room, and then retreating to L.A., where Kay was in culinary school, maybe the funniest line in the book right here, then things really went sideways. (laughs) 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 But that made me want to reach out to you, because obviously I didn't know anything about this story, and I don't know anyone who does, but I'd love to hear the story of the potential Iron Sheik biography that you were working on. And of course, it got to the point where you were in his living room. So I guess let's uh, take back a step. You were a wrestling fan. You were a fan of the Iron Sheik in the 80s, and there weren't that many heel fans in the 80s cheering for the Iron Sheik. And you were an Iron Sheik fan. How did you go about coming up with the idea to do a book about the Iron Sheik? And what was the process in getting in touch with him? Yeah, it was uh man, it was a long it was a long game. I I often do the long game in these projects, but um I as someone that was interested in journalism and writing, always thinking about possible story ideas and uh around the 1998, I was a freshman in college 
And by that time, the Iron Sheik was pretty much, you know, the down, the very downside of his career, end of the line, you know, wrestling on indie shows um, in front of small crowds. And so just that was, you know, also the early years of the Internet. I found out from the Internet that he was represented by a guy named Eric Sims of ESS Promotions, who I, you're, you're familiar with, Brian, correct? Uh, yes, I know who Eric is, and I used to know him. He used to be around Dennis Carluzzo's shows before he was an agent to the stars. I remember he used to drive the Iron Sheik around, and I yeah. also remember he was uh, previously he was a I believe a massage therapist who became a photographer, and yeah. then he would have a gimmick table set up where he would sell photos that he took. Eric, yeah, Eric is a very nice guy, uh, but Eric is also a, quite a character uh, and has lots of his eccentricities. But uh, I didn't know that at first. I just knew that he he represented the Iron Sheik, so. I had this plan where I thought, okay, if I if I can kind of befriend Eric Sims, then I could potentially one day meet the Iron Sheik. So talk about putting in your time. I actually, uh, <laughs> actually, this, this is insane. I went. I don't even. I was probably eighteen or nineteen. I convinced one of my one of my friends, who is this is truly a good friend for doing this with me, who who hates wrestling, convinced him to drive with me to Wildwood, New Jersey, from Rhode Island in the middle of summer to meet Eric Sims at a hotel <laughs> to then go on a bunch of carnival rides for two days because <laughs> Eric Sims loved amusement parks. And so it was the most surreal, like, I I'm surprised my parents even let me do this. I mean, it was like, probably not a good idea. I mean, just going off to meet a complete stranger. And, you know, and so we end up like going to the, the boardwalk in Wildwood and having these this two days of like riding all these rides and all of this was basically just so I could try to get to know Eric Sims so I could hopefully eventually get to meet the Iron Sheik. And so I started, you know, I started talking to Eric and get, you know, and communicate with him. And then a couple of years later, when the Sheik came into town to do a show, I said, hey, could I, you know, come down to uh, I'll help you out with the, the autograph signing if I can meet the Iron Sheik? And he's like, OK, yeah, sure. So I go down and this is 2000. And this is, you know, for me, now I'm still in college and, and the Sheik is my hero as a kid. So I'm all excited to be my childhood hero. And I get there and meet him and I immediately just start like, I'm like an encyclopedia of Iron Sheik knowledge. I start rattling <laughs> off. Like, I know that, you know, in, in 1973, you were a baby face, Cosmo Vaziri, and then you trained with all these other guys. And then, you know, like I'm like reciting his entire backstory. Which, you know, still early days of the Internet, probably think, things weren't, weren't as well known then. And he was really, I think, impressed that I knew so much about about his career. So he was really nice to me and really friendly. And um, he's like, yeah, let's uh, you know, he, he was like, why don't we just let's hang out after, you know, after I, the autograph signing. So, I, again, surreal stuff. That first night I end up watching the Sheik, you know, somehow put away probably a dozen Molson Ices and smoke a, a prodigious amount of marijuana in a, <laughs> in a Holiday Inn hotel room and, you know, with me. And so I'm there, you know, I mean, I'd heard about his, his drug stuff, but it was like, again, surreal, my childhood hero, hanging out with him in a hotel room, drinking and so on. And then at four o'clock in the morning, you know, he's like, oh, we need to go to a 24-hour diner. And, and so I drive him in my nine, my beat up 93 Ford Escort to a diner where we go. <laughs> At four in the morning, he's blazed out of his mind. We have a nice meal. And then he's brought his Sharpies and eight by tens with him. And he starts signing 
uh, so a bunch of drunk college kids come in. And he starts signing autographs on these eight by tens that he's brought and giving them to the to the student to the college kids who are all like drunk and excited and wanting him to like leave cell phone messages for their friends. And then at the end he goes, all right, I help you now you help me. And he gives them their check and we walk out. <laughs> and that was my introduction. So right then I was, okay, this is, this guy is, you know, what a character. And, uh, so I ended up, uh, staying in touch with him. Um, and then a few years later when I was working in journalism in a magazine, I started to think, you know, this guy, this could be a great book. I, started to plan out because you know, I knew about all of his his background before professional wrestling and a fascinating life that intersects with politics and Iran in the in the 50s and 60s. And so I wanted to write a book that was a true, um, not just a puff piece, but a, a truly in-depth, honest, detailed, balanced, definitive story of Khosrow Vaziri. And what drew me to it was this notion that, you know, that he played he played this character that he kind of morphed into, you know, and I, uh, I, I, so I ended up quitting my job at Islands Magazine in 2005 and, and literally moving across the country and, and getting a renting a room in Fayetteville, Georgia, where he lives and spending a couple of months just working with him, trying to put together the proposal for the book. So it was like every day, you know, me and the Iron Sheik hanging out, um, talking and, you know, me getting information. But it was, as I allude to in the book, you know, I, I want to stop talking for a minute so you can, I know I'm going on a long time here, but that, that's kind of the setup for how we got into the idea of writing the book. So let's talk about this period of time. You're in Georgia. Obviously, the Iron Sheik lives there. You have come there to continue to potentially develop this project. In the conversations you're having with him, he knows you're, you want to do this book. Was he forthcoming? Did you think that he was really into the idea of the book? And also, where were you hoping the home for this project would be? You know, it actually was really good timing with the the wrestling book boom, because I think Foley's book was 1998 or 99, you know, and that thing, you know, sold like a million copies or something crazy. And then every book about wrestling after that was like a bet, instant bestseller for that that period up until maybe 2003, 2004. So I'm coming in kind of a little bit at the end of that that wave, but still, I mean, wrestling books were still considered viable. There was the Sex, Lies, and Headlocks book by Shauna Sale. And so I was looking initially to shop it uh, broadly to one of the big publishers and not go through WWE. But as I got there and took lay of the land, I mean, a lot of things, I realized a lot of things that forced me to adjust. So number one, the Sheik was pretty much uh, just an out-of-control drug addict. I mean, worse than what I had encountered when I first met him. And I think, you know, everyone kind of knows the story there with that period where he was just off the rails and the Howard Stern and the shoot interviews and all that. So I was catching him at a bad time. Plus, he had the, you know, the tragic uh, murder of his oldest daughter in 2003, I believe it was. So he was still spinning from that. Um, So... I found it, he was incredibly difficult to work with. You know, I'd show up and he would just say, I don't want to talk today. I, I don't feel good. Every day it was like, I don't feel good. I don't feel good. And then the only times he was actually animated were if he convinced me to go drive him to buy drugs. And so, you know, not something I'm proud of, but I was, again, talk about surreal. Here's your childhood hero. 
you know, who you watched on Saturday mornings and he's asking me to drive him to crack hotels in Atlanta so he could go, you know, buy crack or whatever other drugs. And I sad to say that I actually did that a few times. Um, so, and then, you know, when he was, when he had drugs, he would be a lot more animated or he'd be willing to open up and talk. Um, but his, I think the, so the Iron Sheik, his memory was actually pretty good, but the times when he was, you know, willing to be kind of calm enough and, and stable enough to actually talk through stuff where those times were so few and far between that it was really hard to get enough information to go off of. And, you know, and he's also he's a, he's very much his own. <laughs> he's, he's very much a, a fan of himself. And so he would often approach things from a very, you know, like a kind of a arrogant perspective in terms of his 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 place in the wrestling business. So there's there was the drug issue. And then also there was the issue. He had just signed the Legends contract with WWE. That's and, what I was going to say. The time period you're talking about is when he went into the Hall of Fame, isn't it? Yeah, so he signs the Legends contract, which gives WWE book rights. So I was kind of like frustrated with that because I uh, was like, and again, that also keep in mind that the Sheik was pretty much kept going by his wife, Carol, and, and, the, and his daughters. I mean, they're the ones that really would kind of make sure that he, you know, the bills are paid and they would handle all of his business with Vince. I mean, the Sheik really can't even read and write English. Um, so, you know, everything, you know, Everything you see on Twitter, I mean, that's all his people doing that. It's not really the Iron Sheik. Iron Sheik is, um, you know, is is not actually seeing all those things. So I'm taught I'm working a lot with his wife and you know and his and his daughters about the business side of things. And they so once the Legends thing happened, they were like, well, why don't we talk to WWE and potentially I could do a book with a one with another uh, writer with with Cosro. So that was kind of the plan was I would be like, we'd have like two writers plus cause plus I call him cause Cosro the Sheik. And so then I go to WrestleMania uh, 21, I think it was WrestleMania where he got into the Hall of Fame and I got to go backstage with him. And that was an incredible weekend. I was there every step of the way, um, got to sit in the room while he taped the interview for all the DVDs for WWE, uh, got to go backstage, meet Vince McMahon, Hulk Hogan. You know, I was at the WrestleMania after party at the pre Hall of Fame party. And it was, you know, it was, it was really cool to see like Hulk Hogan talking to Steve Austin and hear their conversation and Eric Bischoff. So it was, a, you know, there was a lot of material. I met, get to, got to meet Ric Flair there. And so a lot of cool things happened there. But um, but yeah, so the the way that things were were setting up was that I would do a book with another writer. And at that point, we were just trying to get the proposal done. And my goal was to get a proposal done so we could send that off, you know, to try to get a publisher and then or go with WWE and then from there write the actual book. Do you know what his Legends deal actually was? Yeah, I think it was was like five thousand dollars and he would. I mean, they basically gave him like all these rights to like everything, really. I think like everything about their their likeness and so forth. That's pretty much what I've heard from other people especially around that period of time. I believe WWE owns the Iron Sheik name, so that was another issue. They owned it before that, or he gave them the rights to it when he signed the Legends deal? No, they owned it before that. Interesting. Well, before we go forward with this story, in terms of actual conversations you had with the Iron Sheik, beyond all the, the craziness, and there's lots of that, 
What were the main topics that he enjoyed talking about? Was it Olympic wrestling? Was it training guys in Minnesota? What did he enjoy talking about from his career? So I think Kaz really, uh, at, at his heart, was never stopped being a, an amateur wrestler. I mean, I think he, he, his heart is really with the amateur stuff. I think that that's what he's proudest of in a way is that he was a real, you know, shooter. He was a real wrestler. He always, I think he always kind of viewed the professional side as like a little bit below the amateur side, you know, like that it was, you know, he, it was not quite the same thing. And it's why he always respected the guys that were, that were shooters. And so he would off, he would love to talk about, and it, you know, he does this even in his own interviews now, like he loves to talk about his AAU championships and, you know, how he was training, uh, training with Vern and he, you know, broke guys into the business and he was an enforcer in different territories and anything about like the shoot aspect of his career. I think that, that that's what he's, he most enjoys talking about. I think he's very proud also that he really is legitimately proud that he was the WWF champion. I think he's, you know, kind of, I guess, bought into that a little bit too much in the sense that, you know, he sometimes forgets that that's a work and that he, he starts to kind of confound the professional accomplishments with the amateur accomplishments. But I think, I think so much of his, his mindset and his memory was truly poisoned by the drugs and the, and the substance abuse, because I know, I, I know part of why I thought this would be a great book was when I got to his house, I got to go through all of his old materials. And I found all these old um, diary entries on like hotel stationery from the seventies. Oh, wow. That were written in Farsi about his, like he, about his matches and like going back to the hotel after wrestling and documenting like, Oh, I had a, I had a match with Kim Duke or I had a match with, you know, uh, Kenny J or a lot of these guys from that era. And, um, he's like, you know, he, so there was like all these notes that he, he clearly would took it very seriously and really wanted to be a, a better wrestler, uh, in the seventies and the early years. And so I know that that's, that's part of him. And then I think, you know, the, just the crazy lifestyle and the, and the partying and all that and, and becoming the iron cheek and, you know, getting caught up in his own celebrity. I think that you know, he became, he was no longer Khosrow Vaziri. He became the Iron Sheik. You know, it became this um, transformation. That's one of the things I've always wondered about because you hear about him in his early years in the country, not just training with Vern Gagne, but becoming a professional wrestler under his real name. And you always hear he was a straight arrow. He didn't drink, he didn't do drugs. And then somewhere along the way, everything flipped. I mean, I know like you'll appreciate this, Brian, because I know you, you, you really want to pinpoint and get to the, the real truth of things. I've always wanted to figure out exactly when that happened. My initial impression was that it was, it was later than I think it actually was. Like I thought he was pretty clean until like maybe that first WWWF run in 1979. But Hearing more of the stories, I think even, you know, mid-70s when he started doing the territories, he was already kind of partying with like, you know, Dick Murdoch and Dusty Rhodes teaching him a lot of that stuff. The Jimmy Snuka in Mid-Atlantic and Ric Flair. And so I think um, I think the it was more gradual than I realized. I think um, and, and he was a highly functioning, you know, 
he could abuse the the drugs and and be highly functioning. I mean, you've heard the stories from the mid '80s about him, you know, being doing coke out of his mind and then doing like a thousand Hindu squats in the in the in the Ramada <laughs> hotel room, you know, sweating profusely while everyone else is is partying. There is that weird dichotomy there, and um, you know, another thing I wanted to ask you is there are so many clips that we've seen that have gone viral, and some of them went viral before that was a thing. You know, whether it's talking about Brian Blair and wanting to humble him and break his back and everything else, or the times where he seems super vitriolic against Hulk Hogan and other times he's not. When it's just one-on-one and you're talking to him, was he like that about certain people and certain events, or is that something that's amplified by him when he does these interviews in front of a camera? Yeah, I think that stuff um, was amplified in that, like, he got... I think he he got a reaction out of like the Hogan stuff and the Blair stuff and he saw that people liked it. And really, I mean, deep down the Iron Sheik is, you know, he he does he wants to be liked like the rest of us. And so I think he saw that 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 playing that up was an opportunity to, you know, capitalize on. So he kind of doubled down on that stuff. And, you know, I think that a lot of that is just him working the crowd and um and the crowd working him, frankly, and kind of manipulating him. But I think there, so I would, I would say that stuff was more exaggerated, but I would, so I'd say that he is capable of being kind of calm and thoughtful, but then he also is very, he would go off even one-on-one about certain things, not so much like the, the Hogan Blair stuff, but more if he felt at all insulted or threatened by what you were saying, he would just go off. And this is where like, I think he is already a very prideful guy, but I think the drugs and all that made him into this, like, crazy, you know, irate, irrational kind of monster in those moments. He would just lose it. So I talked, you know, in, the, in my baseball book, I, I briefly mentioned that the, what ended the book project was he, he threatened to kill me. <laughs> I mean, he had one of those moments, and the, the story is that I'm in his living room, and we're just doing a, an interview, you know, just talking, I'm taking notes. And he said... um, he was in one of his moods where he was sort of feeling very, you know, important and proud. And he said, well, I'm the only, um, you know, he kind of, he would go on these rants about, you know, how, what a great wrestler he was. And he said, you know, I'm the only Middle Easterner to ever make it in this country as a wrestler. And I'm the kind of guy, like, I, I, I was, I am very accurate and I want to be factual. And so I would call him out if he said something that wasn't true. And I was like, well, you know, you, you also had... Uh, you know, Adnan Al-Kaysi, um, General Adnan, you know, he was he made it pretty big. And I wasn't trying to be like a, a dick or difficult. I was just pointing out an inaccuracy. And he just flipped. And he was like, you know, he does not like um, a lot of the Iraq, you know, there's that Iran Iraq conflict. And he was he started going off like, how dare you bring him up? You know, he's not the Iron Sheik's level. He's not my class. He's an Iraqi. And you know, would just go on this tirade and was so angry, like he thought it was some betrayal that I mentioned General Adnan, that he then he went into this thing. Where he's like, I'll kill, you know, I'll shoot you with my my 38 Magnum or I'll stab you with my butcher knife or I'll just break your leg and just furious. And uh, I mean, I was never that scared because he was so immobile at that point. I, you know, I, <laughs> I knew I could always just literally run out the door. I'll take um, option three. <laughs> yeah. So at that point it was like no that wasn't that was that wasn't actually what ended it was 
I did complete a first draft of like a proposal and a sample chapter and I showed it to his wife and his daughter and they really didn't like it. They were like, this is too personal. This is, you know, exposing too much. And I was kind of, I was frustrated because I was like, look, I've been, I've told you guys all along that I'm not here to write a, a puff piece about Iron Sheik. I mean, I want to tell the whole story. And to do that, you have to share, you know, I mean, I wasn't trying to be sensationalistic. I was just talking about what, what his life was like now. And I mean, the same approach that I took with, with my baseball book. Um, and they were like basically wanting me to just write something that was much, you know, much more sort of sanitized. And so I was like, you know, that's just not the book I want to write. And, and that was sort of the, I decided then to cut my losses and, you know, pack up and say, okay, uh, I'm, I guess I'm really sad this isn't going to work out. Um, and then it was interesting because, you know, have you seen the movie The Sheik? I was going to ask you about it, if you've seen it. Yes, I've seen it. Yeah. So that's such an interesting movie because that, well, first of all, that I'm, I mean, I'm kind of surprised they, they were able to make it because they do cover all the stuff that I saw in that movie and they do talk about all that. I think the guys that made that movie just kind of went ahead and did it. You know, I don't think they were necessarily asking for permission at every step of the way for what they were going to portray. But they did. A, I thought they did a good job because they showed they showed all sides of the story. You know, they sh and and in fact, you know, the part in that movie where um, uh, Gian Megan goes down to Fayetteville to talk to him, like he he finds the Iron Sheik, you know, at his lowest, which is right after I had been there. So in a way, like <laughs> that movie kind of accomplished or showed what I was seeing myself and having been there a year prior. Uh, but I'm glad that that story got that, you know, he did improve and he he reconciled with his after he had been kicked out. You know, he, that movie talks about how he, he moved back in with with his wife and and, had, you know, he kind of was able to move away from the drugs. But it was frustrating for me because I was like, wait a minute, that was I was there first to tell this story and now I don't get to tell it and someone else has told it. But, you know, that's the lesson that uh, that I learned. I mean, it's it's that's how it works out sometimes. And. For me, looking back, like I wasn't, I wasn't ready to write that book then. It would not have been. I don't think it would have been very good. Um, I'm much, you know, 15 years older now and wiser, and so um, it, it all, it all worked out fine the way, the way it happened. But well, now you can write a book about the process of trying to write the book. Right. Well, there's there are lots of important lessons I learned about failure, about you know, uh, this all that I went through with that, that, that I took away. So there, you know, I, there's, there's a lot of valuable experience that I, I took from that. But the weird thing is, then all, after all that, no, what, there's still no book about the Iron Sheik. I mean, the weirdest thing is, after that, WWE hires Keith Greenberg, Keith Elliott Greenberg, to write the biography. Keith Greenberg goes down there, uh, spends time with the Sheik, writes the whole book, and then at the latter, if you remember this, the last minute, WWE cancels it right around, I don't know what year that was, 2008, maybe, um, because I think they were kind of scared by all the, the drug stuff in there. And Linda McMahon was running for Congress, I think. And so and then um, a few years later, WWE partners with I think it was at ECW Press. And now they're going to revive the Iron Sheik book and they're going to put it out. And then it gets canceled again. <laughs> I didn't know that. Wow. So poor Keith Elliott Greenberg wrote the entire, I mean, he got paid for it, but, you know, he got, wrote the entire book and never, has never been published. And it's still, you know, now, I mean, someone could still write a, an Iron Sheik book. It's still out there. 
do you think it's impossible to write that book without paying an ample amount of attention to the drug use? I think if you want to write the kind of book I'd be interested in writing or what I would consider to be the best possible book about Khosrow Vaziri, you would have to talk about all of that. Are there any angles to the Iron Cheek or any stories about the Iron Cheek that the general public doesn't know that you learned of during the process of spending so much time with them? Is there something that still isn't out there in the ether about mm. the Iron Cheek that you're surprised about? Good question. Um, I, I mean, I think most people, I, I think there is a, a very serious side to him and a very, and actually has a, you know, he's like, what, 77 now? I still talk to him on the phone occasionally. He still lives in Georgia. You know, his body's really beat up now, but he's got a, he's got a really, really good memory, which is why if he would, he, but he doesn't, I, I think he's in so much pain. I mean, his body really is broken down that he doesn't show much interest or have the ability to really, to really talk about the details, but he, he has a really good memory. But he's also he's also kind of still guarded about some he still kind of holds on to some of that kayfabe um, mentality. So I don't think I think there's a lot that even the time that I spent with him that has not necessarily been told. But the sheik himself is hasn't really told anyone. In other words, if we could actually get him to to sit down and, and talk openly about some of those things, like I would really like to know more of the story of how he got brought back in 1983 to take the belt from Backland. And I think the, those stories are still there, but whether or not we'll ever get them out of him is, is another question because he just doesn't enjoy talking about, you know, his, his wrestling career that much anymore because I think he isn't in, in so much pain. When it came to non-wrestling topics, was he open and honest? Do you think about the period of time where he was the bodyguard to the Shah of Iran? Was that a period of time where he wanted to talk about things or he wanted to keep things guarded? Yeah, I think he, again, if you could get him rolling on one of those rare times, he would want to talk about it. But he's definitely just very guarded. And I think he, I think he still can be very suspicious and not necessarily wanting to, to share that much. So um, it was hard. It was hard to get a lot of that information out of him. You know, I think to write a book about him now, you'd have to do a lot of talking to other people to get a lot of those stories, because I don't know if he would actually be able to, to, to go at length about some of those things. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, I mean, just hearing some of the stories about how, how much, you know, the death threats that got called in uh, when he was, you know, he got taken off the card a few times because people were calling the office threatening to kill him in, you know, 1979, around that era with the hostage crisis. I mean, he definitely lived a, a, a lived the gimmick in a way that made it really hard um, hard to you know to carry pull that off. And I remember you know his, I mean his daughter, um, and he was so, he was very protective of his daughters. He didn't you know all of his kids were girls, and I guess he, they told me stories about how he would he would you know want them to like. I think it was like I think it was they, they, that he was willing to to let give them like razor blades that he would use to blade to, to like carry to school in case they needed to defend themselves something like that where he was just he truly loved his family and his daughters and was very protective and so um there were a lot of stories like that that were interesting about like what well, you know what was it like for the iron sheet to be a father right that's something that that hasn't been told very much that I think would be really interesting to get into you were with him around the period of time where he went into the WWE Hall of Fame. That was a pretty memorable speech in 2005. 
Mm-hmm. Obviously, the audience was really into it, and Steve Austin was really into it. Was mm-hmm. he really excited about being put into their Hall of Fame? Was it a big deal to him? Yeah, he was. He was. I think he looked at that as sort of the the crowning achievement of his career. Uh, but at the same time, you know, being with him that weekend before the show and after, I mean, he was. He's a when he's not in that. He's, he actually was very. Um, well behaved that weekend. He didn't do any of the partying. His, he was traveling with his wife Carol, and I remember like I don't know if it was the day before that show or the day of. I mean, his wife had an old friend in L.A., and so he was shooting a bunch of stuff for the show. And I drove Carol down to see to to see her old friend, and I drove back to see Cause, and then I picked him up after the show, and I drove with him in this old rental car down to get Carol. And we stopped at some, you know, like fast food place to get drive through. And it was just a very, you know, he was, he was very quiet. He wasn't like he was, you know, wanting to go celebrate or, I mean, we were just getting drive through takeout food and, and heading back to the hotel and having a quiet, a quiet night. So I think he really appreciated it. But when he was kind of on his best behavior, he was kind of a, a very quiet, almost, um, you know, kind of reclusive in a way. Did he get along with Nikolai? Yeah, I think he I think he really really liked Nikolai. I think he um I think those guys were kind of the great odd couple. I think Nikolai really liked him. I mean, he, he you know, he would they would piss each other off, right? He would always talk about how Nikolai was was so cheap. But I think they were a, a good match for each other and uh you know, I, I, one thing I I had this in the in the book that I, that never got written, but I think with like Hogan, I think he always was truly hurt that Hogan didn't repay the favor. You know, the story is that Hogan told him after he dropped the belt to Hogan, he comes in the locker room and he says, thank you so much, Sheik. I owe you one. I'll never forget you. And then Sheik, according to Sheik, calls Hogan when Hogan was in WCW, probably around 1994 or 95, wanting one last run. And Hogan never calls him back. And that's what sort of set off the whole I hate Hogan thing. But you got to remember these guys, you know, they were they first crossed paths in like 1979 in in New Haven, Connecticut. They, you know, Hogan before he was a huge, huge star. They were friendly. I think that the Sheik was always like hurt that Hogan, like truly hurt that Hogan didn't return his phone call and return the favor. And I remember when I was there in 2005 working with the Sheik going to his house one day and he he said, you know, I had this dream last night that that Hulk Hogan came up to me and and said and apologized and we had this nice sort of reunion and he seemed like kind of like like he was he kind of wished that dream was true was the impression that I got did he talk much about the story where Vern Gagne approached him before the title loss to Hogan and offered him a sum of money if instead of losing to Hogan he broke his leg yeah he swears that that's 100% true i i i believe it i would i would love to you know, talk to some more people around that to fact check it some more. But um, I, you know, he every he's always been consistent. Let's put it that way with that story. And to me, that's a sign that it's truthful. And, you know, then he goes and and tells Vince Sr. And I think Vince Jr. and Pat Patterson, I think Patterson might have been there, you know, in the bathroom in Madison Square Garden, right, right 
before he drops the belt to Hogan that Vern has made this offer and he can, he tells them that, you know, he told Vern no. And so that's all. Yeah. I, that's always stood up that story. Beyond that, did he speak well of Vern Gagne? Oh yeah. He's got, I mean, again, back to you, your earlier question about what his favorite things to talk about are like definitely Vern Gagne, AW. I mean, he, 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 I would say he puts sort of Vince McMahon, number one, Vince, you know, Vince and K McMahon, number one, because he's so grateful to Vince for putting the title on him. He loves to talk about beating Vince's ass in racquetball. Always tells that story. <laughs> beating him like 21 to two or something. And then I think, a, you know, a close second is Vern Gagne. I think because he, he respected that Vern was a shooter. Vern respected shooters. Uh, that Vern broke him in. That Vern and his wife Mary are the ones that gave him the Iron Cheek gimmick idea. Uh, and then let him, let him run with it. Um, so I think, yeah, he, he really always would call him coach and, you know, refer to Vern very positively. And what about some of the guys he trained? Obviously everyone knows about Ric Flair, Ken Patera, Ricky Steamboat, another guy he trained the next year. I believe he was in there with the Von Erichs early on teaching them some things. I think Kerry Von Erich. Did he ever talk about his students? Yeah, he, um, always would like to talk about Bret Hart. Uh, he talked a lot about Steamboat, Buck Zumhoff. Yeah, he took that. I would, you know, he was really proud of the fact that he was an enforcer and a trainer, and um, that that was one of his role. Again, back to his sort of shooting credentials. I mean, the, 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 from what I can piece together, I haven't actually. I don't think I've asked him about this because this happened in recent years. But the Brian Blair thing, I think, really just traces back to a story where, like, Brian Blair like challenged him to a little fight in the locker room, kind of friendly, you know, shoot fight, and I think Blair got the best of him, and I think that just pissed off Cosro. Not not a lot more than that. That like somebody bested him in a in a shoot little shoot fight, and you know, and Brian Blair was friends with Hogan and all that. So I think that's just kind of where that comes from. But I don't think he truly like hates Brian Blair. Well, plenty of other people do, but we'll get to that some other time. Yeah. Who's tougher to get to know, the Iron Sheik or Carlton Fisk? <laughs> well, Carlton Fisk, because he wouldn't even talk to me. Uh, <laughs> but um, no, you know, I got to say, I mean, Iron Sheik is so complex because there's so many kind of contradictory themes going on there. Like, in, you know, he's this really nice, really like generous guy on the one hand, but he's also has a really like dark side with the anger and, you know, he, you know, he's, he's had a lot of incidents where he's been violent. So it's hard to reconcile those sometimes. Um, and so it's, yeah, he's, he's a complex guy and, um, I think it makes him really interesting, but also hard to figure out, which like, a lot of guys in wrestling, you know, they're just, it's, it's so hard to know exactly who the real identity is. I think because, they're, they got their own identities mixed up with their characters they played. And I guess to circle back, you mentioned it earlier, one of the good ways to end talking about the Iron Sheik is you are still in touch with him. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> I, I, the thing that I, I really, you know, although the book didn't work out and there was lots of, you know, hard lessons I learned there, it's still pretty cool that I can open up my cell phone and I can go to, I can scroll to I and see Iron Sheik and then call and I can literally just go like, hey, cause, and he knows immediately who I am. Like, I don't have to introduce myself or anything. And it's not because of the caller ID. He just knows my voice. So that's pretty cool. You know, I'll, I'll take that at the end of the day. Well, as we wrap things up, I want to remind the listeners once again, the book, 
The Wax Pack, On the Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife by Brad Baluchian. Brad, thank you so much for being here today. It was a lot of fun talking about the Iron Sheik, but once again, I want to recommend this book to everyone, even if you're not a baseball fan. And I know we have a lot of baseball fans who listen, but this book is so much more than baseball. It's a road book. It's a book about life. It's a book about growing up, I guess, in a lot of ways. And uh, anything you want to say here before we wrap things up? Yeah, I mean, I would say this book is, it's written in the style that if I had been able to write the Iron Sheik book, it would have been very similar. You know, it's the same kind of idea of wanting to show the whole story, wanting to be honest and detailed and balanced. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, I think your listeners will appreciate that. And thanks for having me on. In 1971, a landmark book was published called Friday Night in the Coliseum, documenting Houston wrestling, not just what was happening inside the Sam Houston Coliseum, but the fans and what the fans thought, the lives of the wrestlers, some of the correspondence that Paul Bosch received, a little bit about the history of Houston wrestling. It's a really cool time capsule, now looking back almost 50 years, into 1971, and I'm very happy today to welcome to the Super Podcast a man who put out that book and the man who's doing a lot with that book today, which we're going to talk about, Jeff Winningham. Jeff, thanks for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Brian. Thank you. You know, I was so excited when I saw that the book was... See, I don't even know what exactly to say. Do I say it's being reissued, or do I say that it's a brand new book? Because I know that, obviously, you take all of the elements of the original book, but what you're currently doing is somewhat different than the actual original 140-page book, correct? Yeah, this is a second revised and expanded edition of the book. Well, we'll talk all about that because I want all the listeners to know about this and also how they can get a copy of it. But let's go back to the very beginning. For the listeners who are unaware of this project, give a little bit about your background. Where were you leading into this project that you undertook? I had moved back to Houston. I was in uh, undergraduate school here in Houston for four or five years. And then I went to grad school in photography uh, in Chicago. And I got a job offer uh, teaching photography in a university in Houston. And I came back in 1969. By 1970, I had begun to fashion myself um, what I called a Houston's Ouija. Those of you who know photography know that Ouija was a 1930s vintage spot news photographer. And wherever there was a crowd and wherever there was an event of some excitement or notoriety, Ouija would be there and make pictures of it. And often his picture would be on the front page of the newspaper the next day. And I just thought, you know, Houston was, as it still is, but was at that time such a vibrant, diverse, exciting city. I thought that's what I want to be. I want to be kind of the guy who makes pictures that record all the wonderful human things that are going on around this city. So I started looking for wherever there was a crowd going to be gathered. I would go to big parties. I'd go to sporting events. I would go to celebrations of all kinds. And one Friday afternoon, I was reading the Houston Post and there was a notice that that evening there were still tickets available for a big match between, I believe it was Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel in the Houston Coliseum. And I frankly never thought about wrestling since I was about 10, 11, or 12 years old when I used to watch it on TV with my brother when I was growing up. 
I had not thought about wrestling since then, but I thought, man, that could draw a crowd. There'd be some good crowd pictures to be made, I bet, at a wrestling match. So I called the number on the ad there, and I asked to speak to whoever was, I probably referred to him as the manager or director, I don't know, to see if I could get permission to come and photograph. And Paul Bosch came on the phone. And, you know, from the first phone call, he was so welcoming. I told him that I was, <laughs> this often helped me get entry into places. I told him I was a, a professor at Rice University, a professor of visual arts, and I specialized in photography, and I was doing a study of the city of Houston in pictures. And could I come and photograph uh, the wrestling matches? And he invited me to come. He told me to find him at the TV station, and he would introduce me to people. And that's how it got started. I went that Friday night and every Friday night for the remainder of 1971. That was sometime in early February when I started. And the project came to fruition really very quickly. You know, some things are best done with a great deal of time. This one seemed to be best done kind of in a flash. Uh, I photographed every Friday night. I sought out wrestlers during the week and interviewed them and photographed them at home. I sought out fans and did the same. And then I pulled it all together into a, a book in October and November, and it was out in late December of 1971. In a nutshell, that's how it happened. That's a heck of a year for you. I'm curious your thoughts. You know, a lot of wrestling promoters wouldn't be accepting to an outsider coming and saying, hey, I want to photograph what's going on there. I want to talk to the wrestlers. Yeah. Most promoters maybe would say, you know, no, no way. Stay away from my business. We don't want any exposure. What do you think about Paul Bosch made him accept you? You know, I honestly don't know. I will just say this about him in all honesty. And I, I'm, I'm giving you uh, an opinion that I've heard voiced a hundred times. He was just a prince of a guy. He was a really good man. And I think he, this may be naive of me, but I mean, I think he just kind of expected the best of people. Certainly he trusted me. I mean, he invited me before he ever met me to come and photograph. And then when I got there, it was just on a handshake and a hello that he said, go wherever you want. I mean, I could go into the dressing rooms. I could get in the ring between rounds. In fact, every now and then they would start the match before I got out of the ring. But he was just very accepting and very helpful. And without that kind of help, it would have never worked. One of the things that I think really stands out in the book is that, like I said at the top, you don't just cover and photograph what's happening in the ring. So much of the story, and I think this is really important, is who's watching what's happening in the ring. It's the voice of the fans. It's the images of the fans. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you a little bit about that, but first let me ask you, having not watched wrestling since you were a child with your brother, what did you expect going that first Friday night to the Sam Houston Coliseum? What did you expect in terms of what the action would be, but also, to this point, what did you expect the fans would be like, and were those expectations met, or was it something different altogether? Brian, the only thing I remember about my expectations, bear in mind, it's been almost 50 years now. The only thing I do remember is thinking, oh, there are going to be some great crowds there. You know, I, oddly enough, I don't remember that I thought about what the wrestling would look like, what the action in the ring would be like. 
If I did, I've, it's long lost to my memory. I, d- I don't remember that. I just remember thinking there's going to be excited crowds. Uh, I was particularly into photographing crowds, you know, and, and just like Ouija, you know, he would go to a, the scene of a murder, but instead of photographing the corpse on the street, he would photograph the crowd looking at it. And I was very influenced by Ouija's photographs. And so I think that's more than anything else the reason why I was thinking of the crowds when I went there. But I will tell you this, when I walked into the Houston Coliseum, and even before I found Bosch just walking in there, my first impression was just powerful. The ring, and at that point, they had a white mat on the ring. They later changed it to gray, which basically diminished the quality of my photographs a great deal. But initially, they had a white mat, the floodlights coming straight down onto the ring. And you know, the crowd, the front row of the crowd, was like 10 feet from the ring. They were right on the ring, and there were three levels. And a good night, the Sam Houston Coliseum would have 8,000 people in there. So it was loud, and it was exciting, and it, and it was beautiful. The bright lights and you know, big guys throwing each other into and out of the ring and the crowd going, it was just really exciting. I don't know that I expected any of that, but boy, I got that pretty quickly that it was a really exciting place. And I will tell you that as I look back on it and as I think about my interest, my real interest in that kind of wrestling, the locally promoted wrestling that we had there then. For me, it's just a very pure and beautiful kind of folk theater. That's what it is for me. And I remember convincing myself and talking to friends at the time that, you know, Shakespeare had been alive in 1971. You had been writing matches for Paul Bosch. (laughs) I just... I just found it to be so incredibly human, so passionate, and then so athletic, and so made for the camera. Wrestling certainly is, and to go back to the fans that you photographed, you know, you mentioned before Houston is a very diverse city, and your photos display a very diverse audience, an audience of young and old, white, black, Latino something you really don't see in wrestling today. And the other thing is, in wrestling today, where a major company may come to a town at best a few times a year, when you have something running regularly on Friday nights, as you point out in the book, so many of the audience members were regulars. They knew each other. They waved to each other. Yes. Oh, yes. That point about the racial diversity is really interesting. And, you know, I just hung a big show, photographs from the project, back in February, just before the pandemic hit, and just as the book came out. And there was a a good crowd there uh, for the show. And that was the comment that I think I got more than anything else about the photographs. People kept saying, wow, there's Blacks, there's Mexicans, there's Asians, everybody's there. And it's true. Young and old, very, very diverse crowd. And I guess... That's rare. It's hard to find that kind of uh, diversity in a crowd in any particular event now, but it certainly was there. Photographing the fans is one thing, but you also have quotes in there. What was the process like for you to actually talk to the fans to get quotes that you would later apply to the book? Well, you see, 
I very quickly became, thanks to Paul Bosch again, I very quickly became a personality there, uh, in, in a sense, a kind of a part of the whole deal. You know, he would, of course, film on Friday night. He would tape everything on Friday night. And then on Sunday mornings, he would have televised replays of everything except the main event. And included in that, he would have interviews with the wrestlers leading up to the next main event. But as many people, I'm sure many, many more people watched the Sunday morning television show than actually came to the Coliseum on Friday night. And on those uh, broadcasts, he would often put the camera on me and he would say something like, yeah, and again, tonight we have uh, distinguished professor Jeff Winningham from Rice University here recording this important match tonight. This will be part of Mr. Winningham's continuing collection of Houston wrestling through his, you know, he would just build me up. And, <laughs> and so the fans would then kind of relate to me like they would anybody else who was involved and people would start to talk to me. I got to know, oh, probably three or four dozen people who were regulars in those front row seats or first three or four rows. And, and they would talk to me uh, between matches. And I went and visited quite a few of them at home. That's where I got my interviews. And I will say that in terms of the book, one thing I'm very uh, happy with in the book is not just the photographs. But I love the conversations with the fans and the wrestlers and the way the photographs and the, if you want to call them interviews or the conversations with the fans kind of work together. And that became, that was my first book. I've done 13 books since then. And all of them, more or less, have followed that same kind of paradigm that I set. Photographs of what's happening, a text that relates to the picture, generally conversant with the people that are in the photographs. It worked for me then, and it still worked for me. And I found it in the Houston Coliseum on Friday nights. <laughs> Yeah, I think humans of New York probably owe you a royalty check for, <laughs> for taking that concept and running with it. But I wasn't the first. There were a couple of other photo books that did that, <laughs> but but I uh you know, I certainly used that technique there at the Coliseum. Yeah. One of the quotes I love in there is you're talking to one of the female fans who sits ringside with her husband, and she said one night she was really giving it to Johnny Valentine and he came to the floor and he Yeah moved his hand like he was going to strike her and he, and he said hit me so we can find out just how much money you have right <laughs> right yeah yeah as you're being built up as you're you know not just attending these things but as paul bosch is talking about you on tv what is the reaction at the university does anyone say anything to you are you getting attention from your colleagues from the people you work for for the fact that you're doing this anything no i'll tell you it's very interesting um i did not our department, visual arts department, was relatively new at the time. It had only been around at Rice for 10 years. And so we were a young kind of fledgling department and not part of the mainstream of the university. The arts were still growing at Rice and not part of the mainstream. And I was hired as a tenure track professor, meaning, you know, you go three years and if you don't get recommended for tenure, you got to leave. And I think the only reason I got tenure, I'm pretty sure it was the strongest factor is that after the book came out in 1971, there was a, a flood of interest in the book in what I would call the art photography community. For example, the American Federation of Art published a book in 1973, I think, 
the title of the book is Masters of Photography. And it begins with it begins with like Alfred Stieglitz and goes to Edward Weston. And it concludes, concludes, believe it or not, with seven pages of photographs from Friday night in the Coliseum. So when I came up for tenure and was asked to put forward my publications, I included that. Well, you know, uh, that looked really good. I mean, that I was, you know, the truth of the matter is that at any moment in contemporary art, whether it's photography or painting or whatever, there are certain people that are getting attention and certain people that aren't. And it's a matter of partly of just kind of breaks. Who got seen? Who got written about? Well, it was kind of the perfect moment for me to come up for promotion because that book had come out. And, you know, it was it did not sell. The book did not sell. It was a financial uh, failure. But it was a critical success. And I was soon selling prints from the book. Um, There was a guy in Switzerland that was ordering like three prints a month and did it for like six months. I sold prints to people in Paris. I sold actually a few photographs to a guy in Australia. The book got around critically. Even though it was a financial failure, it was a tremendous boost to my career. I mean, I kind of owe what recognition I have largely to Friday Night in the Coliseum. Paul Bosch was very accepting of you. What about the wrestlers? Because promoters aren't very welcoming typically, but also wrestlers, especially then, were very wary of outsiders being around their business, a business guarded in secrecy. You have quotes from various guys. You even visited the home of Nick Kozak in the book and spent some time with him and his family. Were the wrestlers accepting of you right off the bat? Right. Totally. I mean, totally. They looked forward to And I think it was a combination of things. First of all, the fact that Paul Bosch accepted me and touted me, you know, that must have helped. But maybe, maybe the main thing was this. I was genuinely, passionately interested in photography. I mean, in, in wrestling through my photography. I, I loved it. And they must have sensed that. And the other thing is, I was never interested in asking the question, is it real or not? Is it fixed or not? That was, you know, the farthest thing from my mind. It was what it was. And it was wonderful. And it was great. And so I think the fact that I never pried in that way, I never asked that stupid question, was it fixed? You know, I remember Tim Woods, who was one of the guys I talked to several times. Very, very intelligent man and a very popular wrestler in Houston. I remember in conversation with him at one point, which is in the book, it's summarized in a a passage in the book. You know, he said, What drives me crazy are these people that want to know if it's real or not. He said, I went to a movie last week, Love Story. He said, have you seen that? I said, yeah, I saw that. He said, well, you know, I was walking out of that movie and everybody seemed to have loved it. And nobody was asking, did Ryan O'Neill really fall in love with Ally McGraw? Now, why do they need to ask that kind of stupid question about wrestling? (laughs) You know, I, I just didn't go. I wasn't interested in going. I think that had a fair amount to do with my acceptance. I wasn't prying. I was just totally fascinated and kind of enthralled 
with the whole experience. And they probably picked up on that. One of the wrestlers that you photographed a lot in the book, and he's always so striking in every image. And you also talk to him. You have quotes from him, and I think you even have quotes from, I want to say maybe his wife in the book, or maybe it was his daughter, was Johnny Valentine. Oh, yeah. What are your memories of being around Johnny Valentine? He's obviously a legend in wrestling, and he was certainly a legend in Houston, Texas. What was it like being around him and, and even getting to talk to his family? Well, first of all, what established my relationship, I had a very good relationship with him. And what established it was, again, I told you how when the book came out, it just kind of went everywhere. And there was an article in Newsweek magazine, a cover story somewhere around, I would say, October of 72, uh, about a year after the book came out. There was a cover story in Newsweek about contemporary photography. And they had a half-page photograph that I'd made of Johnny Valentine in the article. And then a little caption beneath it, you know, Jeff Winningham's photograph, you know, professional wrestling. And, this, but it was, and there was Johnny Valentine. So literally, the next Friday night after that Newsweek hit the stands, I'm in the ring photographing the wrestlers coming in for the next match. And in comes Johnny Valentine, and he looked at me and smiled and stuck out his hand to shake my hand. And he said, we made Newsweek, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> so, so from that moment on, we were real buddies. And he, you know, was great to interview. And it's his daughter, Holly, that talked about him. He was a very interesting man. Uh, I didn't get to know him well. The only guy that I feel like I got to know pretty well was Tim Woods. I mean, uh, Wahoo was very open and very cooperative with me. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it all comes back to the fact that it was Paul Bosch who answered the phone that day. It was Paul Bosch who welcomed me. It was Paul Bosch that just kept opening doors for me one after the other. He really did. One of the wrestlers you feature in the book is Nick Kozak. And like we said earlier, you end up going to his house. There are photos of him with his wife. You have quotes from his wife, Sandy. You have pictures of him and his son. Mm -hmm. What was that process like? And also, did you do that with any of the other wrestlers? Did you actually go to their homes and meet their families at their houses? No, I don't. Th I think that's the only one that invited me to their home. That I was at. Most of my interviews with the wrestlers would be on a Friday afternoon before the match that night. And I would meet them in a hotel. I don't know how many of them lived in Houston. I don't think Johnny Valentine lived in Houston? Did he? Uh, if he had, I would have thought I would have probably been to his home at some point. But, you know, mostly, well, I didn't live in Houston. Uh, Dean Ho didn't live here. Certainly, Mil Mascaris did. So I don't think, Kozak was the only one I knew of at the time that lived in Houston. And he was a very gracious man and, you know, invited me there. So, no, he's the only one who I actually visited at home that I recall. Again, it's been a long time, so I could have forgotten here or there. Most of my interviews were in sitting in a restaurant or a coffee shop or, or at the hotel where they're waiting for the match that night. As you're working on this book, and like you said, it took you know the better part of 1971, you were completely immersed in this project. Yeah. Did you find yourself becoming a wrestling fan? Did you find yourself becoming interested in the feuds and the matches? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, sure. I mean, first of all, the, particularly the main events, you know, to watch a wrestling match between Johnny Valentine and Wahoo McDaniel, for example, two great wrestlers, to watch that match from five feet away 
right at the apron of the ring, you know, when they're right above you fighting it out. I mean, that was really exciting. And I remember thinking to myself over and over again, oh, my God. Oh, my God, he's going to kill him. Oh, don't let him kill him. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I became a fan in that sense. But more than that, uh, again, and I don't want to take it out of the realm of what it really was. It was a great athletic spectacle. Okay. But for me, what was so totally enthralling was the intimacy with the crowd. And, you know, uh, the other thing that people remarked on in my show, which I had back in February, and there are a lot of new photographs in the book that were in the show. One of the things that people remarked about is how many occasions there were for the fans to not just speak to, but to touch the wrestlers. And I have several new pictures in the book. There's one in particular of uh, Tim Woods leaving the ring. And he's seen from the back. I'm maybe 10 feet behind him. And I probably have my camera up kind of high in the air. And Brian, there's like 10 hands, brown, black, white, male, female, all reaching out to touch Tim Woods as he leaves. And one of them is right in front of me. It's a girl. You can tell by the, her hair, and she would appear to be about 14 or 15 years old, and she has her hand touching Johnny Valentine's butt. <laughs> she's, she's got her, her hand on his buttock, right there on his wrestling trunk. And, you know, that, that whole thing of the closeness of the crowd and the fact that they could, you know, if all they had to do to talk to them was get close to the dressing room before they would walk in or as they would come out and wrestlers would stop and talk and sign autographs. You know, they were kind of like gods once they got in the ring, but before and after they were human beings. And I'm sure that Bosch must have had a hand in, you know, making that happen of physically planning it so that the fans would have plenty of chances to actually come in contact with the wrestlers. And I think that's one reason why Contemporary wrestling doesn't interest me at all. I mean, zero. I can't really explain it. And I have to say, I haven't tried to get into it, but it's not the same on television. It's nowhere near the same. And uh, I can't get into it. Well, you know, one of the things that really differentiates contemporary wrestling with wrestling of the past, specifically the period we're talking about here, 1971, is that the fans were so emotionally involved back then. And there are always stories coming out of Houston, Texas of, you know, there was a night where the fans loved their good guy and he was getting his butt kicked and they couldn't take it and they were ready to riot. Did you have any moments like that where you're shooting at ringside and you thought, oh my God, the fans are going to do something. They can't take what's happening right now. They're going to jump in the ring or they're going to do something. Was it at all scary ever at ringside for you? Somewhat. I, I mean, I don't think I ever really had a panic. Okay. I never thought I got to get out of here or something like that. But I do remember matches where there's one, the one that closes my book. And by the way, I've expanded that match by about 10 pages in the book. It's a match between Ronald McDaniel and Mr. Houston, a mask guy. And I think everybody kind of knew that behind that mask was, in fact, Boris Malenko, who had wrestled in Houston the year before as a Russian immigrant and was much hated. 
and he lost a series of matches with Johnny Valentine and was banned, banished from the city. But he came back as this mask. But anyway, so he's wrestling Wahoo McDaniel, and he's beating him badly. I mean, Wahoo's bleeding. He's thrown out of the ring. And I remember at that point, you know, people, I'm outside the ring, close to the ring. And I remember people coming out of their chairs in numbers, pushing me toward Wahoo was out of the ring. So there were people out of their seats, very upset. But I don't remember being really fearful. It was just passionate. You know, it was like people couldn't stay in their seats. And, and there would be people that would help him up. That was the other thing. If a wrestler got thrown out of the ring, people would pick him up and help him back into the ring if that's where he wanted to go. So it was that direct connection between the fans and the wrestlers that was so fabulous. Who was the most popular wrestler with the Houston fans in 1971? Wahoo McDaniel. More than Mil Moscaris. No, no, I would say it would be Wahoo followed closely by Johnny Valentine. And Mil Moscaris had a big following, but he was here relatively seldom, probably only photographed in that year two maybe three matches with me and Musker, but Wahoo was here all the time. And, you know, people really, really loved Wahoo. I mean, he was just a deep down favorite. You know, I had someone, when the book came out, I had a lady that saw it on my website, ordered a book, and when she placed the order, she said, I have a photograph of myself with Wahoo as a child. And I want to send it to you. I want to send you a copy of it. Please give me your address. So I sent her the book she ordered, and she sent me this photograph of her. She's probably 12 years old, and she's sitting in Wahoo's lap, ringside. And it's like a, it's like a picture of a child with their favorite uncle. Yeah, he was, I think, overall, the most popular, the most loved of all the wrestlers around here. Well, on the topic of Mil Moscaris, let me ask you about some of the actual photos in the book, because I think some of the ones that really stand out the most are of Mil Moscaris, specifically that one of him doing the flying crossbody off the rope, which you just beautifully capture. Did you like shooting Mil Moscaris? Oh, yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he was, you know, first of all, he was just a magnificent specimen of a guy. I mean, he, he you know, he was just a perfect physique and big, I don't know. 6'3", something like that. And he wore that mask, or whichever mask, he wore a mask with this uh, kind of sense of mystery and pride about him. He was a scary guy. I remember one night I was standing on the TV podium photographing Bosch, who was interviewing a wrestler. And I became aware that Neil Muskerath, probably next up to be interviewed, was standing just behind me to my right. He's not five inches taller than me, a big guy. And they're in that mask, and it was kind of intimidating. And I kept looking over my shoulder because he kept getting closer to me. And then I realized he was looking at my camera. And, he's, huh. <laughs> and he finally, and finally, he spoke to me. Neil Musker spoke to me. And he said, you use Leica. I use Nikon. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> no, no, it's the truth. It's the truth. <laughs> I was not expecting that. 
Wow. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to ask him, do you shoot with your mask on or off? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew Mil Moskris was a photography buff? I'm surprised. Yeah, he, he was. We, and we ended up talking a little bit after that. I can't remember the conversation, but basically, yeah, he was a, not an amateur photographer. You know, Paul Bosch told me the story that the first time he came to Houston, he got off the airplane and took a taxi cab. And in the cab on the way into Houston, on the outskirts of the city, he put on his mask. And when he did, the cab driver pulled over, opened the door and ran, leaving him in the cab. He said, just get ready to go. <laughs> oh, that is funny. You know, yeah. another one of the photos I really love in the book, it may actually be my single favorite photo in the book. And it's just to me, it's so beautiful, is the photo that opens up the book of the empty Sam Houston Coliseum with the ring and all the chairs set up and the spotlights on the ring. Yeah. I love that photo. Uh, tell me a little bit about it. I mean, did you always intend on that being the first photo in the book? I did sort of. And you know, um, it was shot toward the end. I think most of the book was all together when I, it's really interesting. All of the pictures in the book, every one of them, except that one were shot with 35 millimeter and a Leica camera. That was my favorite still is. They're all 35 millimeter pictures. That picture of the ring was made with an eight by 10 view camera. The negative is eight by 10 inches. You know, it doesn't look much different at that size because, you know, there's virtually no enlargement to it in the book. It's about eight by 10 inches on the page. But, you know, that is a huge negative, probably required a 30 minute exposure. But just from a photography standpoint, it's the only picture in the book that was not. 35 millimeter. And I think I made it after I had the book kind of all laid out and I realized I didn't really have a first picture. The other picture that I made right at the end that I like a great deal is the picture of the guy selling photos. All right, when I go yeah. through the book, when I go through the book with people, sometimes I say, you know, that's me. <laughs> he's a kind of a funny looking man with a very thin kind of emaciated face and he's holding this kind of a big uh, poster board with about a dozen photographs on it and th that's when you realize why we couldn't sell the books I mean you could buy all a dozen of those photographs as I recall for a dollar uh, and I'm sure he sold a lot of them for people to get autographs on but our book at that point we were trying to sell for five dollars so we sold very few, very few. One of the other images, you bring up autographs. Obviously, at times there were fans around the ring looking to get autographs from the wrestlers before the matches started. Yeah. There's an image, and I guess it's the fans took their pens and would draw on the mat and write things on the mat. Yeah, there's another one of those pictures, a new picture in the book of that. That's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, they would draw, they would write notes to the wrestlers on the ring. Yeah, I added a new picture in the book of that. It's interesting you mentioned that one. God, so much interesting stuff <laughs> around there. Yeah. What are some of your other favorite photos in the book? Are there ones that you're more proud of than others? What are the ones that really stand out to you? Well, I have to say my current favorite is the one I mentioned to you a minute ago, the one of Tim Woods leaving the ring with all these hands reaching out to touch him. But it's new. It's kind of fresh to me. I only found it uh, last summer when I was scanning negatives. But I do love that picture. There's another picture I like a lot. There's a girl, a uh, young girl, maybe 14, 15 years old. She's standing beside the ring 
and she's holding a Polaroid camera and she's holding up a picture that she just taken of a Pepper Gomez in the ring. And I, it's a really sweet portrait. I mean, it just kind of shows the fans' devotion. I mean, the, the idolizing that they did of the wrestler. I just think it's a really terrific picture. Of course, the cover photograph, which is like a gift. I mean, you could never imagine a photograph like that. You know, Paul Bosch is actually seen between the wrestler's legs. His face, you often might not notice it unless you knew him. But in the picture over to the right-hand side, under the legs of the guy that's running out of the ring, is Paul Bosch's face. And that picture, well, that's the one that is kind of the marquee picture from the book. And it's a good one. That's for sure. I also love the picture of your mask dress flying off the ring. What did you call that whole? I called it flying body press because I think that's what Paul Bosch called it. What did you call that where he's coming off the ring post? A variation of that flying cross body. Oh, yeah. A flying cross body press, I guess, if I was going to be a little more specific. So same thing. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Those are some of them. What else? Um, I like the one that there's one of Johnny Valentine getting splashed with water between rounds. It's just an interesting image with the water flying around his face. <laughs> I'm really anxious for you, Brian, to see the, the new book because I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, there's a lot of good new pictures in there, you know? Well, I'm certainly going to be getting a copy, and I'm going to encourage all the other listeners to do so as well. We'll give them more information about that in a little bit. A few more questions for you, Jeff, because I find this to be such a fascinating project. How did you actually wrap it up? I mean, was it tough to say, okay, that's it. We've got everything we need for this book. I'm going to now proceed. I'm going to put everything together. What was the process of putting the book together? I know you were distributed by a company called, I believe, Light Impressions in Rochester, New York. How did you secure the distribution deal? Tell me about actually putting the book together. Okay, well, there are several parts of that that are particularly interesting, I think, in looking back. You know, people, my students ask me all the time, or others, how do, you, how do you get a book published? Well, there's as many ways to publish a book as there are potential books. I mean, they come about in all sorts of different ways. And at one time or another, I've experienced a lot of them. But this one, the first one, is kind of the craziest one of all. First of all, I had been photographing from February into October, kind of every Friday night. And I was making prints as I went. And I had a big stack of prints. I probably had 300, 400 prints of what I thought were the best images. And uh, I had always wanted to make a book. From the beginning, I thought to myself, I'd love to make a book of photographs of this. As a way, if nothing else, of bringing the words, the conversations with the interviews together with the pictures. And I envisioned it as being a kind of a cinematic thing where it would begin with uh, the fans arriving. And then the wrestlers would come into the ring, and then there would be introductions, and then the match would start, and the match would proceed, and somebody would win, and somebody would lose, and it would be, you know, they would have a, a, the progression of a match. So I, that was in my mind. And in, um, I want to say, mid-October, you know, I was 27 years old, and I didn't need to sleep. I just kind of pulled all of my pictures together one evening, and I got out a big sketchbook and started sketching a layout and putting the pictures in order. And I think I started about 9 o'clock at night, and about 5 a.m., I had it done. 
I was, and I really never substantially changed the layout from that. I mean, I'm sure I switched some pictures around here and there, but I laid out the book in kind of one straight through. And then I had to transcribe all of my interviews and write those down, get them typed out, which I did. That probably all took me about two weeks. There's a very fine printer here. It was here in town, Wetmore and Company. I went to them and I priced the book. And I had this insane number in my mind. <laughs> I thought we need to print about 10,000 of these. Well, you know, very few <laughs> books. Get wow. anyway, so I got a price and, and it was almost exactly $10,000 for 10,000 books. And then I went to this guy I had met while I was a student, as an undergraduate student. He was a representative for a jewelry company that sold college rings. And he'd made a fortune selling college graduation rings and stuff like that. We became friends. And he said to me, Jeff, when you have your first book ready to publish, bring it to me and we'll do it. Well, I don't know if he meant it at the time, but I sure remembered it. So I found Jess Allison in his office and told him I had the book. And this is how it went, just about like this. He said, what's it about? And I said, professional wrestling. And he said, is it good? I said, yeah, I think it's really good. He said, <laughs> do you think we can sell it? Yeah, I said, I think we can. He said, how much will it cost? And I said, $10,000 for 10,000 copies. He said, what can we sell it for? I said, at least $5. He said, let's do it. That's how quickly, the, the, so I then, made the name Allison Press. As many photographers, you, you name it for whoever's putting up the money or for whatever. You know, it's a press because you're publishing a book. So then uh, we went to Wetmore and they printed 10,000 copies. And the printing of the pages of the book were very good. And then they went to the binder and company here in Houston and Emmett botched the binding and ruined the covers of the soft covers of 8,800 books. Oh. So instead of having 10,000 books, we had 1,200, which was like by the grace of God, because then Jess and I were able to settle with Wetmore for something like $2,500, and we had 1,200 books, and it took us probably five years to get rid of them. If we'd have had 10,000, we'd have been burning them. Yeah, in terms of actually selling them, were you selling them at the wrestling cards in Houston? When I mentioned before that you had a distributor, were the books distributed to other places? Well, yes, nominally. But, I mean, distribution of books, of course, has changed light years since then. I mean, the Internet, Amazon, online buying, all that has changed it totally. Back then, you really had only one option for a book that you wanted to distribute nationwide or worldwide. You had to find a major publisher, be it Norton and Company or Abrams Books or Doubleday. They had the network to distribute your book, okay? And if it was going to sell, they'd find the audience. They had the salesman that went out on the beat and went to the bookstores and placed them there. Short of that, you had to be able to find your market, your buyers, and sell to them directly. And we, I thought we had Light Impressions was a photo supplier to the kind of art photography market. They sold archival mount board and archival albums and products for the serious kind of art photographer. And they also 
were starting to distribute books. They had five or six titles they were distributing, and Friday Night at the Coliseum was one of them. Well, it just didn't work. I mean, for whatever reason, maybe they weren't good at it. Maybe, I mean, I remember at one point them telling me, Jeff, there's just nobody out there interested in wrestling. I don't think that was true, but I think they couldn't find them. And so they sold very few books. We sold more books locally just by, you know, when I would give a little talk or give a, have a show or something, I might sell five or 10 books here or there. Uh, like I said, those 1,200 trickled out over a long period of time, and there were a lot of them given away. I doubt that we recovered more than $2,000, uh, probably not even $1,000 of the 2,500, as I recall, that the book finally cost us. Yeah. When the book came out, what did you do in Houston? Was there a launch party? A small one. I told you about the book that you have that has the autographs in it. Yeah. When the book came out, I had a little photo gallery where I sold my work and the photographs of other people. And we had a, a book signing there. I don't know. Yeah, I might have sold 20 or 30 books there. And certainly the wrestlers came and, and autographed them. But, you know, it's all changing now. It has changed and it continues to change in terms of the marketing of books. You know, nowadays, all you really have to do is kind of get connected with Amazon or I'm not even my, this book is, I don't know that it's found on Amazon. You know, I, I did a, a search just a couple of days ago out of curiosity. I went to Google and searched books on professional wrestling. Okay. And my book did not come up. And then I'd search something else like photographs of professional wrestling. Didn't go, I could not get my book to come up. And what would come up instead were kind of biographies of by wrestlers. So I, you know, I think my book is still a bit hard to find. If I get, if it went through Amazon and I had the right search words, people would probably find it better. But as I was telling you, people are finding it. And I don't, don't know exactly how, but I've, I've had two orders go to Australia. I've sold, I guess, three books to Spain. And then I get like an order a day, which is just insane. I never thought that would happen. It's now possible, I think, to do a book. And if you have a good website and it's about a subject that people are interested in, it looks like people are going to find it. The copy of the book I have from 1971, it's autographed by six different people. One of, of course, being you uh -huh. and the other five people were Nick Kozak, Buddy Wolf. Bronco Lubitsch, Ernie Ladd, and Dean Ho. How did you facilitate getting them to the launch party? <laughs> yeah, I told Paul Bosch, or maybe he asked me, you know, he was always so helpful. He might have asked me, what can I do to help you? Anyway, I told him I was having this uh, book signing with the book release. He said, okay, he said it was going to be, I believe, on a Friday afternoon. He said, would you like to have some of my guys over there to sign books? I said, wrestlers? He said, yeah. I said, well, yeah. So those guys showed up and, you know, one of them was Ernie Ladd. As he was leaving, I said to Ernie Ladd, wow, thank you for coming to sign books. And he looked down at me, even what was he, seven feet tall, looked down on me and said, it's okay. I do whatever Paul Bosch tells me to do. <laughs> <laughs> what was Paul Bosch's reaction to the book? He loved it. He loved it. You know, I have uh, had 
I don't know what I did with that. Mike could still locate it. He wrote me a letter at Christmas time, right after the book came out. And I believe he said in the letter that he was on a plane flying to Hawaii for a Christmas vacation. And he just thanked me for doing the book and told me how wonderful he thought it was. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in a, it, we were a perfect partnership in that way because, you know, I mean, I think that my book could not have done anything but help him. I mean, it, it authenticated it, as if it needed authenticating. It gave a lot of attention to wrestling to a crowd that might not have thought of it before. And then there's all the, you know, there was the Newsweek, the American Federation of the Arts. I mean, look, there's a Swiss magazine that did like 12 pages of, it was everywhere. And so my work provided Paul a kind of a exposure that he might not have had before. And then, you know, the, the whole access that he gave me to wrestling and his support launched my career. So if somebody came out, the better for it. It was me. But I mean, it, there was good in it for him, too. When you were done with the book, once the book was released, obviously you said you sold some copies at the wrestling events. But did you still attend wrestling? Did you ever miss shooting at ringside? Did you ever think about revisiting and doing a second wrestling project? What was your relationship with wrestling after the publication of the book? Well, I came back and I shot a film about it. I got a grant from the uh, Public Broadcasting Corporation and shot uh, a black and white film in 1972. That film never had a lot of distribution. It was shown on public television in Austin, the station. That, that, but it never, again, very hard, particularly it was very hard back then. It's not like the YouTube days. Now, if you had an independent documentary film, what did you do with it? Well, you sat at home and looked at it yourself, mostly. There wasn't much of a way to get it out and around. And it was a bit of a, I mean, it's a, it, I would describe it as a kind of a charming film full of all these characters that I met and talked to at the wrestling. But it was kind of rough. It was like a black and white home movie. I mean, I still like looking at it, and it's got some great moments in it. But that took me longer than the book. I started it in 72 and finished it, I think, in maybe mid-1973. And then after that, I kind of went on to other things. I um, kind of felt like I'd done it there with wrestling. I would go back from time to time, tell you a, <laughs> a funny story on myself. It was after the book and the film. It would have been probably 1973. And Paul called me up one day and said, could I persuade you to come to the wrestling matches Friday night? And I said, of course you can. And he said, I'd like to ask you a favor. And I said, well, anything, what can I do for you? And he said, I'd like you to make a photograph for me. And I said, sure, of what? He said, well, I'll show you when you come, but if you would just come at about 8.30, I'll be up on the TV stand interviewing. If you would come to the TV stand, then I'll show you then. So okay, I'll be there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so like I said, I was young and probably by then 28, 29 years old. I went to dinner with some friends and had a few more beers than I would do now and looked at my watch and it was like, oh my God, I've only got 10 minutes to get down there. And I had had a fair amount to drink. And so I got my friends to run me down to the Coliseum. I got my camera over my shoulder, loaded it with film, ran across the Coliseum floor. There was Bosch up on the interview stand. I ran up there, got ready. I'm still kind of a little high. And then he reaches, he looks up 
and he motions to me to come in front of the camera. And I was like, what? <laughs> He's motioning to me to come in front of the camera. And I'm looking around like, who's he motioning to? But he did it again. And he said, come on out here, Professor Winningham. <laughs> so, unfortunately, I saw this on television Sunday when they did the rebroadcast, and it was the goofiest thing you can imagine. <laughs> I walked, <laughs> I walked out in front of the camera, and Paul shook my hand, and he turned to the camera and said, "All of you have seen Professor Winningham here, for documenting these important matches, and uh, you might have even seen his film that he made." and we're here tonight to give him an award. And someone handed him this plaque, which he handed to. This is my proudest possession, Brian. It's a plaque with a brass cauliflower ear on it. And underneath it, it says, bestowed upon Jeff Winningham. I forgot, it's something like uh, March, blah, 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 1974. The title of honorary wrestler. Oh, wow. And he handed it to me. I saw all this on TV. <laughs> he handed it to me and said, Jeff, you are the first person that we have bestowed this honor on. You are an honorary wrestler. And Brian, <laughs> I looked at the plaque and then I looked up at the camera. I have no idea where this came from. I looked up right into the camera and I said, well, Paul, this is great. But what I really want to be is a real wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, left Bosch speechless. <laughs> there, was no... <laughs> wow. there was no reply to that. I mean, I have no idea. I mean, I've never thought of myself in any way as wanting to be in a wrestling ring wrestling. I don't know where that came from. It came from a lot of beer. And probably just being on the spot and not knowing what the hell to say. But that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> Let's fast forward now here to 2020. It is almost 50 years since you worked on this project, since you first released the book Friday Night in the Coliseum. Tell us what you're doing right now with this project. Tell us about, like I said at the top, I don't know whether to call it a reissue is the correct way to phrase it. because. As we said, you've expanded upon your original body of work, and you've added so much more, not just in terms of quality, but in terms of the photos and the story. Let the listeners know exactly what you're doing right now with this project, and also how, if they're interested, they can get a copy for themselves. Okay. Well, uh, my interest in redoing the book grew last summer, roughly a year ago. I started entertaining the idea. That because the book is so hard to find and so expensive when you find it and often so beat up when you find it, I, I wanted to somehow make it available. I went back and last summer I scanned all of the negatives of all the pictures that are in the book, typed in all of the interviews, recreated the book digitally so that a printer today could take it and go with it. I got some publication support money from the university where I teach and the rest of it. I put in myself, and I printed 500 copies of this, what I would call, I would call it a second revised edition. It's the second printing of the book, but it's definitely revised because the first book is 144 pages. This one's 180. 
And there are quite a few new photographs in there. I made a lot of corrections of small errors that most people besides me would never notice, but it's a perfected, polished, and beautifully printed second edition. Printing has gotten the quality of it so much better that this is. And so I printed 500 copies. And then it turns out that the 50th anniversary of my department at Rice was coming up this February. And so I did an exhibition of photographs from the work that opened February the 20th and came down a month ago. So the book came out in its second revised edition. It hung the show. And the book, uh, I don't ha- I'm not selling it through any bookstores or any other venue except through my website. And that's Jeff Winningham, G-E-O-F-F-W-I-N-N-I-N-G-H-A-M, jeffwinningham.com. And uh, they can, there are three different versions of the book. There's a, a kind of a, a elaborate soft cover edition. It's called a flex cover. It's a very beautiful uh, soft cover that has folded in sheets. And then the second is a hard bound version in a slipcase. And the third is a hardcover slipcase with an original photograph in it. So they can go to my website and they can order them. And I'm here taking orders and putting them in the mail the next day. And do you still want to be a real wrestler? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. I don't think I could hold my own in that ring with any of those guys. So I I told you, I don't know where that came from. I don't know. But uh, no, I'm happy being the photographer of wrestling. And, you know, I I conclude, I wrote an afterword to this uh, edition of the book in the last thing I basically say is that, you know, none of us should be surprised that wrestling has changed and that wrestling as we knew it in 1971 is gone, gone. And it's not coming back. Nobody should be surprised at that. But I am a bit grateful that I was able to to have the time and the energy to make my own personal record of it. And there it is in that book. Friday night in the Coliseum. There you hear it, Jeff Winningham and the new reissue. I don't know if reissue is the right word, just like we just talked about, of Friday night in the Coliseum. Get your copy today. We'll have more information at the end of the show, in case you didn't hear him just say it, about how you can get that book. But on the topic of books, Hold it for a second, Jack Last. Who is this? You know who this is. I'm the man who tells it like it is. Is this, is this Jesse the Body Ventura? You can call me Janos. Janos? Like Thanos? Who's Thanos? You know, from the, uh, the Avengers movies. The Infinity Gauntlet. There's Thanos. Thanos of Titan. I beat Titan in court. I went head-to-head with McMahon, and I beat him. I conquered Titan in federal court one Two and three. All right, we're not talking about that. We were talking. Well, we were doing about to do book of the week. Is there some reason why you're here? Do you have something to say this week? Oh, I have a lot to say, but we don't have a lot of time to say it. I'm here for the top ten. We're actually not doing the top ten this week. No, no, no. I brought my own top ten. Your own top ten. Number ten, downtown Detroit. All right. Is this a top 10 of your favorite cities? Number nine, 
ravishing Rick Rude. I'm not exactly sure what it is you're trying to do here on the show. Number eight, the government. Okay, what is this? What are you doing exactly? What are you afraid of, Lasto? I'm just asking questions. You didn't ask any questions at all. I'm looking for the truth. The truth about what? Number seven, Joey Morella and the Illuminati. Okay, I think we need to wrap this up. This is getting a little ridiculous. Wrap it up. I knew you would try to silence me. Listen, Chico, you better watch out because I'm prepared to follow the money. What money? Sure. Play dumb. I'll be back. Maybe even for the top ten. Watch out, hiccuping moolah. Watch out, handsome boogeyman. When I return, I'll beat all of you for one, two, and three. Back to you, gorilla. (laughs) Well, there's no gorilla here, Jesse, but let's get going with, as I was trying to do before, Book of the Week! Book of the Week. Book of the Week. And of course, we have several great books that we profile here on this episode of the 605 Super Podcast. First, let me mention the one we just heard about. Jeff Winningham, Friday Night in the Coliseum, Deluxe Editions, out now. Go to jeffwinningham.com. That's G-E-O-F-F W-I-N-N-I-N-G-H-A-M, jeffwinningham.com, for the new edition of Friday Night in the Coliseum, on sale right now. As Jeff said earlier, there are several editions available for sale. This is a must-have. For any classic wrestling fan, jeffwinningham.com, Friday night, in the Coliseum. Also got to make mention of Steve Verrier's book, Gene Kaniski, Canadian wrestling legend, as well as Brad Baluchian's fantastic, The Wax Pack. All books available right now at tinyurl.com slash superpod, Amazon, as well as the book we're about to profile next. The Eighth Wonder of the World, The True Story of Andre the Giant by Bertrand Bear and Pat LaProd. Once again, tinyurl.com slash superpod, Amazon. Lots of other shows have links they want you to use. Lots of other shows want you to use their referral links. You have to ask yourself, which show delivers the goods? Which show, when it comes out, do I stop what I'm doing, sit down, and listen to it? Because I know it'll be better than everything else I hear today. I think if you think about it long enough, hard enough, the answer will be quite obvious to you. When it comes down to it, when it comes down to those other shows, when it comes down to them or us, fuck those guys. Support the Super Podcast. Support your Super Podcast. With that said, let's now go to the main event, my conversation with Bertrandy Bear, one of the authors of The Eighth Wonder of the World. The true story of Andre the Giant. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast today a friend of the show and someone who has done as much as anyone to document the history of wrestling in Montreal. And that, of course, is our returning champion, Bertrand Bear. Bertrand, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Very happy to be back and very happy to present that brand new project about the eighth wonder of the world. Well, we're going to talk about that because you previously have been on the show to talk about the Mad Dog Vashon biography, Mad Dog, to talk about Accepted, the Pat Patterson biography, and you have now put out with Pat LaProd, The Eighth Wonder of the World, the true story 
of Andre the Giant. And I have to say, I have just about maybe 90 to 95% of every wrestling book or biography that's ever been written. And I have to take my hat off to you and Pat. I have to commend you. This may be the single greatest wrestling biography that anyone's done. It is stunning in how good it is. And I, I, I'm blown away by the work you guys have done here. So first off, my hat's off to you, Bertrand. Thank you. I mean, the, 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 the comments have been so glamorous and so perfect so far. I mean, it's a little bit humbling because when you work so hard on a book and so much, you know, you cannot see the, the tree from the forest at some point. Uh, you just want to get them out. And uh, we were trying also to get the French version out at the same time. We translated our original English back to our native French. And we did all of that at the same time. So at some point, you know, you just cannot see the words anymore. You're just trying to get it done, to get it perfect. And the, the, the wave of love and great critics from everybody so far has been very, very humbling and very rewarding as well. So we're very happy. Well, I think one of the reasons you guys are hearing such a claim for the book is that you tackled a topic that it would be very easy to screw up. Because there are so many myths, there are so many stories out there, there are other books, there are graphic novels that have been written about Andre the Giant, and it's hard to get through and figure out what's real versus what is a myth. What is something that was either a myth created by promoters or created by Andre himself? And you guys did that. You guys tackled this. I mean, again, I, I gotta say I'm blown away by what you've done with this book, and it begins... You know, the book kind of begins with you guys approaching that because I think the first words in the book, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it right in front of me, is, so the story goes, and then you tell the story as it's popularly told about WrestleMania 3, 93,000, undefeated streak, the first body slam, and then you deconstruct everything from the beginning of his career until the very end of his career from there. Was it a difficult process for you to figure out the fact from the fiction? I wouldn't say difficult, but always there. And it's, it's, it's always about, you know, asking questions to more than one person, then digging a little bit, reading, researching the newspaper archives, the, the other interviews, books from different people. And, and, and at some point, you know, you get some information that just where you're like, whoa, okay, now, now that makes sense. That actually makes more sense now. And you just go from there and you build that wall and that those brick by brick until you have everything. And, and, and obviously, you know, we're not also saying, you know, it, it's perfectly in 100% truth everywhere. You know, I'm sure, you know, there's so many stories out there that maybe some of them, you know, are not quite as, but, you know, anything that we could deconstruct and, and, and dig and try to figure out what was going on. We, we were more than happy to do so because he's such an important character and person in the story of the business that, you know, he, he deserves as much. And there was, you know, a little time uh, before everybody that actually knew him and worked with him uh, were gone. I mean, I, I was able to speak to Mean Gene as we went along during that process and he's gone by now. And so it, it was important to, to dig because what has been done so far was very uh, superficial uh, and, and sometimes clearly just didn't go and dig what was going on. And as good as the HBO documentary was, you know, they had 80 some minutes 
to tell the whole story. So obviously uh, there was a huge chunk of his life and career that had to be left on the cutting room floor. So we were able to go and dig deeper and ask questions where, you know, a documentary would not have at the time. We had the time and we took it. You know, we worked on this for the better part of the past two years. So um, we're very happy, even with everything going on, that we're finally able to uh, present our baby and have, uh, you know, people enjoy it so much. has been also very uh, rewarding, like I said. You know, I was someone who was disappointed with the HBO documentary, although there was some good stuff in there. It always bothers me when there are things that are just known to be false that are included in a documentary. You know, like Shane McMahon saying that Andre was working in just tiny buildings until his grandfather got him which is completely false, and the book does a great job of laying out just how false that is. Two, they had someone they said was a wrestling historian who clearly wasn't, who said Andre was going around like the NWA champion and fighting the top good guy in every town. And I think professional wrestling needed a book like this to really break down the truth about Andre the Giant and Andre Rusimov as a person. Let's get into this a little bit. What is the origin of this project? Obviously, the last time you were on the show, I believe, was for Accepted. Uh, which came first, Accepted or Mad Dog? Uh, Accepted came after Mad Dog, so it must have been for Accepted. Yeah, so you were on for Accepted, and that was a couple of years ago, I think. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago now. And after that, you know, Pat ended up being involved as a consultant and then as a field producer for the HBO documentary. So... As soon as he got the call on that, I mean, I, I was helping with some research as we went along and, and feed him some, some material. But, you know, as soon as it was there, I mean, it was like, okay, well, that will give me in to speak to a lot of people, especially the family and friends, and, and, and set this up. But also, did uh, the, the project will obviously bring back Andre into the limelight. And the Andre the Giant official or complete biography was always a project that we had on the back of our mind, we had actually pitched it before and it had been uh, turned down. So, and then another project came along and we, we moved on to the next one. So when we had that chance, we were like, okay, we need to present a new pitch to ECW Press. And, you know, with Pat working on the documentary, you know, it, it was just a logical step to move forward with that project. And we were so happy CW Press felt the same. And, and they, you know, uh, those, those book contracts always have a, a minimum of words and a maximum of words that the manuscript's supposed to count. But, you know, we have that great relationship where it's like, uh, give us the best book possible, you know. So we, we do try to trim as we go along, but we always end up delivering a little bit more than than the, than the maximum. But uh, to our great surprise, most times, uh, you know, they, they keep the whole thing. And as people will say, this is a close to 500-page book, hardcover, uh, beautiful book. And, you know, there's over 120 or close to 130 pictures in there. Even the pictures from WWE was very helpful in providing pictures. And, you know, for that type of work, we, we love to go for pictures we haven't seen ourselves. So I think people will be pleasantly surprised in seeing uh, quite a few pictures, maybe classic from Andrew, but also pictures they may have never seen before. Well, I wanted to ask you about that. Did you get cooperation from WWE beyond photos? Was it just photos? And also, in terms of the research, what was that process like? Obviously, you have family members in here from his daughter to his nephew, Boris. 
various people. You have the story of his origins in France. What was the process of researching the book like? And also, how much cooperation did you get from WWE? Well, WWE has a good relationship with our publisher, ECW Press. So uh, they were very uh, forward with the pictures and anything we needed in that department. Uh, you know, of course, we didn't make any attempt to get an interview with Vince or anything of that nature. I have a fantastic relationship with Pat Patterson, so I was able to speak with him and, and other people we have met as we went along from J.J. Dillon, who worked back then as an, an agent with Titans at the time and, and, and all that. So uh, people were very forward uh, with us. And, you know, Boris was instrumental with the family in introducing everybody. He lives in Montreal. He, he, he first introduced himself to us when we launched the first book uh, and he came to the launch and we have been keeping in touch since then. And, you know, he always pushed that, you know, if we wanted to do a book about his uncle, he, he wanted us, uh, he wanted to help. And, you know, and he really came through on this all the way through. And uh, so we were, he was very, very instrumental in, in, in getting the origin story, the real origin story from friends and the family to getting us that feeling from Andrews at the end of, at the end of his life, you know, I, for one, you know, I'd never heard that, but you know, yet, uh, Boris was with Andrew at the end of his uh, life or his last Christmas in Ellerby. And, you know, Andrew was tired. He was thinking of selling the ranch and things of that nature, which, you know, gives us a whole new perspective on, uh, on the giant and on Andrew Wusimov which was always very intriguing to me as a fan growing up because in Montreal, Andre was uh, very important. And, you know, if you grew up watching Andre, I think we all feel he, he was so important and so magical when he was in town. So um, it, it, was a, a, it was a great process all along. Of course, you know, we would love for, for Robin to really sit with us and, and give us a full interview, but that, that just didn't happen for whatever reason that our own. But it is part of the the process. So she had her own thing with the graphic novel, and you know, there's the Android, the, the people who took care of Android's name and his licensing and all that. So it's a little bit complicated around there. But you know, it's it, it, at the same time there was so much stuff out there, and, and that's where our research came, came along. I think there's like four or five pages just of material uh, in our uh, a reference page. So, you know, we really went everywhere when anyone has done an interview or left anything about Andrew, there's a pretty good chance we, we read it and heard it and, and took notes. So, you know, we, I think we constructed the, what is the true story of Andrew the Giant, uh, for sure. And the deconstruction of the myths really starts at the beginning, because you tell the story of Andre and his family in France. And we've all heard the stories. He had a grandfather that was a giant or yeah. Edouard Carpentier discovered him because a tree fell in the middle of the road. I mean, we've all heard these various <laughs> stories and you and Pat really get in there and deconstruct all these stories and try to tell truth from fiction. What was that like in telling the story of the early years of Andre the Giant? Because so many people, they may pick up the story once he came to the United States. Some people may pick up the story where he gets to Montreal, but to tell the story of Andre yeah. in Europe, and I guess even you could say Japan, the early years in Japan, what was that I like? mean, for me, I mean, learning about the early years in France, uh, the, the year when he traveled to the UK on a regular basis or went to different countries, 
and, and then his early days in Japan, that was fascinating because that's the kind of stuff that has not been discussed so much. Uh, there, there was a lot of other historians and, and friends uh, who we've come in contact uh, during the, the past few years since the first book uh, about the Montreal Territory, Mad Dog Midget and Screwjobs, uh, not to mention it. And they were all so helpful in bringing new information, pictures, translating Japanese programs for us, and stuff that are, you know, that, that changes everything because you get that little tidbit, and then, you know, that tidbit leads to asking so many questions to different people. And from there, you know, the portrait, to say the French word, just suddenly paints itself in front of you, and you're like, oh, my God, you know. I, I thought I knew Andre. You know, I remember doing a presentation in class uh, about Andre the Giant, and it, you know, I used the Sports Illustrated article, and, and that has for so long been the Bible on Andre, and it's full of those stories, and they're basically stories for most of them. So it's like people have uh, known the Andre the Giant mytho, not much about how it became, uh, why it was, and who was the Andrew Rusimov guy that, that played that Andrew the Giant on TV. Uh, and, and to a point where he started to forget that he was even there and just was Andrew the Giant all the time. So it, it's, it's, for me, it was like fascinating uh, because he, he's Andrew and learning anything new that you didn't know when you were new, we've all had the impression of knowing everything on Andrew if we've been uh, interested in, in the history of the business and it's like okay there's so much more and, and, and you know the person i mean today i mean even big show can have a private life even though you know when he goes out he, he's probably not uh, going without some notice but andre back then was like he had to be on all the time there was no baseball cap or sunglasses that would have hide him from anybody how hard is that to be on all the time and airports and just fitting in a plane uh, was was an issue. Being in an hotel room, you know, is an issue. We realized that on one of our convention trips was like, okay, that bathroom and that shower is almost too small for me. And I'm six foot. <laughs> like, okay, so Andre is in a strange city and the bed is too small. The shower is too small why do you think he spent the night at the bar? And it's not like he was going to play video game or the phone or anything of that nature to entertain. And that was the only entertainment available for someone his size was to sit in the corner and drink. And as the body started to fail him, well, that became something else. And that's also very interesting uh, to see that, you know, that change from the happy goal, lucky man he was when he first came to North America to, to the, bittersweet giant uh, from the, the end of his career and the end of his life. So there was a lot. Not to fast forward too far ahead, but to touch on that point, one of the things your book points out that I think is a really interesting fact that a lot of people overlook is that for so many years, Andre would fly into a town and then he would work, you know, several cities in a territory driving in a car yeah. from one town to another. And then once Vince went national, that changed because Andre was now on a plane almost every single day flying to a different place. And for so many of those new markets that the WWF, I was about to say opened up, but truly invaded 
they relied on Andre as much as they relied on Hogan to get new people in the door. I mean, that's what one thing that we wanted to uh, emphasize is how important Andre was uh, when uh, WWF went national. And then how important the feud with Hogan was also because it went beyond WrestleMania 3. I mean, the travel, I mean, any new territory with, where Andre had been, I mean, that usually was on the marquee when they came into town at some point because he was a known entity for, for, for the WWF in the new market. But also, I mean, the feud with Ogan, I mean, a lot of the books before kind of put a bow and tie on the whole thing by making WrestleMania 3 the end of it all or something, or make it seem like there was nothing else after, but there was so much more. And, and, and you can point to, to, to the fact that the Royal Rumble and SummerSlam and the Survivor Series were also built on the Ogan and Andre feud. And I thought that that was very interesting business-wise how even more important uh, the feud was business-wise than even if it's in the in the intro of every show that feud really helped build the company on all aspects so it's uh and that's something that you don't necessarily realize maybe maybe because it's been too long or we all they're always only speaking of wrestling a tree but you know the, the the first main event of SummerSlam, the first main event of the, the, the Survivor Series. They had the big contract signing at the first Royal Rumble for their rematch. You know, so that's a lot. And not not to even mention the fact of the, the special in NBC with the main event when Andrew finally won the championship. You know, <laughs> for two minutes, quote, you know, <laughs> for two minutes, but he still got it. Uh, you know, that's still the most watched match uh, in the. Uh, television history in uh, the u.s so and people from that era for you know if you've done just a few conventions and here locally we could always see it people from that chunk of time in let's say 86 to 1990 i mean those characters from that time period got so much eyeballs on them uh, during that time that you know to this day those guys are still over to a certain degree uh, I, I know here, I mean, the name that is often mentioned was Coco Beware, and he, he had those years where you would, you know, there's so many people on the product, and you had the bird and everything, so that really stick into people's mind, uh, and, and they remember that because wrestling was so hot, and a lot of it is because of the Ogan and Andre feud. Yeah, you know, the book actually put it in an interesting way. I'd never seen someone just flat out say it like this before, but I thought it really hammered the point home. And that is when WrestleMania three happened and Vince McMahon Jr. sells it to Andre that they're going to do it at the Silverdome. Andre's in bad shape. Andre's in England coming uh, off the Princess Bride. And Vince McMahon sells him on the idea of the Hogan match. And you said it in there. You said they had this match and it really was the game changer because I think the way you put it was Jim Crockett couldn't draw 30,000 people with Ric Flair versus Dusty Rhodes. In the imagination of people, Logan and Andre, Andre was that guy from the 70s that anybody that knew anything about wrestling knew something about. And he, so he was bigger than wrestling. And Gino Brito tells us in the book, Andre would always draw outside of the wrestling fans when he came to town because people heard of him and there was that attraction of seeing the giant in person. And, you know, so that translated years later to everybody knowing and he was big, he was, you know, one of the first person that was 
someone outside of the wrestling business. I'm just thinking of the Six Million Dollar Man uh, TV show and the Bigfoot appearance as one thing that a lot of people remember and still talk about today. So, you know, he was going places that other wrestlers didn't go. And Bogan became so hot and big in, at, at the same time. And you had that the biggest name ever so far in the business against the new name biggest. So it's it was huge. And, and looking back, you know, I was in Montreal. So for me, it was like, oh, my God, I cannot believe that the, the giant is turning heel or was he's a bad guy now. He's still my guy. He was my local guy for me. But watching it with my eyes today, I mean, I see the business that those two men together at that time with the television product that WWF was presenting. And and clearly, they were just bigger than life. And that's where you draw outside of your wrestling fans. And that's why it was so big. And, you know, we like to think that there, there was a chance and there might have been competition, but clearly, you know, we have, if you look at the numbers and you look at the results, they were in a losing fight from the get-go and only got competitive with McMahon when they got Ogan in the late 1990s. So here you go. You know, let's talk a little bit about Hogan and Andre since we're on that topic right now. One of the things the book does is expand upon their relationship and their in-ring feud beyond WrestleMania 3, going back to the beginning. I was about to say the beginning in Dothan with the arm wrestling, but actually you even talk about the first match they were in together in a battle royal when Hogan was still under a mask as the Super Destroyer. How would you categorize the relationship between Hulk Hogan and Andre the Giant? I mean, obviously, it's kind of difficult to get the truth. We try to go in there because, you know, for all I love Hulk Hogan, I mean, it's kind of hard with his books or with the interview he's made to know where exactly, you know, fiction and reality mix or don't mix. So some stuff is a little bit itchy in there. But clearly, there was a little tension. I mean, uh, we had other people like Rick Martel saying, you know, that Andre saw early on that Hogan might be the guy. And obviously, that creates some tension. Okay, so from there, you know, I think all women won him over somehow as they went along. Uh, from there, I mean, obviously, towards WrestleMania 3, Hogan, I think Andre all along wanted to put him over and make the big payday. And he wasn't sure he was going to be able to continue after that match because, you know, the back operation was to follow. And, you know, it was an unknown what his uh, health would be after that and if it would be even possible to continue. But obviously, uh, there is some truth to the fact that he made Hogan think uh, that he may not go down for him. But from anything we could read and from my discussion uh, with Pat Patterson, on that day, they, they never had a doubt that anything would change and it was always the plan and that there was no reason for it. And Andre would wink at Pat, you know, you know, the two French guys saying, you know, don't worry, you know, let me have my fun, but, you know, don't worry too much. So that's the relationship they have. And, and clearly today, I think Hulk has realized the, the, the importance Andre and that win had on his career and, and that he, he was truly uh, inheriting the business from Andre at that time. So I think for him, it has become even bigger today than it was back then because he can appreciate uh, what was done for him. So I think they, they had a good relationship, but obviously, you know, 
with his body, uh, you know, becoming an issue and him not being able to work the way he wanted to, uh, WWF kept on kept on going. So obviously that may have created some some issues with McMahon. But as far as Hulk go, I mean, he was still on the list of people asked to speak at the funeral. So uh, I think they they kept a good relationship towards the end and after the Sunday tree. You know, and that's one of the stories you guys tell from various different angles, because we don't really know what the whole story is. The idea that Hogan was afraid that Andre wasn't going to lose at WrestleMania 3, you tell it from various perspectives that are out there and try to really figure out what happened. And that's the story of so much of Andre's career. I mean, going back to the very beginning when he broke in in France, his height, I mean, the height that he was billed at in France... (laughs) was closer to what it really was. But even then, it altered from show to show, from poster to poster. It could be six foot ten. It could be seven foot. It could be six nine. What? I mean, so many people ask this question about Andre's height. Were you surprised that it went back to the very beginning, the the lies, I guess, or just no one knowing exactly what his height was? I've known wrestling promoters and seen enough wrestling to not be surprised about that. Uh, I know my son is always going crazy because He's like looking at the, the heights that are being given on TV or on the website. And sometimes on TV, they'll say something. And on the website, they have another height. So, you know, wrestling with height and weight has been doing basically whatever uh, whatever they want and whenever they want it. My rule was always to subtract two inches to anybody to get a real height because that's usually they usually add two inches to everybody. <laughs> so that seems to be the rule. So, I mean, that it kept changing what what is surprising is that they didn't capitalize on it so much in france as it it would be in the u.s uh, and canada but again you know you have to think you know he's the young guy coming in the, the promotion and all those promoters you know they're also wrestlers working on top the same thing when he went to england as a young man i mean he was going to work with for for promoters or big stars that were already there on top so nobody was like, oh, he's Henry the Giant, you know, the boss. He was not. So he was just a new guy with a big guy, a big giant. Okay, he's an attraction. He can sell us ticket, but nobody was treating him like a, a top guy. So, and that's a perspective that's kind of, yeah, he was just a new guy. And, you know, how many giants do we see come in every two or five years in wrestling? You know, most of them don't pan out too much. <laughs> So, you know, I guess, you know, back then it was a little bit of the same, you know, maybe it'll be good for a while and, you know, it'll, it'll fizzle out. But, you know, Andrea ended up, you know, being the biggest star this uh, business may have ever seen at the time. So it's, uh, you know, you never know. And that was very interesting to see that the, the way he was not like the attraction that we've known him to be, because as soon as he hit uh, Montreal and Grand Prix wrestling, you know, he became a, a top guy. Uh, in the territory here right away. And then, you know, when he was being brought in as an attraction, you know, he was always in a feature role. And that led to more and more, you know, big uh, win in battle royals and main event matches and, and things of that nature. You go into detail in the book about Andre breaking in in France. You go into detail about Andre in Japan, which is another place that he spent so much of his career from the very beginning to the very end. And then he arrives in Montreal. And you, of course, being the Montreal expert, talk about how big was Andre in Montreal, in Quebec? How important was he to Grand Prix wrestling during the 1972 wrestling war? And also, before we even get there, 
You said there's going to be a French publication of this book. This book is called The True Story of Andre the Giant. What is it going to be called in French? Because he wasn't Andre the Giant in Montreal. In Montreal, the book is going to be called Le Géant Ferré, La Lutienne Merveille du Monde, which is basically his French name, which was Le Géant Ferré and Eight Wonder of the World in French. And, you know, there, there's a lot of interest. Our French publisher is very uh, happy and now very happy that he's going to be able to finally release the book because Andre was a Frenchman. And you have to understand in Montreal, most of the population in the territory, in the province of Quebec, speaks French. So any Frenchman, and we, this goes back to Edouard Carpentier and others before, they became like, you know, they, they were quickly adopted as one of our own uh, back then uh, when they came from France. And, you know, to this day, you know, Quebec artists will, will travel and become big stars in France. Celine Dion started to become a big star when she first traveled to France and became a big star there and then, you know, and then invaded the U.S., so, you know, it, to this day, it's something very common here to have a big artist or a big star from France coming here and vice versa. Some of our small stars go to France and they become huge. So, you know, it, it's a, a little bit of the same here. When he first came in and he was so impressive, nobody had seen anybody like him and he spoke French. So, it, you know, if he would have been an English giant, uh, obviously he may not have been a baby face and he may not have uh, gotten over so much. But he got over right away, and he changed the game right away. I mean, to Paul Vachon, I mean, maybe Grand Prix would have, you know, still been in a big battle with all-star wrestling. But adding the Giant to a mix that already included Edouard Carpentier and Mad Dog Vachon and then the LeDuc brother, I mean, it just made the promotion explode on the scene. And the Rougeau group with all-star was quite not ready <laughs> for, for, for the giant and his attraction at the box office. So it, it changed everything. And those two or three years uh, of the war with the giant, I mean, were huge here with 2 million people watching wrestling on television with two different shows and drawing crowds everywhere. The famous uh, match of the century with Daniel Jonathan that kind of put Andre on the map outside of uh, Montreal as a drawing card. And that would lead to him going more and more outside and ultimately getting that uh, brokered down deal by the Vachon to, to get Andre to be booked by Vince McMahon Sr. And of course, by that period of time, Andre had come into the States several times for Vern Gagne, for Dick the Bruiser. And one of the stories you tell in the book is Dick the Bruiser is one of the people who, I guess, has a claim to naming him Andre the Giant, correct? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we've just talked about the name of uh, André, which was in France and in Quebec, Le Géant Jean Ferré. Uh, so if you do, if you pronounce Ferré in, in English, it's an E at the end. So it, most English will pronounce it Ferry. So it would have mean the, you know, the giant Jean Ferry. So you couldn't call him the Ferry. <laughs> so obviously Dick the Bruiser didn't buy that as a, as a possible name although you know we, we go through the whole different list of names that was attempted along the way so he said you know what is his name he said Andre they said Andre and they said well why not call him Andre the Giant and it seems that it's around that time that that's the name that started to be used on a regular basis in the US because he used to go to Toronto as Jean Ferry uh, because, you know, other Canadians are a little bit more used to some of the French pronunciation, I guess. But, you know, it is uh, how the business uh, worked back then. 
but it also made you know the creation of Andrew the Giant almost becoming slightly different from what Jean Ferry used to have in Montreal, and, and some of that kind of went away as they built the giant on the New York television. So that's the little tidbits here and there that we uncover and that we go into more details. And, you know, that story has, has checked out so far with everybody that we were able to talk to. And Paul Vachon has been telling us that like that since before we knew him. So it seems uh, the, the much more logical way than, you know, someone suddenly the app calling him Andrew the Giant only when he got to New York. And there is obvious paper trails from newspapers that that was used before New York. While he would leave Montreal to go to New York and become a wrestler under the auspices of Vince McMahon Sr., we say come to New York. When you go back and you look and the book points this out, he only wrestled maybe three times a year at Madison Square Garden until the expansion. He was not there every show. But although he would come to the States and become a attraction in various territories, he would never lose that relationship with French wrestlers, with the exception of Dino Bravo, I guess. Yeah, with Dino, we, 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 we learned that there was some uh, bad moments as, as when Andrew was an owner in Montreal and, and Dino was becoming the biggest star of the territory. There was some friction there. Dino had something about Frenchmen for some reason. You know, there's an old story that we discuss in the book. You know, we like the French, but, you know, we still say those damn Frenchmen because they have a tendency of pissing us off. And, you know, you know, as we've learned and seen in the Vice documentary, was a little bit, you know, edgy uh, and easy to make angry and to piss off. So uh, obviously, you know, they, he had his own issue. But Andrew loved speaking French and loved learning and, and travel with the other French wrestler from the Rick Martel to a Ronnie Garvin we put over in the middle of nowhere just because he liked him and they spoke, both spoke French or even Ivan Koloff, who spoke French, being from Ontario and still spoke French. You know, he liked to speak with those people because that brought him home a little bit because that's the one thing that Andrei Rusimov never thought until, uh, very strangely, until he passed away was, you know, to go back to France and be with his family and friends from when he was young. That's the one thing he didn't do a lot. And so being on the road with, with the, the Quebecers or the other Frenchmen was always uh, something special. And they all have those stories. You know, as soon as Andrew knew you spoke French, you know, you were part of his group, you know before the click. Uh, so, you know, that, that is always cool for us uh, as we became good friends and, and been able to talk with those guys quite a lot in the past few years uh, as they've uh, adopted the way we've presented their story and, and we're so proud of the way we presented the story because all of those guys were very, uh, you know, they came for a time where if you open too much about wrestling, you know, journalists or people writing about you would make fun of it. And, and the fact that we've presented such serious work that, you know, they self-represented what they were doing. They've been very open with us and they've granted us access to their collection of pictures and to, more importantly, their memories. So we were able to talk to all of them and they all have very fond memories of uh, being with Andre. And a lot of wrestlers, sometimes, you know, they retire and they don't keep pictures and they don't keep this and they don't keep that. And they kind of, you know, drift away from that world. But a lot of them, you know, first thing they tell you is that, oh, I have one picture with Andre. They all have that one picture with Andre that they kept or that they have on their phone. 
So, you know, Andre was over with the boys, as they say. You know, on the topic of Dino Bravo, and the book goes into detail about, I guess, why there wasn't a relationship or a good relationship between them. One of the big mysteries to me still, after reading the book, is what caused Andre? What was his reasoning behind selling his percentage of the Montreal promotion? Because obviously him, Gino Brito, and Frank Valois end up, after Grand Prix, years later, starting a new promotion. And eventually Andre just sells out, even though he was kind of a silent partner. He sells it to a guy that he doesn't have a good relationship with. What is your theory? Why do you think he sold to Dino Bravo? I mean, we, we try to get more. You know, Billy, the uh, superstar, made a, gave us that, that little tidbit that we were able to dig and, and go further with. But, you know, Gino says, you know, and Gino's getting there in age that, you know, he doesn't quite remember anything outside the fact that suddenly, you know, Andrew wanted his share to be bought back. And, you know, the only thing he told uh, Gino was that if there's an issue, I go and, I, you know, I don't confront, I just step aside. And that was it. We, we've tracked down that all of this goes down after a trip to Japan, where both Dino and Andre were on. After that, Dino never goes back to New Japan. What happened, it's not clear. I mean, we do mention that since we explained that Dino was... <laughs> Was one, you know, he was he didn't have a good relationship with Carpentier either. You know, he would sometimes say bad things uh, in the back uh, of uh, those Frenchmen, and maybe some of that got to Andre, uh, depending on who Dino was talking to. So obviously, that may have created issues. You know, it is it is a wrestling business, you know, and obviously Andre didn't want to waste any time talking about business or arguing or you know he wanted to have fun he wanted to get his money he wanted to drink he wanted to go out you know getting into a business argument you know because Dino wanted to be the top guy and he wanted to buy into the office probably was not uh, something Andrew wanted to deal with uh, from what we can see you know that he was clearly not that kind of person that that's gonna stick it out and he didn't need to be own share in the Montreal territory and, and at that point, when that happened, we're just a few years, like two years away from the expansion. So obviously, you know, if Andre had kept his uh, share of the Montreal territory, you know, the things could have been clearly different in Montreal uh, as far as the local territory, uh, as we know from Madagascar and Scrooge. I mean, international wrestling in Montreal, which was the, the office that Andre was a part owner from, even without Andrew being uh, an owner at the time, they still managed to be able to work joint shows at the forum with WWF, which was unheard of, and no one, no other territory was able to pull that off. So, you know, Montreal was always a special territory. Uh, but Andre, you know, he was not the kind of guy that was going to fight over business. In terms of the McMahons, obviously Vince McMahon Sr. really puts him on the map in the United States, turns him into this touring attraction. Beyond wrestling, Andre's on The Tonight Show, Andre's on The Six Million Dollar Man, various other appearances in different places. The Probably the most well-known wrestler nationwide in the 70s, I would say. How would you compare the relationship between Andre and Vince Sr. to Andre and Vince Jr.? Well, you know, clearly from, from interviews and uh, Vince McMahon as Jr. has given, I mean, there was a degradation of the relationship towards the end. I mean, Andrew was not the man he used to be in the ring. 
as we've seen also in Dark Side of the Ring, uh, and you mentioned that in the book, I mean, Andre did use working the UWF over Abraham to get himself back into a contract with uh, McMahon. Uh, so obviously, you know, we're, we were far and away from the relationship of the father-son that deal and the handshake deal that he had with Vince Sr. And as the business was moving on without Andre and Andre couldn't keep up uh, because of his body, it, there was obviously some resentment there. Would they have been able to fix that? Uh, you know, in wrestling, apparently, you know, most of everything can be fixed. Uh, so I, I would not have been surprised that that relationship would have been mended if Andre had lived to, to be uh, a little bit older and wiser. Uh, as they say, uh, and you know, uh, today, I mean, you know, they they still have Big Show under contract, even though he's not working on a regular basis, uh, and they have other projects for him and, and things of that nature. So, Andrew would have been a prime candidate for that type of ambassador role, and, and to be, still be on the road and still do appearances from the, here and there. But obviously, there was no more room for him uh, as a regular character on television, and. It's hard for any wrestler, so I can only imagine how hard it must have been for him to realize that the business was going to go on without him and that, you know, WWF was going to go on without him. One of the things the book does is talk about Andre's health, obviously, at various different points in his career. The first chink in the armor was probably when he got out of bed and his ankle was shattered, which, of course, was turned into an angle with Killer Khan hurting him, but... It didn't happen in a wrestling ring. It didn't happen at a match. It happened in his room when he got out of bed. And it's really from that point on that his body starts deteriorating. When it comes to his health, two of the things I think that are interesting in the book is the surgery he had and the surgery he didn't have. Let's first talk about the surgery he had. There have been so many stories throughout the years about Andre's back surgery. And I thought this was one of the big revelations in the book. He didn't have the back surgery before WrestleMania three, like so many people think. It was actually after WrestleMania three that he had the surgery. Yeah, and you know we uncovered some paperwork from his visa application and all that, and it's clearly the dates and everything is clearly stated uh, that the time frame of the operation, and it's clearly after WrestleMania three. And even if you go back to the WWF book that was released, there there's an interview in there with Tim White talking that it's going to take at least three months to get the operation and the equipment ready for Andre to have the surgery in England. And that's at the end of the filming of uh, Princess Bride, which I think is probably the issue, is that decision was made after Princess Bride, but the actual surgery came after filming a tree because there was no guarantee that that surgery would actually permit him to continue his wrestling career because anything with Andre was... Uh, you know, there was no really book or, you know, people your age or you know, there was everything was, you know, we don't know how your body's going to react to this because it was clearly basic back surgery from our research that he got at that time to help him. But it's still, you know, the, the, the recovery was longer and it was, you know, they didn't know how his body was going to handle it, all of that, especially at the weight he was in. So that that was interesting. You know, that's all part, you know. One story gets told once, then everybody's repeating that same story. We go back to the pro wrestling, uh, the, pro wrestling <laughs> the Sports Illustrated story, you know? It got repeated so much from that one story that, you know, some stuff from uh, the, that story were, were 
told not to be true in the documentary on HBO and still people are quoting the Sports Illustrated story <laughs> if you go on in online sometimes. So it's like, okay, that's how strong sometimes getting that story out there once, you know, it gets repeated so much that, you know, it becomes the truth for a lot of people because that's what has been told all along. And that's probably what happened there, you know. There was a big mix-up about deciding to get the surgery and the actual surgery. Which explains to a lot of fans who have ever wondered why Andre is almost invisible after WrestleMania three. I think there's one big match, and then until the build-up to Survivor Series, he's gone. Yeah, and even if you watch him work at Survivor Series, which is his first real match back, you will see that you know, he's not going to take any bump on his back. And he's going to be very careful on how he does everything in that match. And that's the first match back. So that that kind of puts, you know, it's like if there's nothing more exciting when you're putting the book together is to get all those pieces of puzzles. And when you start putting them together and, you know, sometimes you know, they don't fit, you know, how come they don't fit? And then suddenly you get that missing piece and, and now everything is fitting together. So that's the type of information uh that we have out there you know we were able to figure out those missing pieces in a lot of places to to make things work logically the surgery he didn't get the surgery that the big show did get actually you bring up the big show earlier Mm -hmm. was for acromegaly which would of course make him andre the giant but also would cause his body to turn against him eventually the book goes into detail as best you can as to when you believe he was diagnosed for the first time with agromegaly and also the fact that it appears he knew in a lot of ways what was going to happen to him he knew that he wasn't going to live a long life it seems like andre was very aware of what the realities of his condition were i mean there there doesn't seem to be much of a doubt that you know after the first trip to japan that would be where he, he learned as that's what he told jackie will live with him with her husband Frenchie for a long, long time. Frenchie Bernard's wife. Yeah, Frenchie Bernard and his wife. So his wife, Jackie, that's the story she got from Andre that he, he knew since from Japan. And, and even when he, when he first came to Montreal, I mean, both Paul Vachon and Paul Duke uh, heard him back then say, you know, that he was not going to live long. So, I mean, that he got fully tested for Cro-Megaly and, you know, he got the full story as presented in the documentary for the first time for his ankle surgery, that would make sense that they would test him at that point and bring him the full details, uh, which might have not have been available at the time in Japan with translation and all that. But, you know, he knew. And I, for one, I mean, for a long, long time, as more people like the Big Show got the surgery, and we learn a little bit about it. I mean, my assumption was that that type of surgery was not available to Andre. And I was very surprised. And it's one of the, the first things that I started to search was a chromigaly to know that it was known for a long, long time as an ailment. And surgery was available as far back as the 60s. Uh, so that made no sense to me. And it seems that you know, as far as Andre was concerned, he was made this way. He was afraid not to be the the, the same giant or that it would change him, uh, which clearly, you know, he was misinformed or, or did not believe that it would not have any effect on his current stature at the time of, of a possible surgery. 
to me, I mean, that's the tragic part because, you know, clearly he, he didn't get the good advice. He didn't study the situation enough because, you know, it would have made all the sense in the world that he could have, you know, he could have stretched his life to, we don't know. I mean, the big show just turned older than Andre was and he's still in very good health. And maybe he's not going to make it to being 90 years old or or something like that. But obviously, he's going to have a long and uh, prosperous life for, for years to come. And, you know, one can only wonder, you know, how old uh, Andre could have uh, been uh, and what type of a better life he could have had also with the surgery, which is the big part. Because as he went and became older, his body started to grow again in fur, especially the foot, uh, the head, the hands. Uh, we all have, you know, older pictures, uh, more recent pictures of Andre all showed the space in between his teeth getting much more large and, and visible. And that's one of the many signs of the acromegaly. As the mouth and the head start to get bigger, you know, the teeth, they stay there and, and the space in between the teeth uh, becomes uh, wider. So it's like, what if, what if Andrew got that surgery and, and took care of himself instead of uh, trying to just be a wrestler and, and go out there with his buddies? Uh, what could have been, you know? You know, we can't talk about Andre the Giant without talking about his legendary drinking, which is discussed in depth in the book. Various people have various tales of how many beers he drank or how many cases of wine he drank. One of the things the book points out is that eventually, due to his body failing him and the pain he was in, he most certainly was drinking before he went into the ring, including before the big match with Hogan at WrestleMania three. Gene Okerlund had a quote in the book that I thought was interesting, because I never thought of it in this context, that Andre was a functioning alcoholic. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think, you know, that Gene was uh, very well connected with Andrei Rusimov enough to make that kind of a statement. And it makes sense, you know, he was drinking so much towards the end, he, he never missed work. Uh, there's a few stories of him being impaired in the ring or, you know, falling asleep and things of that nature. But that, that moment, you know, some, some guys still protected him, saying that he never drank before a match and things of like that. But there's too many stories and too many guys still talking. So obviously, you know, that became something, but it was basically just to keep up, you know. Uh, there, there's not much about him taking any kind of painkiller, which would have necessitated probably a lot. So, you know, getting that, that bottle of wine or that extra beer before going in, you know, made a difference uh, in how he was able to manage his pain. But even when not wrestling, I mean, on the set of uh, Princess Bride or celebrating Princess Bride, there's some incredible stories of him drinking about anything. Uh, so, and, and in large quantity. So obviously, you know, that became part of his entertainment and it became part of how he managed uh, with uh, how his body was failing him. The book goes into detail about Andre's personal life as well. And the relationships, or in some ways, the lack of real relationships he ever had with women. And of course, the relationship, or again, lack of a relationship in a lot of respects that he had with his daughter, Robin. You really point out how that's something that everyone who was close to Andre says bothered him, that he wanted to be close with his daughter, and he didn't 
have because of his touring schedule, because of his relationship with her mother. I'm sure there are lots of different reasons. He didn't have the relationship he wanted with his daughter. How much do you think that weighed on Andre? I mean, you know, for having children of my own, I mean, I can only imagine how it must be, you know, torture uh, not to be able to see your kid, not knowing them too much. Uh, we know as Robin was getting older, you know, that there was overture, overture on the on that side and there might have been possibilities. And, and it all goes back to the fact that how can Andre go out with his daughter and do anything? You know, you don't go to Disneyland with your kid when you're Andre the Giant unless you can <laughs> rent the park for a day for yourself. It's not just not possible. It would not be possible today. Someone as famous as Andre that looks like Andre bringing his kid uh, like that. And I, and I mentioned that story of maybe renting the old park. I know for reading it, I think in Chris Jericho's book, uh, Bruce Willis did that. And, and, you know, the rock was invited or something of that nature that he would rent the actual water park completely for him and his family to be able to, and it was just Bruce Willis, which, you know, looks nothing like Andrew the giant. So, we can only imagine, you know, even going to the restaurant, if you're not in LRB, and that was always an issue about, you know, Robin lived in the West Coast when, with her mother, and Andrew lived in LRB in uh, North Carolina. And in LRB, he was a little bit more anonymous and knew everybody from a small town, so everybody had seen him at least once. So, you know, that part of the deal was done, so it would have been much easier for him to do things around that part of the country than to go anywhere else where he was always under the giant and couldn't go and do anything. So that right there is very hard. So, I mean, it waited on him, and there's a story Aku tells of Andrew crying because and uh, a scheduled meeting with Robin failed too because of uh, uh, fighting with, with his, uh, Robin's mother. So it's like, as a parent, we can all relate to that, that, you know, it must have been terrible. And we know from uh, Robin's telling it and, and Boris is uh, mentioned being there when, you know, they actually spoke around the Christmas time of uh, the last year of Andre in 92. And, you know, there was plan of trying to do more and Andrew was thinking about selling the ranch and maybe moving close in a way that way it would have been easier for him to visit and, or have an older Robin visit. So, you know, uh, he ran out of time on this. You know, you often push back saying, well, you know, when she gets older, you know, it's going to be easier. And they just ran out of time. So that that is something that, that is there. And, and obviously, you know, I... I too bad because Robin is never going to really know who was Andrew Rusimov as a young adult. Uh, you know, she has stories and she has memories mostly of Andrew the Giant, and that's very sad. You know, speaking of sad, you tackle something I consider a sad event in Andre's career, which is the match with Akira Maeda. And it's hard to read that chapter because I've seen the match, and it's really hard to watch that match. Because if you were someone who saw Andre when he was mobile or Andre when he was healthy, it's really hard to watch that match and him. I mean, it clearly turns into a shoot. What do you think exactly happened there? Akira Maeda versus Andre the Giant in New Japan. I mean, from, from our understanding and research, I mean, someone thought it was funny to put those two together. And Kaylee, that didn't end up being funny at all. 
Um, I mean, it's just, you know, Maida wanted, you know, was all about legitimacy and Andrew clearly at that point in time. And, and, you know, that's one of the points in time, you know, that match and the WrestleMania 2 Battle World, where you can see, even if you compare to WrestleMania 1, where even the, the, the shape of his body has slightly changed and he's less mobile and, you know, it, even keeping his balance is difficult in the ring. So that's new. And, you know, Andre was a little bit pig-headed uh, in himself and, and he just, you know, when the other guy started to test him, he just wanted to keep up a little bit. And then, you know, there's some really weird things in there when he yell at Maeda to let go of him and Maeda like jump like almost like he's scared or something, uh, which is completely out of character for any type of uh, work wrestling match. So it's like, it's sad, but at the same time, it's really, uh, and I'm thinking it as, as we discuss this, it's a, it's a marking point of a change from an Andrew that could work and that was still that could keep up to an Andrew that was totally different. Once again, the book, The Eighth Wonder of the World, The True Story of Andre the Giant by Bertrand Bear and Pat Laprade. It is available at Amazon.com. It's available at barnesandnoble.com, and if you're in Canada, go directly to ecwpress.com. I know right now with the coronavirus happening, it's not the easiest time to go out to a bookstore, but this is a book that I can't recommend, I can't endorse highly enough. Like I said, Bertrand, this may be the single greatest wrestling biography anyone has written. It is a masterpiece, and you and Pat should really be proud of it. What do you want readers to take away from this book? What do you want readers to leave this book thinking about Andre the Giant? That no matter what the truth is, I think, you know, we can still think that Andre the Giant was seven foot four and he was all that metal. That's Andre the Giant. Andre Rusimov, he was probably more around seven foot tall, but he still played the role of the seven foot four guy that there's two different people in there, that there is a human story behind the Andrew the Giant character that we love so much. And it's so interesting to get to know that person. And at the same time, it doesn't take anything away from our memories of Andrew the Giant. Bertrand, you've done Mad Dogs, Midgets, and Screwjobs, the overall story of Montreal wrestling. You've done the Mad Dog Vashon biography, the Pat Patterson biography, now the Andre the Giant biography. Who's next? Gino Brito? Or is it going to be a look at Yvonne Robert? What, what do you have planned next? Uh, it, one project always led to the next. So we're very hopeful that, you know, this will lead to something else. Uh, obviously, you know, there's some uh, interest now in the Dino Bravo story following the Dark uh, Side of the Ring documentary. So, you know, maybe that's something uh would like to tackle one day as you know there's so much more than the documentary was not able to go into and you know hopefully that could be it or you know we you know maybe a curveball is waiting for us somewhere and we'll just try to hit that one out of the park once more boom there it is bertrandy bear one of the authors of the eighth wonder of the world the true story of andre the giant Get that book, get every book we talked about today. Certainly must-haves for any classic wrestling fans. But as we wrap things up, a few notes. As always, I want to thank Jace Nakarado, associate producer, actually, of this episode, as well as Lou Kippelman 
and Jake Hammer for all their fine help in putting this episode together. Also want to make mention that you can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash superpodcast, as well as on Twitter at 605pod. Don't forget to follow the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at superpodcast or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Vanguard. You can also follow me on Twitter. There's a lot of Twitter accounts here at Great Brian Last. Don't forget tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. By using that link, you go to Amazon, you make all the purchases you would normally make, and you don't spend a penny more than you would normally spend, but we get a little bit of love and support. From Jeff Bezos and company, tinyurl.com slash superpod Amazon. If you want to get 605 Super Podcast t-shirts, stickers, magnets, as well as mothership t-shirts or stickers or magnets, go to tinyurl.com slash superpodstore, the official online store of the 605 Super Podcast. You can also access that link by going to facebook.com slash superpodcast and clicking the buy now link or shop now link. I don't even know. At the top of the page, you'll see it. It's there. I just don't know what the hell it is. Once again, tinyurl.com slash superpodstore. If you enjoy the 605 Super Podcast and the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network and want to support the production of these shows, you can go and become a patron. Patreon.com slash superpodcast. You don't get any bonus material. You don't get any bonus content. If anything appears there, it's a surprise. Surprise to me, even. But this is just a great way to support the production of these shows on a monthly, ongoing basis. Or if you want to make a one-time donation to the production of this show, paypal.me slash superpodcast. The 605 Super Podcast is brought to you by Ramsor Records, ramsorrecords.com. And don't forget, the Ruin Brothers, there are three new songs available wherever you get your favorite music. Of course, you can go to tinyurl.com slash superpod, Amazon. And these songs are from the brand new Netflix original movie, The Half of It. Check that out today. And thank you to our friends, the Ruin Brothers, for appearing on the show today. Want to remind you that if you have something you want to send into the show, you can do so. The 605 Super Podcast, P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. That's the 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! P.O. Box 1242, Morristown, New Jersey, 07962. The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Your associate producer this week is Jace Nacarado. But until next time, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho! Hello again, everybody. Scott Bowden, right along ringside and ready to go with my co-host Brian Lass for another big episode of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And we are coming with... (laughs) (laughs) We're off to a roaring start. Hang on. Hello again, everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Lass, right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of the Kentucky Fried Wrestling podcast. 
And we are flying by the seat of our pants today because we are coming at you with a completely different show than what we had planned. It's very much like a Saturday morning at 1960 Union Avenue, getting ready to tape an episode of Channel 5 Wrestling, and Jerry Lawler comes in at the last minute and rewrites the entire show. Uh, Brian, do you want to tell them about this golden opportunity that was presented to us? And I seized it, and I think I have some compelling evidence that may finally solve the Mill Mascaris Monday Night Mystery. It was a crazy chain of events. We had another show ready to be recorded. We had a whole nother format, a whole nother topic. And literally as we were on the line together about to record, I remembered that I had seen something about Mill Mascaris doing an autograph signing. I didn't remember where, I didn't remember when. And when I did a quick search, I realized it was now and it was not too far from Scott Bowden's house. So... We dropped the show, we dropped the call, and you headed over there and you met one-on-one with Mill Moscaris with an opportunity once and for all to clear up the Mill Moscaris Monday Night Mystery. That's exactly right. Mono y mono. I, uh... <laughs> <laughs> That broke me. <laughs> that was perfect. That was perfect. <laughs> all right, all right. Sorry. Oh, I'm about, I'm about to feed you a, a Lance Russell moment where you can go, hey, hey, come on now. So we get ready. I, I think I think it'll work though, without being too offensive. I mean, after, uh, so are we keeping that mono? mono? <laughs> yeah, we, well, you may have to do that again because it breaks right into the laugh. Okay. Uh, yeah. But do that and we'll take it from there. Okay. <clears throat> That's exactly right. Mono y mono. Of course, I was at a decided disadvantage since I do not speak Mexican. However, I approached Mill like the true fan that I am and humbly asked him to explain. If, in fact, this were him on the night in question, and if so, why was he so cooperative? Why did he go out of his way to make the local heroes look good? Well, actually, I didn't ask that shit. Hang on a second. Keep it simple. Yeah. I was at a decided disadvantage since I don't speak Mexican. However, I approached him like an earnest fan, asking him to honestly answer the question if he was in Memphis, Tennessee at the Mid-South Coliseum in the main event, tag-teaming, working as a heel with Austin Idol against Jerry the King Lawler and Jackie Fargo on January 29th, 1979. And the answer is coming up next. Sounds good. All right, you could uh, count down whenever you want. Yellow again, everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Lass right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of the KFR podcast. And today, Brian, we are going back in time to spring 1991 when I was well into my sophomore year at the then Memphis State University, working as a Hill columnist for the Daily Helmsman newspaper with my weekly opinion piece back talk by day and loading FedEx airplanes bound for Japan at night. 
And between all that, I was breaking more hearts than Shawn Michaels ever dreamed about, guzzling loads of cheap beer and whiskey and copious amounts of Taco Bell. It's good to have you here today, Judge Kavanaugh. I liked beer. I, I still <laughs> like beer. I'm drinking beer right now with Mil Mascaris. Oh, uh, let's not go down that road. Enough with Mil Mascaris. But uh, as you were saying, Your Honor. <sighs> but that was just during the week. <laughs> Excuse me. What the Sorry, I don't know if that was for the show or not. It, it got me. It was. It, it was for the show. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, didn't, I thought you. I thought you legitimately burped. You, you popped me. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Are you gonna leave the burp in? <laughs> I can leave the burp in, and uh, we can take it from there. Okay. On Saturday mornings, I'd leave my drunken frat brothers. Well, that's a little redundant. Behind, and usually a doe-eyed sorority chick at the Pi Kappa Alpha House. Don't look for it. It's not there anymore. For my other job, refereeing Channel 5 Wrestling every Saturday morning. Now, little did I know at that time that our guest today and her husband, two... Wait a minute. Were they married at that time? Actually, I don't think they were. Okay. And her man. Her or, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Little did I know... <laughs> little did I know... I, <laughs> shit. Little did I know that I... <laughs> shit. I am drunk. Um, <laughs> little, little did I know at that time that our guest today and her man, two green longhorns from Texas, would eventually blossom into big stars for WCW before stunning Steve would eventually get the call that would turn him into one of the biggest wrestlers and t-shirt sellers like those found at MemphisWrestlingTees.com ever. The ringmaster. Well, no, no, hold on, Scott. That's not right at all. It was our guest who helped thaw out her husband's stone-cold career by suggesting a name that would turn him into a red-hot million-dollar man, but he would ultimately put... <laughs> he would... <laughs> but he would ultimately pay a huge price in the end. His marriage to our guest today. Uh, that reads weird. Hold on. He would pay the ultimate price. His marriage, his marriage is the ultimate price. <laughs> well, <laughs> our, well, he would now ultimately pay a huge price, not the ultimate price. Okay, hold on. He would ultimately pay a huge price. His marriage to our guest today. Jeannie Clark will be joining us here on Kentucky Fried Wrestling to reminisce about her time in Memphis with referee Scott Bowden, who she clearly does not remember from their she, USWA she, days. She remember. Remembers me and discuss how addiction proved to be too powerful an opponent for those in her immediate squared, her immediate <laughs> squared circle, and eventually for Jeannie. Uh, yeah, all kidding aside, this is a very candid discussion with Jeannie, and actually, it's the first time I've spoken with her in more than 27 years, which is just amazing. Uh, and please keep in mind, because of the time difference with Jeannie and England. We take this at 6.30 in the morning, so I was only on my second cup of Yorkshire tea, so I likely sound as groggy as Randy Hales on a Facebook live cast. I can tell you this about our guest. <laughs> Jeannie remains beautiful inside and out, unlike my co-host. We'll be right back Whoa. with Jeannie Clark right after this stunning message. <laughs> <laughs> I love your writing, honestly. Just like you... you it's so easy to throw the words blossom and stone cold in there and have it not work. And you make it work. Like you, you fucking, you're so good. Your shit's so good. 
Well, some of it just the you know we're not taking ourselves too seriously with it. You know, I'm taking myself very seriously. Oh, okay. Well, you clearly do not remember. <laughs> she clearly <laughs> does not remember. <laughs> she remembers me. I, I like beer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is good. This is good. <laughs>